welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbele. We're recording live on TalkShoe, July 23rd, 2011. And this is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. And I'm, I'm really pleased to have on, uh, pending no elemental disturbance, the one and only Chris Abbott. Hello, Chris. Hello, Tom. It's nice to be here. You, you were hit by a thunderstorm and a blackout in the last show, I seem to recall. Uh, yeah, we were up for three and a half hours. Gosh. Not as bad as what uh, Steve in Chicago has to put up with. He'll be out of, without power for two or three days at a time. So. Yes, yes. But it's wonderful to have you on. What's new in your hobby of model railroading? Oh, dear. Uh, between between uh, high workloads and uh, the oppressive heat and uh, an unfortunate uh, bout of head and chest cold here, I haven't really got around to much. However... I did pick up a new RC package uh, to be used with the live steam locos. It's uh, an HK digital uh, seven-channel RC uh, transmitter receiver pack. It'll drive up to seven servos. I won't need that many, but uh, the price was right. And uh, my initial tests getting the servos working and making sure that everything's hooked up properly uh, seems to go okay. It's just a matter of now figuring out how to get the bits and pieces into the locomotive without having anything melt uh, during operations. So that's uh, that's one thing that I've uh, got in the burner again. So does that mean an end to burnt fingers now? Well, no, because if something goes off the off the rails, you still have to pick it up. It's uh, it's more of a, there's a couple of benefits to having RC. The first one being that if you're working on a layout with grades, you can uh, more readily uh, react to changes in, in the load uh, that's put on the engine as it goes up and down the grades. And secondly, if you want to do a bit of shunting or uh, mucking about on uh, a layout that has some sidings and some point-to-point operation, then uh, then you don't have to uh, put your track shoes on and sprint back and forth <laughs> along the track in order to uh, in order to uh, keep up with the locomotive. Plus, there's a I got to admit there's a, a significant amount of of the geek factor to uh, having RC. The way the engine came with the the AM system in it, it just wasn't feasible to use that in the in the urban settings or suburban settings where we we were finding ourselves a lot of glitching, especially if you were near any uh, chain link fences, which are pretty much de rigueur in in suburban uh, areas. So that really wasn't uh, an option to uh, to control the locomotive. And uh, there is a a nice benefit uh, that showed up for RC. One of the, the runs that I was at a couple of weeks ago before I started uh, this weird shift that I'm on right now, the locomotive started to, to act up mechanically as it was uh, traveling at a remote point in the track, and uh, the operator was able to shut the engine off, uh, center the uh, center the reverse lever, and uh, bring the throttle down to zero uh, instead of possibly causing uh, damage to the locomotive. turns out that uh, one of the screws came out of the linkage the uh, valve gear linkage, and uh, somehow I managed to locate it trackside in amongst the, the leaves and and uh, grass, bits of grass. So we were able to put it back together again, but uh, now it's it's out of alignment. So some repair is going to have to be done on, on Ian's locomotive to uh, to retime the, uh, the valve gear. So mm. I, I don't want to I don't want to stop you here, Chris. You, you know how these shows go, and particularly when we have a number of guests on. 
But we do have a special caller. We have uh, we have Gordon Dobson in Australia. So I think we'll probably have to return to this conversation in a minute. But I just wanted to to bring in Gordon Dobson. Hello, Gordon. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Gordon. Hello. How are you? Very well. This, this is your first time on Model Rail Radio. Although you're you're familiar to many of us through your work with the Wiki and also uh, proposing the the current Bertie Awards, which we'll get to sometime in the show as well. Would you like to introduce yourself to the Model Rail Radio listening audience? More than happy to. Uh, 43-year-old IT pro from Brisbane in Queensland in Australia, sitting here in a moderately chilly winter. Um, I think I've been a train aficionado for quite a while, probably hidden in the closet for a period. But then Christmas last year, my wife did a wonderful thing and bought me a 00 Hornby set for Christmas, which brought all my Christmases together, I think, in some fashion. Um, and then I've just gone mental since then and, and started to get well and truly into the hobby, as you guys have seen. I found um, the podcast, a number of podcasts, but Motorola Radio is the first one, and it's been a, a great inspiration and uh, providing a heap of guidance with all the collective knowledge that's available to get me to the point that I've been able to show the, the images that I sent around, uh, I think it was on Facebook actually earlier this week, um, just having a simple layout to start to learn a bunch of skills. And I probably, uh, being a modeler, wouldn't say necessarily particularly seriously, but a modeler from way back from, used to do 135th military, uh, used to do some aircraft modeling, and at one point I was doing the Ravel 125th trucks, but then abandoned that uh, for university and then family and other bits and pieces, probably when I was in my mid-20s. And then, yeah, back into modeling, I think is probably the, the main motivation in the um, railway scene and so I started out uh, I said with a, a Hornby kit and just expanding and adding more fleet to the rolling stock a couple of locos and then putting in uh, probably only in the last week or two starting some serious effort into getting into the modeling side of it I picked up a couple of kits off eBay um, just for some rolling stock and that's probably the thing that I'm, I'm most excited by is actually getting back into the modeling side of it and you also recently attended a, a train show in Brisbane. How was that? It was good. The, the show was actually down on the Gold Coast this time. The, I went to the first model train show I'd ever been to was um, the day after we got back from a month-long holiday in the UK. So I was probably still moderately jet-lagged at that point. That was the one back in May. Uh, but the one I went to yesterday is actually running this weekend, um, yesterday and today down the Gold Coast, which is the second annual of the... Um, no, I'm going to get there. It's a miniature train club from Gold Coast. Um, it was probably about half the size of the Brisbane one, but still a very good turnout, quite busy. I've got a few photos uh, that I'll be posting in the next couple of days, but uh, mostly represented uh, by Blow and HO. It's uh, a portion of it, but the, the heaviest amount, apart from a, a couple of good showings from some of the local vendors was the N-scale, N-scale everywhere and this new, I hadn't heard before, but this T-track modular layout, there was about five different displays that had the T-track modules built together. It was, it was very impressive. And the T-track modules, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they were mentioned last show as well, they're only small, like, foot-by-foot -foot sections all joined together, is that correct? That's correct. And I'm actually looking at the T-track guide and it's one that they've come out of the US. Um, after one of the Lee Monaco Fitzgerald, who uh, was working a bit, I think, with the N-Track standard, then created the T-Track, and the idea it is it's only a maximum of... Um, straight modules are exactly 308 mils, so 12 and an eighth inches long, so that two pieces of Kato Unitrack uh, will fit on top. So it's, the idea, I think, as I understand it, is that it's supposed to be able to give the 
uh, tea track based on Kato, so you don't have to worry so much about the joiners between the modules. You just basically click the Kato Unitrack together from section to section. So in terms of the kind of structures and just general layout potential with T-Track, can you describe some of the stuff that you thought? Uh, to be honest, I actually thought it was fairly flat. Uh, I suppose we're looking at most of the modules is that because they are designed to be these small box-shaped pieces, most of the detailing comes from a few structures. And it was interesting, one of the ones, and I can't remember the name of the, um, the collective off the top of my head, um, but they had there was, there was a, a Japanese-inspired module sitting right next to a UK section, sitting next to three US plane sections, as in... Um, <laughs> Uh, like the open open plains of I'm going to get one of the state Utah. No, that's too mountainous, isn't it? Utah's good. Utah will work. Okay, Utah will do. <laughs> um, and it, it, so you, you've got this, and then then there was three or four sections which they were using just as the connectors, which were the club ones. So you, you get this uh, a mishmash of um, there's no continuity, but the continuity is the trains. And then of course the trains that are running through uh, anything that they've got running on there. So there was um, a very interesting. Uh, visual that was coming through from the modules. There was one I actually discovered quite by surprise. I was wandering around and having a look at one layout, which was probably going to get the um, the majority of my photos because it just stunned me. I'm not sure if it's on the T-Track uh, module standard or if it's just one of the end module standards. It was a pre-1900s um, US layout uh, of a light rail. And the photos, these guys, and it turned out it was, it was a chap that I hadn't seen in three years that I used to work with who'd just gone back into modeling in the last two years, and it's a very detailed layout, quite amazing. Um, and I'll get photos of that up, but that, that's all the end module. But the T-Track leads to some, I think it would lead to some quite good operations, um, but it's not something it looks like that you'd take on if you were going for detail and uh, prototyping. Interesting, interesting. So in terms of uh, Australian rail in N, did you see anything at the show and do you get a sense of that being a growing market? No, I think most of what I saw in N was pretty much um, uh, US form. There was, I think, a few of the Australian roads represented, um, but not not anything that really stood out. Most of it was US form in, in the end and mm. some UK. So in terms of Australian rail, uh, I had a, an opportunity at the NMRA, I don't know what you'd call it, director's meeting, I guess, here in Las Vegas, uh, start of the year, to talk to an Australian fellow about uh, some of the stuff that's emerging. And uh, and my friend Paul in Hong Kong sent me a new Australian rail magazine, actually, model rail magazine, which has only come out, I guess, in the past couple of years. Do you get a sense of Australian rail in HO in terms of the new stuff that's coming out? From what I've seen around, and, and it's been, I've been probably somewhat remiss in that, in, and having only been playing six months in model rail here, um, but I haven't actually joined the club, so I've got to do that. But looking around, there's a couple of good, um, and, and it's, it's, so you'll find I've wandered around a bit. The main reason why I was suggesting the regionalisation for a couple of the, the kit manufacturers and local services is that we've got some really good kit manufacturers that are sitting in Australia. There seems to be a lot of interest around. Um, Eureka Models have got some fantastic models that um, coming out. Uh, Wisk Models, um, AR Kits, which is from Warwick, which is one of our little regional towns um, here in Queensland. So there is definitely a lot of activity around. You check out what's happening on eBay, check out what's happening in the the discussion list, and there is a, um, 
a steady, I think is probably the best way to describe from what I can see, a steady interest in the Australian form. Um, and yeah, so just as Chris put up the AMRA link there. Um, and what I'm also trying to work out too is the, the relationship between AMRA and NMRA and how it's promoting the Australian uh, prototypes mm. in the modeling. I think, yeah, I think my recollection is that NMRA is for just US, although it's a funny thing actually because the folks who were represented at the directors meeting were all US modelers. But my sense is that, um, that there, there are probably folks who are defecting. The area that fascinates me is how accessible Hornby is in Australia and the local, I don't know whether they're, uh, kind of UK friendly folk, but the local, uh, community that models UK rail in Australia. I have a friend in Canberra where I'm from who has a GWR layout. Which is amazing. I mean, he's spent years, he's even excavated under his house so he can have a proper basement style layout. But there's quite a fraternity of UK modelers and I guess, I guess Gordon, you've entered this by the gift that you were given. That's true. And I think I've always had a, um, affinity for the UK anyway. Uh, most of my, my dad's, uh, a POM and I, I guess we discovered he was a, a bit of a train spotter and um, recently he started to get back into it. So, uh, not into the modelling, just into the, the general railway thing. Um, I'm probably always going to lean towards UK form. Uh, there is a British, um, I sort of call themselves actually, the um, uh, British Modellers, British Railway Modellers Association. Um, I haven't seen any other association that's specific to a region like that in, in any of the looking around in Australia, but. I think most of the modelling I've seen to date has either been US or Australian. British is there. It's in a, wouldn't say it's necessarily in the ascendancy, but it's definitely um, fairly well represented. There was actually, there was a lack of representation, I thought, of the British at the, the train show I was just at on the weekend. The local shops are definitely hard up against it at the moment because I don't know if they're still dealing with stock that's been around uh, since prior to the uh, financial crisis, but right now I know as an individual I can get anywhere up to half the price of bringing something in from the UK. It's definitely an issue. This is the, the like, trying to support your local retailer. Where I'm not sure that they're necessarily able to get the buying power at the moment. The availability of stock, so the availability of the, the rolling gear, the actual um, loco stock, the motive power, and any of the detailing and the track work, it's all available in the hobby stores. They don't seem to have a problem with even getting the latest models in. It's just more a case of the, the cost to do it is the real issue as the individual. So in terms of in terms of your local area, how many hobby stores do you have around you? I've got two that I can specifically find. I've got one uh, probably about 10 minutes drive, which is where we ended up last weekend when I got my birthday airbrush. Um, <laughs> and then there's one which is uh, probably just on the other side of town, which is very nicely located five minutes away from my sister. So when we go and do a family visit, I can easily convince the redirection into that one. And that's probably the two major ones that I can find in the greater Brisbane area. I may not be looking hard enough. Um, but there seems to be a plethora, and, and they're general hobby stores, Tom. They're the ones that have got every, and it seems to be other, again, you guys have pointed out too. Um, they have a focus less off train or more off trains and onto and in both of these stores it's remote control cars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A hobby store on the north side also has a very heavy showing on remote control aircraft and I get a feeling that the south side always came from the car side of it, the north side came from the plane side of it and both of them decided to load up with trains which makes it very good for me. Mm. Mm. 
We have Terry Terrence on the line. Hello, Terry. Hey, Tom. How are you this evening? I'm, I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. As you can hear, we have uh, Gordon from Australia calling in. So this really is very fascinating, Gordon, because um, certainly I've been I've been tracking Australian bottle rail um, for many, many years now. And I think the thing that uh, strikes me in particular is that there was certainly a dip, uh, which I guess you missed out on because you've only been back in it uh, for the past six months. And I think the, the local manufacturers, I remember when I was last in Australia, which was about two years ago, uh, briefly dropping in on quite a well-stocked uh, uh, train-specific hobby store uh, in Adelaide. And uh, they were slowly picking up stock again. I think there was a period of time where people were just doing chassis conversions and various other things. And it's interesting, the Craftsman kit angle as well, uh, because there's just such a, a kind of iconic visual uh, element to uh, rail in Australia and you can't really get a U.S. Craftsman kit and rejig it for, you know, co proper corrugated iron roofs or any of the, the standard Australian stuff. I mean, I understand that the U.K. is your your central interest, but do you do any rail fanning around where you are? Oh, yeah, as, as much as I can. We've um, and I've recently had the opportunity to um, drive a loco, which was a bit of fun. We've got a couple of heritage... Um, locomotive well heritage railways around us which is certainly not at the same level as the UK um, with a couple of that a bit of that's fun and just down the road from me is um, one of the main lines that head south down to New South Wales and west out to the the regional area of Queensland for the, the big mines and that so a bit of rail fanning there um, not a whole lot of it but um, we also have there's a, a fairly regular I'm not sure if it's fortnightly or monthly um, it steam train Sunday so we get the opportunity to get a bit of heritage stock out on the local rails as well on the, the main line and I was just going to say also I think one of the, the challenges for Australia certainly being a Queenslander and wanting at some point to possibly do a prototype for Queensland is we've still got um, three gauge in Australia we've got uh, Queensland, I think, Western Australia on the narrow gauge. You've got New South Wales, and I can't remember the others on standard gauge. And you've got Victoria and South Australia, I think, are still predominantly on the broad gauge. So, trying to get manufacturers, um, and also they they developed at different rates too. I think when you start looking at scratch building, as you say, the Craftsman kits for rail side structures, is that they tend to be very different state to state you know, from the equipment that was around and the buildings that went with it. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I I come from South Australia originally, but grew up in uh, kind of Canberra and have most of my family now in New South Wales and Sydney as well. But uh, yeah, when I think of when I think of rail in Australia, it is with the broad uh, kind of South Australian gauge and uh, a w wide variety of the possible industries. And it was really nice, actually. Uh, my anticipation is that Paul, uh, who's also originally from Adelaide, South Australia, may be calling in. He's in New York currently, uh, so we might have we might have three Australians on the call. You've, you've picked up the show. You've you've run with the wiki. In terms of the show so far, what what more would you like to hear us cover? Oh, the perennial question, and one that probably should have been prepared for. There's there's probably nothing actually that I'd say is being missed out on at the moment. Um, and it, it is the format where you can roll around. You've got different people coming in every time, and there's different topics that get covered, and they're all um, all very useful. So I think you just keep going with what we got. I probably. If we if we could start to give a bit more, and it's probably as you say, it's listener generated content, so it's really up to the listeners to do this. But a bit more of the regionalisation, I'd love to hear more from 
um, the Asian, Central Asian, mm. African and South American rail is probably the one place. I don't know how we can actually encourage that, but I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about that. Uh, we have Jeff and Dover in the chat, and Jeff was uh, noting that he's got a, a friend who may be calling in this evening who uh, does model rail in Russia, or does, sorry, Russian model rail in Dover, uh, and he actually sells a wide variety of kits and uh, rolling stock and a variety of other things. I was looking at his site through the week. Uh, and I think, Gordon, you, you then, interestingly, into a topic that I wanted to cover this evening, which is actually where our listeners are coming from. Australia is an interesting one because uh, on the list of listeners, it's the second most listeners that we get to the show. But if you look in the population statistics, for every million people in Australia, 78 of them are model rail radio listeners, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is the highest statistic. So I think the Australian uh, contingent looking for content seems to be very strong. But some of the other groups that are listening in, number four on the list is Sweden. And number five on the list is Hong Kong. And I know of people in Hong Kong and Taiwan who've corresponded with me who listen to the show uh, quite frequently. And I really would like them to uh, to participate as well. I just want to echo uh, your call. And there's a good group of people. Uh, we've got the Czech Republic, Russian Federation, Romania. There were a number of Finnish people uh, that, that listen in. And I think all these folk, I mean, maybe they're modeling... <laughs> Maybe they're modeling, you know, the NSF or something like that in the US and just listening in as well. But I'm really fascinated to hear about the regional railroads as well, uh, Gordon. I really want to encourage folks who are listening in, in these parts of the world and really all over the world uh, to participate. For folks listening in, are you currently talking to us through the TalkShoe client? I am. Yes, I, I took your advice. I've loaded that. Um, and it seems to be working quite well. So shoe phone direct to the computer. It's interesting because we've had uh, we've had a couple of UK participants that have used the show phone and their audio hasn't been as good as yours. So I'm not sure whether there's, there's some disconnect in the UK in terms of the uh, the internet speeds or these kind of things. But you're coming through loud and clear. In fact, I think there was a comment in the chat recently saying uh, saying that your audio was particularly good, unexpectedly good, I think, based on our, <laughs> our experiences with TalkShoe previously. You've been involved in the Wiki project, and this is another thing I wanted to talk about this evening because the wiki is just a phenomenal resource, and I don't think a lot of our listeners actually know or understand that it's there. Um, can you describe the wiki a little bit? Um, I think the best way to describe the wiki as it stands at the moment is a nice little repository of links and the, and the show notes, and, and it may be that most people still think that that's what it's doing. But one of the strengths of, or the two strengths of, of a wiki service that I think we really are about to lean on or are going to see some explosion in, in soon is that one is that anybody can have an account and, and participate in the content and that's one of the key things. We want to try to get more people putting their pieces of information in there. Um, and I've noticed just recently, for example, that Chris had just done a, an excellent bio on his background. And I think that would be really good for helping to build the community and understanding where each of the listeners and participants has come from. But the second thing about um, a wiki versus your traditional site, your traditional site has either got a heap of pages that you try to cross-link or you just provide a bunch of links and you're taking people straight off the site. There's a discussion that Matt Goodman and I were having a couple of weeks ago, and I think um, we were sort of bouncing off to yourself and Chris as well there, Tom, was trying to turn the wiki into... Um, more of an information repository. I mean, the, the thing about wikis, they always come from a, a knowledge base um, premise. And what we want to try to do is to get the collective knowledge and wisdom of that we've got amongst the model rail radio listeners into a place where people can go, 
probably not as a single source. I mean, there's already more than enough um, uh, chat groups, discussion forums, even individual vendor sites, which have got a richness of insight. But trying to put together a a, a, a richer set of information for the listener so they can come along and say, okay, yes, I'm looking up, for example, like what we were just talking about earlier about T-Track. Okay, I've got a T-Track module. Now, normally you'd go T-Track and you'd go straight off to a T-Track standard. But what we're going to try to do, I think, with the MRR wiki is to have, you hit T-Track and then you'll find links to all the other types of module standards. T-Track may not be your thing, but you may not have known that there is a module standard around HO or double O or I don't know, and Terry will probably be the best one to answer whether or not there's own modules where you can actually wander around with a like, probably a 22-foot-long module, um, <laughs> single one, and plug in and run one loco back and forth on it with one switch. But getting so, so people can actually see the associated content, which will be good. Yeah, the thing that strikes me about the wiki currently is, firstly, I'm using it to, as, you, as you've noted, track topics that we're not covering. But I also, the previous podcast actually that led into this one by my by live recording, I used to use the wiki quite heavily in terms of actually collating pre-show notes, like literally the stuff that I was using to run the show. And certainly up until this episode, I'd been using like a string of paper notes and things. And I just thought this is stupid. So I'm now using the wiki as well for that. And I'd like to see participants and folks who, you know, may not have blogs or these kind of things or may have blogs and want to create some other uh, interlinking of this information to start using the wiki quite uh, quite dynamically. But no, it really is a, a wonderful service. And, and for folks listening in who want to contact Gordon or many of the other participants on Model Rail Radio, I've set up a series of mailing addresses all at modelrailradio.com. And Gordon is Gordon at modelrailradio.com. I think almost all of the regulars now have an at modelrailradio.com. So if you want to continue the discussion, ask some questions about... Uh, about the Australian scene, and as I noted, I think we have uh, we have just uh, well seventeen hundred Australian seventeen well seventeen sixty four uh, according to the last IP count Australian listeners. Uh, so there's quite a community there, and my assumption is because there are only you know a dozen or so uh, centres, regional centres in Australia uh, that are, are interconnecting. So there are probably a good number of listeners that are in your part of the world, Gordon. Uh, and I think there's, there's kind of local nurturing aspect to this as well that the wiki could be used for. Uh, so for folks in, in uh, the kind of Brisbane area or anywhere in Australia or the world over, please feel free to use the wiki as a means of starting to kind of stake your place uh, in the in the world map. And if you want to get together, I know um, Matt Goodman and Stephen Chicago and Clark have been particularly successful seeking out other model rail radio listeners in their particular area, I think this would be a, a very useful thing to use the wiki for as well as a means of kind of tracking the, the regions and the folks that are involved. And certainly what I'd like to see the show being used for as well is a means of, uh, as you've noted, giving regional updates. You know, if, if there are folks in uh, Hong Kong, for example, I mean, there are 372 folks who listen to the show in Hong Kong as of, uh, as of last count. It's a pretty small island. That's enough to, to get folks getting together. And if they have local uh, shelf layouts or if there are local clubs or things like that, you know, the, the people in Hong Kong that are listening to Model Rail Radio, I think would be, be a very interesting uh, listener base. And if we could have maybe one or two of them give, uh, you know, updates, maybe every other show. The other thing is, although we record live, I'm very sympathetic to taking non-live audio recordings or 
um, on location audio recordings. We have uh, Jimmy Simmons uh, in the chat. My hope is they'll call in this evening. Uh, but Jimmy's a local model railroader. His father has a, a substantial layout. Uh, and certainly Jimmy's offered me to go over and interview his father uh, for one of these recordings. So if folks are listening in and we get commentary um, from Europe in particular, if it's the times that we run Model Rail Radio aren't ideal, I mean, please, by all means, propose a time. Uh, but also, if you want to do uh, non-live recording, then uh, feel free to uh, to record some audio and I'll either put it in the mainstream or I'll uh, create a, a special episode uh, for it specifically. But I'm, I'm calling out the people in Sweden and Hong Kong in particular this show uh, because I really would like to hear what you folk modeling. And uh, yeah, please do participate. And maybe the wiki is one of those ways. As you've listened to previous shows, and Terry in particular, I mean, you had a question for Terry with regards to uh, O-scale module. Terry, do you know of an O-scale module standard? Um, I don't know of any standards. I believe the three rail guys do have one, but there are many, many modular, or maybe you call them sectional, but I think modular is correct. There are many, many modular clubs. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have... Um, a video somewhere, and I'll see if I can post a link to uh, an ON3 modular club, which shows up at Springfield just about every year. Very, very impressive, and almost on the uh, the Fremo principle in that the modules flow. There's mm. no, it's not rectangular, it's not rigidly rigidly formatted like that. Clubs, which generally conform to a a rectangular format. Um, of their own choosing with, with track interfaces of their own choosing. And the, um, I'm trying to think of, of what the name of the club is, um, that also shows up at Springfield. They'll come to me eventually. And, uh, um, there are a number of those in O scale. So, uh, O scale modular is not uncommon, but I wouldn't say that it's standardized in the way that N track or even Fremo is. So, Gordon, as it's a luxury to have you on the show, do you have any questions or any topics of discussion you'd like to raise? Uh, I think one of the uh, the bits that I'm struggling with at the moment, uh, which I'm, and I, and I appreciate, especially Terry's and Chris's input when I was asking for advice previously, is I'm still trying to work out DCC versus DC. And I know it's a it's a debate that will get two camps probably starting to lob large missiles across at each other. But while I was down at the show, and, and again, it may be more to do with um, a modular unit that they're trying to put on display down um, in, in a show condition, but there still seems to be an awfully large amount of DC, even on the larger layouts. I did see a whole lot of NCE, uh, ProCab, and a few Digitracks installs around the place. The large point was DCC, and I think it's still... Um, I'm not sure that there's a specific question there. It's just the, the relative benefits and at what point do you move it over um, from a DC layout into a DCC. I have a quick question about the kinds of DCC that's available in Australia. Uh, that's probably one of the things I'm trying to research at the moment. As far as I can tell, just about anything which is available is out there. We've got names, Digitrax, um, NCE, Protad, the Hornby One, Barkman's. Uh, is it easy? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so... They're all there, um, and of course, as soon as you want to start to hit mail order, at the moment with the exchange rate for Australia compared to the rest of the world, you can basically uh, procure and ship anything at a very decent price. So there's nothing we can't get. 
you know, my suggestion, and I think I, I did this in, in answering his responses on the mailing list, is uh, DCC is, you know, really the way to go, and the smaller your layout, the better it is. Um, but failing that, you know, you can prepare for DCC by double-gapping your rails, um, you know, and, and using good wiring practices with consistent color coding that would make switch over to DCC easier in the future. And one other thought I had as Gordon was, uh, was describing the fact that there's still a lot of DC out there. You can get systems, and I believe Lens is one of those, and in fact I know it is since I run a Lens system, uh, that will allow you to run at least one locomotive on address zero that is just a DC locomotive by using uh, pulse stretching. Now, the locomotive sounds like a uh, a real uh, horror because you're getting a lot of pulse width modulation noise out of the locomotive, but you can run it on an otherwise DCC layout. So that's another potential option. And I think I've had the permission um, that Christmas is probably going to deliver me a DCC setup. So I'm taking your advice, Terry, and making sure I'm doing as much as possible in putting down the track at the moment that I wire it correctly. But probably other, the other thing I've got, and it did come out in one of the questions I was talking to one of the displayers at the, the show yesterday, was that while there's the NMRA standard for DCC as it defines on the chip and the way that the loco interacts, where are we at with the um, integration between the various controllers? So if I've gone and put um, uh, NCE chips or a Bachmann chip or a Hornby chip into the loco, do I have the same level of integration with if I've got an NCE ProCab controller or a Lens controller or a Hornby controller? And is it really that open at this point, or is it more of a um, you pick one system and stick with it? No, it's pretty much you have to stick with one system. However, there was some noise quite a while back about NM, uh, NRA. I'm sorry, NMRA. Uh, uh, standardizing a cab bus. I was recently on the Lens website and uh, came across a a notice there that they were working with NCE to try and uh, and uh, come up with interoperability between their throttles. The main problem is that on your cab bus, unlike on your your rail bus, uh, you have different signaling standards, different electrical signaling standards. Lens uses uh, RS-485, and I'm not quite sure what Digitrax uses or NCE uses. Uh, so you're really, you're going to have some really significant compatibility problems. But Lens, for instance, is one of the bigger systems. You can use Lens, you can use Roco, you can use the Atlas Commander, you can use, uh, I think, one or two of the others, a Hornby maybe, I'm not quite sure. But if you check out the Lens website, they show you, you go in there for their ExpressNet, they show you all the, the compatible devices. Uh, NCE can use the older Wangro systems. Uh, Wangro is now out of business, and they, in fact, uh, NCE bought them out. Uh, there are a few companies that make equipment that's compatible with Digitrax. So... Um, you know, I, I may be wrong on this one. I think Lens has the largest um, uh, community of interoperable controllers and boosters and such like for their ExpressNet. But uh, if you if you do some research online, you can find a uh, uh, other people on most of the major 
systems that give you some amount of choice. Like how old policy run out and start to prepare up a comparison sheet and then submit a list to Santa and hopefully he's DCC compatible. The people in your area that are also uh, operating DCC, if you're going to have any issues with uh, that you require support for, probably a good idea or at least consider that if the majority system in your area happens to be LENS or NCE, you might want to uh, to uh, carry on with that for your own system just because if you have an issue, you've got a support base uh, local to you that you can get some some tips and feedback from. Good idea. So, so Tom, I'm probably pretty much done. Um, I've been listening for a while, but I've got some family Jews I've got to run away to. But I'm just noticing that Jimmy's in the call. Um, if it's the right Jimmy, who I was listening to on the um, Scotty Mason show an episode or two back, one of the other areas that we really haven't discussed much on MRR, which I am quite fascinated by, um, Jimmy suggested he was looking into... Uh, I hope it's Jimmy, suggesting looking into a post-apocalyptic railway. Oh, yeah, that was and, me. And, <laughs> and, and I, think, I think you got a bad rap there, Jimmy. I, I was fascinated by the idea. I, got, I was um, too. My, Big thumbs up. My brother-in-law currently wants me to have one of the tripods from War of the Worlds trolling across my, my layout, which I'll probably take into consideration because I've already got a blue police box for a TARDIS to rock up. Um, but it's the... While we still have a lot of focus on the uh, modelling of railways as opposed to like a, just a toy, not, and I don't mean to be derogatory to a toy like a roundy-roundy thing, but where we can take a prototype, so we're taking the, the rule sets and the control and the, the logical layout for a prototypical railway, but put it into a fantasy scene. I know there's one guy floating around on the web that has plugged a lot of his railway and he's got some like the third planet from uh, some solar system, seven galactic parsecs away, maybe not quite that bad. But I did like your idea, Jimmy, and I think that um, taking an existing prototype-based railway and then whacking some form of nuclear or biological holocaust around it and seeing what it comes out like would be quite fascinating. Well, I really think you could do a good job at it if, you know, it's done tasteful, you know. I mean, it's, <laughs> e it's easy just to drop you know, drop a bomb on top of your existing layout and say, hey, there you go. But uh, to really do it right, um, yeah, and I'm still taking a lot of guff for it. So <laughs> actually, my real interest is to, to do some kind of um, a layout that involves either uh, early World War One or even better Civil War type of, um, of modeling Mixed with the railroad is, is really probably the direction I'm going to go if I do a permanent layout. Um, so, Jimmy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Are you able to stay on the call for maybe a couple of hours? Yeah, I'll be on for a while. Okay, so what we might do is we might, uh, well, I'll, I'll welcome you on for a start, Jimmy. You, you did appear on the NMRA uh, meeting show, but it's, it's your first time on the actual live show, so... Welcome aboard. It's an absolute pleasure to have the chance to talk with you today, Gordon. And I think also what you're doing, what time is it currently in Australia? Uh, it's uh, quite happy half past nine on a Sunday morning here. I'm just about to go and get my next coffee, I think. Very good. So, I mean, for folks listening in who are in New Zealand and Australia, perfectly reasonable times to participate. Uh, well, civilised times with the view that we're going to be recording for another four plus hours, no doubt. <laughs> Thank you.
Renee, I'd like to welcome you onto Model Rail Radio. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you were invited on uh, by Matt Goodman, who had two separate angles, one for you to talk about uh, Proto 87 and another for you to talk about your uh, fabrication business. And I think um, to start off with, because we've had a number of questions associated with fabrication specifically, would you like to start talking about that? Well, for me, the, the two topics really go hand in hand. Uh, I can't really talk about Proto 87 without now talking about uh, 3D printing, as I'm calling it. And uh, 3D printing, I guess we could talk about that without talking about Proto 87, but it's going to be hard to stop me from talking about Proto 87 pretty much any time I'm talking about trains. So you'll get what you get. Um, but yeah, I'm delighted to talk about uh, 3D printing. Um, frankly, I think... Uh, I've been telling people at work this, at uh, at my non-rail work, uh, that uh, I think it's like the car back in 1906 for us right now. Everybody's standing around. They know about the technology. Uh, many people have heard of it. Um, they can't quite imagine what it would be like. They're wondering when they'll ever see something that's been 3D printed. But in a couple of years, they're going to be jumping out of the way because there's going to be so much stuff that's 3D printed, and it's going to be part of our every everyday lives. And, just a few years. It is actually amazing. I, it, it's amazing the number of companies that are currently offering it. I have a friend in Australia who's recently been hired by a 3D printing outfit in Australia. And also Wired recently had an article on a fellow who did, uh, who did 3D printing for Z-scale trains. And he got some amazingly detailed pieces out. But as you say, for you, uh, Proto 87 and, uh, and the 3D printing are intertwined. How did you get into Proto 87? Well, um, <laughs> there's actually a, a backstory there that goes back uh, almost 20 years for me. Uh, I started on uh, Proto 87 because I was actually trying to convert uh, one of the old Bachman 440s, this is before the days of Spectrum and before the days of anything nice, uh, into something that would work well for the, the particular prototype that I was modeling. And I got pretty much done. In fact, I was uh, at the paint stage, and it was right at the start of the... Uh, the days of the acrylic paints, and uh, the paint went on badly, uh, and I had to strip it all, which caused the whole thing to basically fall apart in the end of the whole project. But over the course of that project, I decided that it would be easier to build a 440 from scratch. And uh, once you're building a 440 from scratch, you may as well then um, uh, build it properly, uh, because you want it to last for the rest of your life. And I was a young guy at the time. You want it to still be a, a good model in 20 or 40 or 60 years. I was looking at a 60-year time frame at the time. Not so much anymore, but I was at the time. And uh, and so I cast about. It was uh, We had Northwest Shortline Code 72 wheels at the time. Um, that sort of raised a question for me about, uh, well, uh, if they're not quite scale, then what is scale? So I went and got the... Uh, got my copy of one of the Simmons Boardman's books and looked it up and found out that scale wheels are five and a half inches wide, and lo and behold, we were running code 110 for most people at the time, which uh, scales out to something like uh, 10 or 11 inches wide. Um, and, uh, you know, I just decided, well, let's uh, see if it, this is even possible. That summer uh, was uh, the NMRA convention in Portland, and I attended a an interesting talk by Jim Harper of Proto 48 fame uh, about detailed track. And if you are your sort of typical model railroader, you've never really thought about your track, really. You think about the 
run on the track, but you don't necessarily think about the track. And he showed some slides that were just absolutely eye-opening for, I think, everyone in the room. The things that he was doing back in 94 with uh, all of the details, you know, um, all the spikes and tie plates and nice wood ties and joint bars and rail braces through his turnouts. Uh, it was just absolutely gorgeous stuff. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that came up in that talk was, uh, well, he was modeling in uh, 1 to 48 scale, and a number of us in the room were interested in 1 to 87. So um, we didn't know if it was possible. Uh, but I said, well, I'll uh, put together a little newsletter and see if we can uh, make something of this. And uh, gathered, I don't know, a half a dozen people that were interested in subscribing, and a few more joined in over the next year or so. And I produced a few issues of that, and you can find them on my website uh, if you dig deep enough. Um, and uh, sort of uh, we got a little bit of traction, and there we go. That was Proto 87, 1994. Renee, my name is Chris Abbott. I'm occasional co-host on the show here. How have you found the response from the commercial vendors in making things that are compatible with Proto 87's tighter tolerances? Well, see, now here's the thing. Um, Proto 87 really only means, uh, really means, aside from a sort of ethos around the whole uh, modeling the prototype philosophy, uh, you know, uh, and post-apocalyptic scenarios notwithstanding, it it means uh, really just about wheels and track. Um, a lot of people throw couplers in there, but they're not required for Proto 87. All the, all that we're really talking about is wheels and track. So uh, we have had quite good response from manufacturers on wheels. Um, today we have, I think, three manufacturers that do wheels. One in North America, um, that's Northwest Short Line. And uh, there's uh, one in, um, I'm sorry, two in North America, uh, Railflyer prototype models, uh, Northwest Short Line, and one in uh, the Netherlands, that's uh, Dave Doe. And there are a couple of others that are non-English language speaking, which are harder for me to really uh, get my handles, handle on. Um, but that's, uh, so freight cars, passenger cars, and diesel locomotives, all very straightforward, very easy to modify to Proto 87. Uh, the challenge has really been steam engines. Uh, we have, as far as I know, only one manufacturer who makes um, steam engine wheels. They're a little bit pricey. They come out of uh, Switzerland and sort of um, very well-engineered wheels, but they are sort of Swiss prices. And so, I'm sorry, is, is the Proto 87 stores, do they, do they uh, act as a, as a uh, clearinghouse for these uh, international components, or do you still have to order from, direct from the manufacturers? Uh, they are not selling the, one, the Swiss ones yet. Um, he, I don't know if he'll pick them up. Um, he does a good job of stocking the Northwest Short Line. And I don't know if he's uh, been working with Dave Doe at all, but um, DD Wheelwrights doesn't really have anything that we could, couldn't get from uh, Northwest Short Line anyway. So you're right. Proto 87 Stores is an excellent location for getting pretty much everything Proto 87, with the exception right now of these uh, steam locomotive drivers. You find a lot uh, of people. The other, the other half of the equation is, of course, track. Um, and in HO scale, we're in pretty good shape there, actually, because 
uh, versus um, many of the others. Uh, O-scale, Proto 48, for example, they're dealing with a different track gauge. Uh, the four millimeter people in England uh, were dealing again with the wrong track gauge when they were modeling an OO scale, uh, whereas an HO scale, the track gauge is at least right. So you can actually use uh, flex track. You have to be a bit judicious about uh, watching the gauge because the gauge on some of the commercial flex track um, sort of wanders all over the place. Um, but if you're careful about it, you can use plain old flex track for plain track. And there's a couple of uh, alternatives for, well, there's one re alternative for ready-made turnouts, and there's another alternative for um, uh, for turnout kits. There are two tur uh, turnout kit alternatives, one from Proto 87 stores themselves, and also um, yeah, the chaps that make the jigs fast tracks. Also, we'll do, uh, we'll do a jig to Proto 87 standards if you ask them nicely. <laughs> uh, my understanding is that Tim is pretty accommodating for stuff like that over at Fast Track. So um, yeah. there was a question from the chat list uh, uh, regarding the scale four wheels in England. Um, a lot of their uh, P4S4 wheels were made to finer standards. Are any of those useful to uh, to the Proto 87 guys because of uh, uh, steam engine uh, applications or even some of the... Uh, the rolling stock? Certainly. Uh, that's actually uh, a good portion of uh, the steam engines that have been converted have been converted with P4 wheels either turned down or used straight out of the box or out of the packet. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, that's what I did for my own steam engine. And do you find that most people who are involved in Pro-87 are, are in the uh, early diesel rather than the steam engine phase of things, or uh, is there a transitionary group that's, that's pretty strong? It's hard to say. Certainly everyone is uh, running off on their own direction as far as prototype is concerned. Um, they, and I'd say internationally the, the uh, transition or even straight steam era is strongest. Perhaps in North America you'd point more towards the diesel era. Now, comes, coming to uh, why Proto 87 and uh, stereo printing kind of uh, fall hand in hand here. Uh, one so of the here's, here's what, what it is about Proto 87 people and, and why, you know, I, I sort of threw that away, but uh, many of us are sort of walking out on our own, in our own direction. Proto 87 is um, it's the sort of thing that you do if you're really interested in the prototype. And we're all, um, many of us are modeling somewhat esoteric prototypes. Uh, so, for example, I modeled the Canada Atlantic Railway, which probably one or two listeners have ever even heard of. Um, and for me, that means that there's a lot of scratch building. Um, in fact, I was sort of looking um, at what I was doing a couple of years ago uh, I wanted to build some flat cars because, you know, actually I've never built a flat car. And uh, it's supposed to be the first kind of car you build, but I've never built one yet. And uh, the first step that I had to do was I had to build some trucks, which were, uh, the Canada Atlantic had sort of signature trucks. And at the time, the way I was building my trucks was I was uh, etching the side frames, and then each side frame got bent about 17 times. 
and soldered with uh, some bearings, and then I'd build up the uh, the bolster, the truck bolster, and then cast the journals and glue them in. And um, basically, it was a good two weeks worth of evenings to build a pair of trucks. That's a bit of a cramp on your style. Well, yeah, you're looking at well, I want a I want a little fleet of cars, and if you're if the first thing you have to do is build the trucks, it really slows you down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was looking around for other technologies that might be useful or other approaches to building trucks. I came across eMachineShop.com, uh, which has been around for probably five or six years now, and uh, they will do injection molding for pretty reasonable prices. Um, and so I started playing around with that and seeing if I could do it that way. And then I came across um, uh, 3D printing and learned about Shapeways and Ponico, which are a couple of very well-developed services in 3D printing. And so now the way I'm doing my trucks is I, I skipped right over the injection molding because that was going to be a big capital outlay for uh, the pieces that I wanted. And I'm, I've gone straight to 3D printing each of my trucks, and I'm very happy with the results so far. What's your total run size do you expect on the trucks? Uh, 20 sets, 40 sets? I'm printing them as I need them. Well, I'm uh, just so thinking a cost. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is the, the deal. You know, 3D printing uh, is you know, otherwise known as a rapid prototype technology. It's really made for a run size of one. So... Well, I'm just looking at it from a, from the economy of scale thing. If you wanted a thousand sets of trucks, then it would be cheaper to go ahead and do the injection molding um, on a cost per truck basis. If you if you want 20 sets, then yes, uh, printing them individually probably uh, total cost of ownership is going to be much less. But yeah, I was just wondering. You might be nearly right on the the break point there. It might be in the thousand or more range, and you know. That's more than enough to do all of the Canada Atlantic modelers worldwide ten times over. Yeah, yeah, it's not feasible for for your particular prototype. Exactly. So uh, rapid prototyping is exactly the right sort of technology for me uh, for producing these trucks. And, and they're they're definitely unique. They're not a standard arch bar. They're not an Andrew style. Well, unique. Um, they're not really unique. The Grand Trunk had some. The Dominion Atlantic had some. You know, if you look under enough pre-1910 cars, you'll find some of them. But there's not all that many of us modeling pre-1910 either. Mm-hmm. So maybe I would have been able to sell a 1,000 worldwide, but I didn't really want to take the, uh, the risk on the capital to put into it. And this is a hobby for me. I don't want to become a, a model train manufacturer. So I don't really want to be selling trucks to other people. I'm, it's a hobby. I want my own trucks. Yeah, yeah. It, should, it would sure kill the fun pretty quick uh, running a business. So in terms of the something like the passenger car that you put together, uh, what uh, prompted you? Was there nothing at all that was available commercially? And none of the passenger cars that were available in HO could be modified or uh, bashed into an appropriate representation of the cars you wanted? Well, um, so the thing about the Canadian passenger cars, and many passenger cars of that era, is that the ends are droopy. The roof ends droop. 
and the the way that you would build that if you were building it is you'd get a block of something, probably wood for me, and you'd carve it, and you'd have some templates that you held up against it, and you'd carve it some more, and you'd sand it and carve it and sand it and carve it, and then you'd add on some bits to accommodate the the piece of the clear story where it goes in. And you'd sand and carve some more, and eventually you'd have something that looked pretty good, and then you'd cast it and make a couple of them. That's actually what... Uh, there was a very nice passenger car at the uh, NMRA contest this year that won second place, and that's exactly how he did it. Same sort of ends as an S-scale car, Jackson and Sharp prototype. I don't remember exactly what it was. But, you know, it's, again, if you want to have a little fleet of these things, uh, I guess now he's got a casting or he's got a mold so he can make as many as he wants. But, uh, again, I was looking around for another way to do that. I thought about, well, what about, um, what about printing that? So I, uh, I started experimenting with Google SketchUp, found I could make the design pretty easily. And if, you know, if you're scratch building anything, then you, you think about things like how you're going to separate the colors when you go and paint it, and also how you're going to make a robust model so that it doesn't flex in the wrong places and so it doesn't uh, show gaps in the wrong places. And one of the things that I decided was I didn't want the the letter board where it extends over the end platforms, I didn't want that to be um, delicate. So I uh, designed that as part of the roof. And so then I had the color separation was going to be at the top of the letter board. I'd have to mask that anyway, so I may as well carry on and just 3D print the whole thing. That's exactly what I did. Mm -hmm. And how did you find... Uh, I've, I've been looking at your blog uh, over the last couple of days, and I noticed that you had quite a learning curve to uh, to get around in order to make use of the, the freely available tools anyway, especially uh, SketchUp, uh, in order to get the final result. Um, have you changed your tool set from SketchUp to something else? Uh, I'm still using SketchUp. Um, I uh, learned about a couple of other tools uh, over the last few months, and I might try one of those. But frankly, I find SketchUp is, uh, you know, is free, which is a great price point for me. And uh, I can do most of what I want to do. Um, uh, there's times when it's less efficient than I might like, but uh, it's uh, a remarkable tool that's there for free. And, uh, you know, I can't say enough about it, enough good about it. It took me about uh, two, three hours to learn how to use the tool itself, just the tool. And uh, there, are, there are things that I learned subsequently. Um, but to get started with it, it took me two or three hours of listening to their tutorials and playing around. And then I was away to the races. You look at pretty much any other 3D or any other CAD tool in general, and the the learning curve is way uh, way longer than that. Uh, yes, yes, I, I would say you are absolutely correct in that in that assessment. Is there anything you found that that really doesn't uh, that's a real pain to make any elements of the car that were uh, excessively difficult to to construct? I mean the the clerestory roof is a, is a very complex shape in and of itself, but is there something that uh, was a real bugbear for you? Uh, that, on, the, on the passenger car, the place I started was, or my first mistake was doing it 
an HO scale. So SketchUp has really made, I think, the reason Google has made it is uh, to encourage people to contribute to um, the, uh, their Google uh, world, what's it called? Google Earth, uh, so to contribute models into that. And, uh, and so it's made for one-to-one -one scale. It doesn't really deal well with uh, the subatomic sizes that we're playing with in HO scale modeling. And, uh, and so there were a number of artifacts introduced from that. Well, so my next models were not in HO scale. They were built uh, full scale, and then I scaled them down using AcroChance later on. The, um, uh, so that's one thing that SketchUp doesn't do well. The other thing that I, uh, I don't know how to do in SketchUp yet is any sort of an organic shape. Uh, so, you know, if you wanted to make a model of a person or um, if, even if I wanted to take uh, my ore car, say, um, and, um, and, that, and make it so it was bent in some way, that would be hard to do in SketchUp. Right. It really lends itself to architectural and mechanical things, though. Exactly, which uh, that's exactly what I want to build. Okay. Now the que there's a question from, uh, from the chat from uh, Gordon in Australia. Uh, how does the scaling in Accutrans affect uh, the vi viability of some of the parts that you're making? I recall uh, reading uh, one of your posts about uh, minimum wall thickness being a problem on some of these uh, some of these parts. Yeah, yeah. So um, you just have to think about it, stick ahead, <laughs> mm -hmm. how it affects it. Um, so in the current top of the line technology that I'm using, um, or the that the service provider provides me, which is I'm mostly using Shapeways, although I've also tried out Ponico as well um, because they're Similarly interesting. Um, their minimum wall thickness is 0 0.7 millimeters, and that scales out to 2.41 mumble mumble uh, inches. So I just make sure that everything is over 2.45 inches thick, and when it comes out as Vacutrans, then it's going to be 0 0.7 or greater. Fantastic. It does. It does mean that if I want to scale the model to another size, it's a totally, uh, it's not quite a new model, but there's a bunch of work to make sure that everything is um, is uh, going to print properly and is going to survive shipping. So, for example, um, I've just received from, uh, from Shapeways this week my ore car, which I'd hoped to have in Sacramento to show there, but it uh, didn't pan out that way. And... Uh, a friend of mine wants the same ore car in N scale, and for me to do that, I'll have to go and modify some of the elements so they're over three inches thick versus two point four. Uh, with the with these uh, trucks being printed resin or some kind of uh, um, deposition material, how do you find them for uh, robustness? They're they're not fragile. You how do you fit the uh, the axles in, are they all one piece, or you've got several pieces and you put the axles in and it, you don't have to bend anything to, uh, to fit it? Do they last? Uh, certainly the first set that I got done was uh, sufficiently 
um, flexible that I could get my um, my axles in no problem. Um, I haven't had uh, more done since then. I anticipate that they'll all work just fine. Uh, one thing that I don't know about yet is how they're going to wear. I don't know what happens over the long term, but they're, they weren't all that expensive. So if they wear out, then I'll just replace them, and it'll be a lot cheaper than me spending two weeks of my spare time producing brass trucks. Hey, Renee, this is, uh, this is Terry Terrence. How are you? Very well, Terry. Thanks. Um, I looked at the picture you just posted uh, of the uh, ore car, and it looks to me like you're using uh, stereolithography. Um, is that correct? And if you would, for the listeners, uh, explain the process of stereolithography, and then maybe we can explore some of the other alternative uh, technologies. Uh, stereolithography, uh, no, I'm no expert on it, but I'll explain it as well as I can, which probably came almost entirely from a Wikipedia article, to be brutally honest. Um, basically, what you have is a, a vat of resin, um, and you and there's a, a build platform uh, in that vat of resin. And what they do is they lower that build platform so it's just below the surface of the, of the resin. And then they shine a, a laser on it, um, much like a laser printer, and cure parts of that resin. Then they'll lower the build platform and that first layer and shine the laser on it again and cure another layer of the resin and so on. And they'll keep on lowering the platform. So basically what they do is they, they cure resin uh, in layers uh, and thereby produce your shape. It's, if you think about... You know, another way that you could do this is you could take layers of cardboard and cut them out meticulously and then glue them all together and you'd have whatever you, is you wanted. But instead, what they've done is they've used layers of resin. And that's as good as I can get as a, for a description of this, um, this technology. Yeah, that's, that's actually quite perfect. Um, stereolithography, um, we use stereolithography, fused deposition modeling, which is really what a lot of people call 3D printing uh, at work. So I'm, I'm familiar with, with all the processes. Stereolithography has the best surface finish, especially if you arrange your inclined surfaces in the right direction as they print out the model so that you don't get a stair-step effect in there. So have you been, I guess you have been, but have you been happy with the surface finish you've been able to get from stereolithography and if uh, how much post-processing do you have to do to the models? Yeah, my experience is that it comes out kind of looking like a wood grain. Um, so there is a, a little bit of grain that I have to sand off, uh, but compared to the alternatives, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, the, the very... The newest, like this ore car that I just posted, for example, the, the newest uh, machines uh, seem to have a much better surface finish. It remains to be seen, because I haven't painted it yet, whether that um, there, you can feel that there's a little bit of a sort of wood grainy kind of feel to it. Whether that's going to disappear under paint or not, I don't know yet. Um, when I printed the latest version of my trucks, which was the same technology, uh, you could not make that out after painting. 
but whether the same is going to hold true over the much larger surface areas on the uh, on the ore car, I don't know. But in, in okay. any case, I don't think that it's a big deal. I'll go in there with a sort of a flexible piece of sandpaper and and just buff out all the bits that are supposed to be smooth and make sure that they are smooth. Yeah, I, I think you'll be you'll be quite happy. We printed uh, we painted some uh, some models that we did at work, which have, of course nothing to do with model railroading. We painted them, but just by coincidence with uh, Tester's Model Master Flat Black, and the uh, the surface finish was was quite acceptable, even by modeling standards, by model railroading standards. So I think you're going to be you're going to be okay. But the um, the key thing is there are, are competing technologies. One of which is fused deposition modeling, um, which produces a uh, a much more um, rigid. Uh, ridge-like surface finish, which uh, we produce models like that for work, and I, I wouldn't consider them uh, for models in O scale, much less in, uh, in HO or smaller. Um, and there are a couple of consumer machines you can get that do FDM. Uh, one is RepRap and the other is MakerBot. But they're not ready quite for the modeling, uh, modeling prime time, in, in my opinion. I, so, there. But I'm kind of wondering if there is a place for them in sort of scenery modeling or something like that. Like, can you print a tree using a RepRap machine? I would think not. I think you're going to get caught by the same uh, minimum step size uh, that, that gives you the poor surface finish. But I think you're correct. For a background model, for a surface which is already rough, say stone or brick, um, I think the, uh, the ridged... Uh, the uh, appearance of a FDM model would be quite acceptable. And, and FDM appears to be the first technology that's going to make it to everyone's desktops. I think Hewlett-Packard just bought into the technology and they're selling a rebranded uh, Spectrum machine. Uh, it's still very, very expensive. So while we're talking about expense, um, can you share with us, say, what printing a truck side frame in HO or P87 to be more precise, or this ore car uh, costs you. Um, I, I believe doing SLAs is a straight time and material, um, machine time and material proposition. Well, for, uh, yeah, you're right for most uh, providers, and that's actually one of the things that attracts me to both Ponico and Shapeways. Um, so with both of those, they, uh, I don't know if it's exactly true, but they, uh, apparently priced based on volume of material that they ship to you. So that means that all of your supporting material, uh, so you remember our, our uh, stereolithography machine is working in layers, and uh, you have supporting material, which is still liquid or gelatinous probably, material that is, in, uh, that is left over and you haven't cured. Uh, they don't charge you for that because they reuse it. So in... Um, that's why I'm using Shapeways and Ponico because they don't charge for machine time. They they charge for material, but they ship to me, which is just great because most of the things that I'm building are empty or hollow. Um, so the ore car uh, was about uh, $35 to build, and the uh, trucks are about $7, and they're top-of-the-line um, frosted ultra-detail. And actually, they have another material which they call frosted detail, which is just the same, but it's a, um, a larger step size. 
and I think actually it would be fine for underneath the car. You, very hard to see those steps anyway, and it, they, they would hardly show up in the, in the shadows beneath the car. And those ones cost uh, $4 for the cheap version and $7 for the nice version. Uh, but they, they're a single piece. They're not a side frame. They're the whole, the whole truck, including the bolster and, in fact, the spring platform and the springs. And, the, um, and they also include the brake beams, which are outside hung. And I'll post a picture of them on the, uh, on the chat when I'm uh, finished talking. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. And, and one other thing we probably ought to point out to listeners is uh, you can create connected parts. You can create um, parts that are retained or trapped within another part with uh, the SLA process. Uh, in fact, SLA can do surfaces and uh, shapes that can't be done by any other any other technology. So it's right. it's it's flexible. That's right. So, for example, on the ore car that I produced, I can't think of another way to produce a, a single piece ore car. You know, you picture it; it's sort of like the uh, the old model die casting car, or you know, one of the Great Lakes uh, ore cars or ore jinnies, and it's. Uh, it's got side frames, and it's got girders here, girders there. It's got slope sheet braces. It's got, um, you know, lots and lots of voids. I even actually printed in the brake um, cylinder and brake reservoir, as well as the train line and the connections of the train line to the uh, the reservoir and then onto the cylinder. And I think the next time I print it, I'm going to include the uh, much of the brake rigging, believers at least, and they're just sort of pieces that are hanging out there. Same thing with the truck. You know, the the truck. I've supported the um, the brake beams, which are again outside hung brake beams. I've tr uh, printed them contiguous with the rest of the truck, and it, it's conceivable that you could do that through, I don't know, a um, a uh, injection molding, but it would be about a 15-part mold and would be very, very expensive to do. So yeah, so what you're really saying, Renee, is you can print the car effectively fully assembled, ready for yeah. paint and decals and couplers. That's right. And and that's something, as you point out, if it could be done at all in an injection molding, and I doubt it, it will be such a complex injected injection molding that I can't imagine what each car would cost. But... Um, yeah, you you basically have laid out exact or played exactly to the strengths of uh, of stereolithography uh, in that you can create all these surfaces surfaces on the underside without uh, just as a straightforward manner without any additional complication. Exactly, exactly right. So where where are you likely to go from this ore car? Now the ore car has the advantage of uh, of having most surfaces open to the outside so that, as you say, the supporting material, and let's, let's uh, talk about the supporting material, when you have an undercut or a, uh, something that sticks out into space, the uh, SLA has to um, support that while the, while the layer is being built up. As a matter of fact, you even have things which are disconnected initially and then get connected in subsequent layers, like something that, that turns back on itself. And so they, they have a support material that the machine uh, p 
puts uh, underneath those those projections. Um, but are you considering uh, things like a box car or a covered hopper or tank car? I guess would be would be excellent, where you have a fully enclosed volume, which will create some additional issues with SLA, but not necessarily be uh, 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 you know a showstopper. Um, well, I have no plans uh, to do anything other than another ore car right now. Uh, this ore car, the first ore car that I did is actually for a friend. Again, uh, let me just reiterate, I don't want to be a model train manufacturer. I want to be a modeler. Uh, so this mm-hmm. one's going to run on a friend's layout. He happens to be modeling the uh, southeast corner of British Columbia. And uh, these, there were about 100 of these r- rattling around uh, that area at the time that he's modeling, so uh, he needs some. Um, and there are another couple of hundred of another variety, and I plan to do those ones as well. Um, but for my own modeling for the Canada Atlantic, uh, you broached an interesting question about a boxcar. The, the CA boxcars had the um, had a, an interesting, uh, although not uncommon, feature in that era uh, in the siding, where they had a, a wide um, siding material with a, a central bead routed into it, and it on the on the finished car, it looks like a uh, it looks like narrow siding, but every other gap is deeper than um, than so it's got goes so so shallow gap, deep gap, shallow gap, deep gap, and so on down the side of the car. It's pretty distinctive and something that I'd like to be able to model. You can't go to um, Evergreen and buy a sheet of that sort of uh, shape, and so it's something that I might um, I might print or I might uh, find some other way to get it. But in any case, a, a box car doesn't present to me any particular problem because I I wouldn't print it as an enclosed shape anyway because I want to put the weight inside. Um, so a boxcar, I'd print the um, the superstructure and the underframe as two separate pieces, and then I'd um, ha- add weight afterwards. For a tank car, uh, probably I'd do something similar. Uh, minimally, I'd hide some holes in the bottom so that the support material could come out and Shapeways and Ponico then wouldn't charge me for it. Uh, but I'd probably also print it uh, so that it broke somewhere, like uh, underneath the running boards, and um, and add weight inside the car there. Yeah, that that's a good point about the weight, Renee. Although uh, maybe maybe your support material would be sufficient weight, but I'm not suggesting that. But uh, let me uh, let me ask you: How many hours does it take to? Uh, to do a car like this in SketchUp, I mean, or do you consider yourself now a SketchUp wizard? No, I don't think I'm a SketchUp wizard. I don't know how to make a screw in SketchUp, for example. I know it can be done, but I, I can't figure it out. Um, the sketch, the ore car, I was finished the basic shape in about a day. Uh, we took a, my wife and I and my kids took a cruise, and um, I spent probably six hours and got the basic shape of it together, and I probably threw another ten hours into it after that to um, add all the details and all the rivets and so on. 
maybe I'm in for 20 hours so far. Um, I see. Which, I see. You know, pretty cheap compared to actually what it would take me to build it from uh, individual pieces of, say, styrene. And uh, the great thing is I can have as many of them as I want. And they all come out exactly the same uh, and don't you know, cause me any more grief. Yeah. Um, I'd like to, uh, to interject here that uh, I knew a guy who had a connection at uh, one of the local colleges which had a SLA machine that was uh, very underutilized and they were happy to have uh, someone come in and, and give them projects to do so. For all the listeners out there, you may want to check with your local, uh, local college or university or especially if you're an alumnus and uh, you may be able to get some uh, free or very, very low-cost time on one of their machines, which could make uh, SLAs a very, very uh, cost-effective way of, of doing models. Absolutely. Although, like I say, I, I don't think that $35 for an ore car is out of, out of, uh, out of any sort of a... Uh, it's expensive, really. It, it requires... Uh, you know, it's a almost completed model the way it is. Yes, easy. yes. Well, that that's that's where we were a, a little while ago. So uh, yeah, but I mean, if 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 a modeler has to do a whole fleet of these, uh, very large fleet, say for a conventional coal hauling uh, railroad, then uh, you know it it would probably start to get expensive. It's it's just an alternative. Since I knew someone who uh, who was able to make use of this. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, there there is uh, there are certainly machines that are available right now. Um, you could go and spend about ten thousand dollars on a machine, and you could get a desktop machine today. There was a uh, announcement back in April about uh, a company that's starting in Austria that it anticipates an SLA machine that's going to be about twelve hundred euros. Very small. It would probably be able to print an N-scale car, but not an HO-scale car. Um, and both of those could get on the desktop. Um, myself, I don't think that I'm even going to spend 1,200 euros on a machine because the technology is moving so fast. You know, I could spend 1,200 euros on a machine next year, say, and in two or three years, that machine will be sort of yesterday's news, and there'll be a far better machine. It'll be like investing in digital cameras. So well, but as a modeler, I don't think that it's uh, a, a great way to go. If there happens to be an underutilized machine around you, then by all means, go and take advantage of it. It's, again, it's a difficult thing to convey uh, without uh, pictures, uh, some of the things that uh, Renee's talking about here. But, uh, I mean, anybody who's done some scratch building will appreciate the the physical effort of trying to design something in their head and then making the pieces fit that uh, that image. Um, suffice it to say that uh, what Renee is doing here is to to eliminate the saw cutting and filing and go right to the finished product uh, once all the uh, the hard work is done at the CAD level. And uh, it looks like the finishing, um, the layering or jaggies that you'd get uh, for the finishing. Uh, are manageable either with a, like a filling primer, uh, surfacing primer, and uh, a bit of sanding. Um, and again, it's going to depend on the orientation of the print. Uh, if the top level 
uh, of the print is the finished surface of your your part, then it should be nice and flat. Uh, really, it's just going to be around the the curves and edges where you're going to notice some uh, some jaggy parts. Is that correct, Renee? Yep, that's exactly right. Curves and uh, and uh, diagonals tend to get uh, jaggier than the flats. Uh, having said that, I find that I need uh, so far I've always needed to sand pretty much all of the surfaces uh, at least a little bit. Um, very fine. You're using a very fine uh, uh, paper, uh, like 600 or something. Yep, yeah, exactly. Probably 400. I tend to use that a lot. <clears throat> do you sand? Do you sand this material wet or do you do it dry? Dry. Okay. I haven't tried wet. That's a good idea. I should try that next time. <laughs> Uh, my, under, my understanding is you can get a better finish on the uh, on the wet sanding. Um, uh, there's a guy I work with. He used to do a lot of body work for automotive, and he said it was always better to wet sand uh, to get a nicer, smoother finish. Uh, it looks uh, like one uh, of the great advantages of being a model railroader is you want everything to be flat anyway. I mean, that is not glossy, so mm-hmm. you don't need as quite as high a finish as you would if you wanted a glossy. Well, not even on the passenger cars. I mean, they kept those pretty, uh, pretty shiny. Uh, the varnish, as they were referred to. Yeah, mine, mine is uh, not very shiny. I, I'd say it's, um, you know, generally I feel that shine is uh, something that you want to not quite avoid, but uh, not steer toward either. Uh, I think uh, I think Terry and uh, Tom have a, have a couple questions for you more, but I had one. Uh, one question, and uh, it's related to uh, contests. I know that a few years ago there was a big, uh, a big hassle with uh, contest entries in MRA. People were complaining about uh, photographs being digitally retouched um, to represent. Uh, it wasn't truly reflective of uh, the skill of a photographer. Was the argument I think, and uh, people were able to edit out uh, mistakes and. Uh, and uh, blemishes in the photograph digitally. Are you experiencing uh, any sort of um, hmm, uh, odd comments using the uh, when you're entering these in contests uh, compared well, to a typical scratch-built model? Um, well, you know, I I entered my uh, my passenger car in the contest in Sacramento mostly because I think this is something that the NMRA and uh, and contests in general have to think about. Uh, is, there's a philosophical question here, and we need to. Well, I don't need to. Nothing that needs to happen in model railroading, but we should think about whether this counts as scratch building or not. And it's really interesting. The um, after the contest and in the contest, my my car uh, did very well in all, all of the categories except for construction. And if you're not familiar with the way the NMRA contest works, it, it's scored on, uh, I think, six categories. I probably have the form here somewhere. Um, yeah, it's scored against construction, detail, conformity, finish lettering, and weather and scratch building. Right, that's five. So it scored well on detail, conformity, finish and lettering, and whether it was scratch built or not. But on the construction side, the judges uh, gave me a little bit better than half marks and indicated that they had reduced the complexity uh, by computer-made parts. Uh, yeah, but you made so, the computer models to make those parts. Yeah, uh, you know, and I'm not going to really argue with them. I, I think that this is exactly the question that I wanted to ask, ask 
uh, that I was asking with the model is, does this actually count as scratch building? And uh, what happens with the, with the construction? And in many ways, I have to agree with them. You know, it's a lot easier for me to uh, get the, the, all of the parts on straight without any glue uh, showing or, you know, gaps or anything if I make it by SLA than if I put them all together one piece at a time. It's much, much easier. So it's actually probably right if you think about it only from a, you know, the old-fashioned way to build models. Um, but there is quite a lot of complexity uh, in the ends. You know, building the ends of the of the roof that was that was a complex business to get that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's not the sort of um, uh, it's not a, a traditional sort of construction method, and so that the complexity isn't traditional sort of complexity. Well, um, perhaps perhaps they should include a category that deals with uh, with the technical technical expertise for for the building of a model um you know i you know it's it's a contest it's not really important in the grand scheme of things um since then i've actually also had a discussion on the ap chat list the achievement program chat list about how we should be judging models that are done through these technologies and this is one technology but there's many other technologies that start out in a computer and end up in a in a finished part or a finished model even, and we should be thinking about how we value those models or whether we value those models the same as one that's been painstakingly put together one piece at a time. And um, <laughs> they had an interesting take on it, which is uh, the if, if you uh, produce the drawing, uh, produce the computer model of the thing that you want, and then you upload it to your own SLA printer, and you babysit that SLA printer, and out pops the finished product at the end. Then it counts as a scratch-built thing. If, on the other hand, you uh, outsource the printing part of that, so you upload it to a service, which is actually what I did, and then um, they do the, uh, you know, they load it onto their machine and it chugs away and comes back and they um, get as much of the support material off as they can and they put it in a box and send it back to me. Um, if they if they are in any way involved, then it's actually a commercial part and doesn't count towards scratch building. Uh, so are we going to have to make our own wood veneers and roll our own styrene? Uh, yeah in order to use those in models now? Oh, no, those are specifically excluded in the AP. <laughs> I don't see the difference. Yeah. It, you know, it, uh, for me, that's a pretty arbitrary difference. And as the price of these machines comes down, it's only a matter of time before I have a very, very capable SLA machine in my house or at least available at my office. Well, not my yeah. office, but I could change jobs and I'd have a, an SLA machine. And well, I won't... I won't I won't belabor the point, but uh, the other guys have questions, and I'd like to thank you uh, for uh, for taking the time to call in tonight and share this info with us. But uh, my pleasure. Uh, it's very exciting. Please stay on and uh, and uh, feel free to contribute in any way, shape, or form. Hey, Renee, this is uh, this is Terry again. 
I know you mentioned you didn't want to be a model railroad uh, manufacturer, but there are communities where people share their designs so that other people can have them built. And in fact, a few of the um, the service bureaus that provide the printing service also provide that service where uh, someone can upload their uh, their uh, design for other people to order. So would you consider sharing any, any of your designs? Yeah, I, uh, I do consider it and I have. Uh, you can go to Shapeways and you can get uh, my trucks printed and uh, someone wanted the trucks in S-scale so I resized them to S-scale and uploaded them and uh, yeah, I'm totally happy with that. Um, for me, it's a, a great way to share the design and um, I so far, I haven't made any money on it, but you know, if I did, that would be—I wouldn't—I uh, wouldn't cry about it. <laughs> it's not that I—I <laughs> I don't want to be a model train manufacturer. I just don't want that to be the focus of my life. And you know, if I came home every night and there was an order that I had to fulfill, that sounds like something that I don't want to spend my spare time on. Und- understood. So I'm going to uh, punt it off to Tom now, and I think he has a number of questions. Yes, I mean, uh, taking two topics that have already been raised, I was looking at, uh, at Google SketchUp with regards to the uh, ability to create a, a post-apocalyptic SD90 with, you know, skulls on the front and spikes and various other things. In, in terms of, I mean, I'm, many, many jobs ago, I worked at a, a VR installation and we would frequently get uh, high-detail models in of a wide variety of things that we had to pay for up front and I know that a lot of this information is now considered particularly by some of the smaller uh, manufacturers to be quite uh, proprietary uh, in terms of 3D models. Do you foresee a stage in the, um, I guess what we're calling the kind of open model rail community uh, where uh, one can literally just uh, pull up a a SD90, start dragging and dropping in uh, various, uh, you know, air unit configurations and uh, Change a, a wide variety of things and then send it off to a printer. I mean, you seem to you seem to indicate that the sky's the limit uh, currently. But what kind of obstacles do you see in terms of actually making these uh, plans uh, easily accessible? Uh, that's a good question. I think it uh, comes down to uh, people that want to put the work in and then share it freely. Um, and there's you know if you look at the the various open source source communities in the world. Uh, those people certainly exist, and uh, so you can imagine it. Uh, for myself, I have so far not produced anything that I think you could uh, share in the same way, but one of the things that I anticipate I will do is I'll produce some, uh, unless someone else gets there first, I might produce some um, air brake components, say. So, for example, the cylinder and reservoir. If I could produce those or get a really nice uh, design for those, then I'd surely share those freely, and anyone can then get a nice one on their car. So I don't. Very good. There's nothing stopping us. Yes, I I agree entirely. I agree entirely. Well, Renee, I want to echo what uh, Chris has said. There's an additional spin that I like to put on it. Once you've been on once, uh, you feel free. You 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 don't need a second invitation. We will expect you to uh, call in in the future, and I think. In particular, this is something that uh, it seems to be a percolating topic of discussion. I did mention the Wired article coming into the call, uh, but I think the uh, availability of these kind of uh, facilities, and as you noted, the competitive uh, 
uh, price nature if you're willing to personally invest the time. And my hope is, as you've described, that there will be an expanding group of uh, open source uh, libraries of uh, locomotive and actually, I, I mean, everything. I think the the nature of, in particular, the kind of extreme uh, realism end of the hobby is really crying out for these kind of technologies for, uh, as you've described, modeling everything. In- So Jeff, we'll, we'll do your we'll do your uh, regular five minute update in the show now <laughs> if you have the time. Um, yeah. Welcome on. Um, Thank you. you. You posted to the mailing list uh, one of your friends who we were hoping uh, to to have on the call uh, this evening, who does uh, Russian kind of Soviet era uh, model railroading. I was absolutely fascinated with his site. Uh, he doesn't do the uh, the three D uh, printing side of things. But he certainly makes resin molds to a really high level of detail, and I was quite amazed by uh, some of his kind of sleeper configurations and uh, just a wide variety of other things that he had uh, he had built. Um, do you anticipate him calling in, or should we just talk about his work in his absence? Um, I, I doubt it. Yeah, I, I was hoping he'd call in, but I, I guess he's he's not available tonight, so maybe he won't be calling in. Uh, I'll, I'll try to get him for for the next show. Okay, very good. Okay, let's let's save him for the next show. Do you have any updates associated with your layout? Well, not with my layout. Uh, since I don't, since, you know, since I'm unemployed, I haven't been able to work on it. But what I have been doing the last uh, two or three weeks has been uh, I've been online researching um, a train accident uh, <clears throat> that uh, uh, the people in, in the Toronto, Mississauga, Canada, uh, Ontario, Canada area will, will, will probably remember on uh, November 10th of 1979 when a 106 car well, 24 cars of a 106-car train, uh, Canadian Pacific train, derailed and uh, resulting in the, in, in the evacuation of the entire city of Mississauga. And what I'm what I'm asking if anybody is in the, in the uh, Toronto or Mississauga area, if they have any recollections or pictures, uh, you know, just email it to me, and uh, I'd be very grateful because I'm doing a, a presentation for our uh, for the Delmarva Train Club's uh, annual meeting next March on this subject, so I, need, I want to get pictures and, and, and such from anybody that can, that can help me out. Very good. Well, you put out the call, Jeff, and you'll be pleased to know, according to recent numbers, we have 1,284 Canadian listeners <laughs> coming in uh, number four, uh, sorry, number three in our in our list of listeners, uh, well, in, in terms of region. So in terms of, uh, in terms of your local model railroading and things like that, so have you been doing any more work on the layout, or have you seen any local layouts recently? Uh, I, I haven't seen it. I, I'm still, you know, uh, I've got, the, I've got the, the wood for the layout. I'm, I just need to get my get the track and the and the, and the turnouts and everything. And uh, say with a sparse a sparse amount of money, it, it's taking quite a bit quite a bit longer than I hope to. But I'm, I'm getting pieces in in uh, you know, I guess you get say you're getting in a piecemeal. I hear that. I hear that. I mean, even though I'm fully employed, my my model railroading budget is uh, <laughs> is relatively minimal, and I I do appreciate that these things are uh, relatively expensive. It's certainly a, a hobby, and it's interesting. Um, I'm sure you've you've worked on layouts that have involved hand laying. Do you think hand laying is a is a viable cost saving option, or is it actually more expensive than uh, than buying traditional uh, turnout select track or even sectional track? 
Well, I, uh, when I first heard about her hand laying, I thought it was a, a very complicated process. But I've had I had two friends that uh, hand laid their entire layout, and uh, when once they showed me how they did it, it's very uh, to me it's, it's very uh, time saving because um, they. Um, the way they did it is, is uh, they, they would lay it down in uh, three-foot sections, just just like a piece of flex track. But it, you know, you, uh, they would put the uh, they have a jig for the uh, for, to lay out the ties, then they would um, attach the rail with a, a KD spiker, and uh, basically that, that, there there's your track. Very good, very good. So is this something that you would uh, consider for your home layout? Uh, I, I'm, I'm considering it very much. Um, what I like to do is, is, is lay it out in, in conventional, either either flex track or sectional track, and get get it to where it's working the way I want it to, then uh, take it up and hand lay it. Very good. Very good. Well, it's always a pleasure having you on, Jeff. We'll, we'll keep you in the chat, and if you have anything that you'd like to add, um, yeah, please do feel free to, uh, to pipe up, and I'll bring you back in. Always a pleasure, okay. Jeff. Thank you. I've received uh, quite a few emails over uh, the past couple of weeks associated with the Berties, which are the first annual Model Rail Radio Awards. And um, a number of the emails have been questions about actually what they're about, you know, how you actually uh, pick out. Because I think through, and I would like them to be kind of, if you cast your mind back in the past year, uh, what kind of products uh, or services that you've seen uh, that are um, you know are, are worthy of you nominating in the Bertie Awards. Just to go back and uh, explain what the Bertie Awards are, they are uh, an awards that we are doing on an annual basis in order to uh, reward manufacturers and uh, sellers and potentially also listeners as well uh, in terms of the the good stuff that you're seeing, the things that you think should be highlighted in the hobby, and really throwing it out to the listenership as a way of highlighting these particular manufacturers. The categories for this year are Best New Structure Kit Regional, which means that you nominate the region that you're modelling, not necessarily the region that you're living in. Best Retail Service and Support Regional, which is typically the region that you're living in. Best New Ready-to-Run Locomotive or Rolling Stock, which is global, will take uh, nominations from all over the world. Best New Kit Locomotive or Rolling Stock, which again is regional based on where you're modelling. Most Innovative Manufacturer Global, and also the Best Listener Submitted Item, and this is slightly different than the others. The the others, um, well, basically everything needs to be submitted by October 31st, uh, 2011, by midnight uh, Pacific time, and the first group of winners, which is non the non-listener submitted winners, will be announced on the first show after November 15th, 2011. And then what will happen is after uh, the October 31st deadline, the voting will be open for the listener-submitted item. And that will conclude on midnight uh, Pacific Standard Time on December 15th, 2011. And then we will announce the listener-submitted item, uh, the best, the, the one that received the most votes, on January, uh, the first show of January 2012. Now, the feedback that I've gotten through emails, um, particularly this week, is just associated with how one kind of gets one's mind around, basically, 
uh, actually nominating uh, for these uh, particular groups. And Terry, you are doing a, a lot of stuff with your layout currently. In terms of the, the past year of your purchases and uh, experiences and model railroading, you're not currently doing structures. So I guess the structure kit section is uh, not necessarily applicable. But you're certainly uh, dealing with locomotives. You're certainly dealing with retailers. What, what are your thoughts about how you actually make your selection for the Berties? Well, um, one of the things I was thinking when uh, the Bertie categories were, were settled on, um, for instance, in kit or ready-to-run locomotive or uh, rolling stock, uh, are you going to have subcategories by scale? Uh, because it may well be that, you know, the HO guys being more numerous will tend to dominate whatever the nominations or voting process is going to be. Um, retail service and the like, that will probably be um, by scale independent. Um, but you may also want to consider, um, does retail service also include mail order uh, service? Because, uh, as you heard from Jim Lincoln's description of where I live, I'm sort of out in the sticks and most of the stuff, most of my retail service comes via UPS or the Postal Service. Yeah, certainly when I saw that category, it was with regards to, as you've described, because um, the, the local hobby store scene, I mean, even nationally now, uh, the, the main place that I got my model rail magazines was Borders. Uh, and, you know, that's that's now gone belly up. So my feeling is, yes, uh, that one in particular does include uh, mail order because I think actually some of the best mail order uh, is still regional, uh, but it is uh, mail order as you've described. The region category, I think we're doing by country uh, initially. If we get a lot of entries, particularly in the US, because we have uh, more than 19,000 listeners currently in the US, uh, as I'm tracking by unique IP, and uh, my feeling is that within we may need to subcategorize regional based on the U.S. because, as you say, with regards to various scales, the, the region of the U.S. will dominate. Uh, and uh, probably within the region, that will be interesting. You're right. Scale is important as well. And um, certainly based on the number of entries, uh, if we have uh, particular um, manufacturers that are uh, N, S or O, uh, or any any scale. I mean, if we get a lot of G entries, then I don't mind uh, splitting it up. Really, the purpose of the awards is not necessarily to have uh, single winners, uh, but really to highlight a number of manufacturers. And certainly, I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. Uh, and it gets interesting when you get into the, uh, the protos, uh, as we've highlighted this evening, uh, 87, but also as we've highlighted in many prior shows, thanks to Jim Lincoln, uh, Proto 48, and I think basically it will be based on the volume of entries. So if we get a lot of S and O and N folk uh, submitting entries, I mean, if we get just maybe two or three, then perhaps that's, uh, that's more mute. But it is, it is um, down to the listenership, really, associated with the volume of entries. But I will certainly uh, classify them in scale. I mean, my, my anticipation initially will be uh, H, O, N, uh, potentially O as well. Uh, as they come in. But well, I mean, it may be a really interesting surveying. I mean, I'm not really sure. In terms of mainland Europe, I think there are, uh, you know, there are potential scale differences there as well. So I'm really interested in actually getting a, a broader sense of the listenership. 
And any entry associated with a different scale or what have you will probably be, as you've described, uh, broken down into groups. Because the actual awards themselves, I will be making the awards, uh, but there's no real cost associated with making the awards after I've made you know, 10, 20, what have you. So I'm not particularly fussed about the number of the awards that we give away, particularly with regards to region or scale. Um, but anyway, following on this line of thought, uh, in terms of your purchases through a year, how do you go about actually kind of categorizing them in terms of quality and experience and these kind of things? Well, um, uh, as, as I said, most of my retail purchases are done uh, online. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've had pretty good results with, uh, with almost all of the major online retailers. And I, uh, I do a certain amount of DCC business with some. And uh, the other thing I've been doing a lot of business with, obviously, is track. And I've done some business with Fast Tracks. And they've all been all been really top notch and if I were making nominations they probably all would would get uh, a nomination from me I haven't really come across any uh, any ones that didn't deliver the goods ordered and, and delivered in a timely manner so uh, so I think the uh, the online mail order business is by and large at a, at a very high level uh, as it is and and uh, you know, uh, some people may have more interaction with their online retailers, uh, um, you know, resolving problems or getting assistance with the mar merchandise that they buy, um, which is really the area, I think, where where one online retailer or mail-order retailer can um, distinguish himself from another and come more to that hobby shop experience when the the uh, purchaser has a question and has to go back for um, advice or assistance. Uh, how does the uh, the online or mail order retailer handle that? Can he can he get you close to the the service you would hope to receive at a uh, you know brick and mortar retail hobby shop? Yes, I think you've probably got far better model railroading karma than I have because my experiences have been. Uh, Interesting, uh, let's just say. Interesting bordering checkered, I think. Um, in particular, I've, I've given the account of a, a Hornby locomotive that I ordered. Their site went down, their email addresses uh, caused bounce backs, and then uh, mysteriously, maybe five or six months later, I got an email, and the locomotive arrived, and it wasn't the locomotive that I'd originally ordered. Uh, but at least I was good to... I mean, I was glad to see something that my... Uh, my money that had been taken off my credit card many months previously had actually produced. And similarly, I've had a number, I think when you look at, um, certainly in N, I mean, I think a majority of my purchases online have been in N. Because it's a relatively mainstream scale, you do get a slightly more interesting uh, group of folk. I remember dealing with an outfit in California uh, that seemed to have unbelievably good prices and mysteriously the unbelievably good prices were met with uh, possibly the worst service imaginable. Um, so I think perhaps in uh, N and maybe even in HO, there may be some more uh, distinctions uh, <laughs> with the online retailers. But I guess my sense with regards to the Berties this year is where there are some kinks here, no doubt. And uh, But my hope is by sticking to a specific deadline and giving a relatively broad set of categories, that the listenership will uh, will think about this, uh, reflect on 
on perhaps some of the greatness that they've seen in the hobby in the past year and uh, and start nominating some of the manufacturers and in particular, and this is where it gets really granular. Um, for example, if you look at the fractions of our listenership, even in N, there is probably maybe two, maybe 3,000 listeners. Uh, and if we get about 10% of them submitting based on, for example, uh, well, regional uh, kit locomotives, we could have quite an interesting selection to choose from. So my sense is perhaps uh, perhaps we may actually extend the Berties into the listener-submitted voting section uh, for the, sorry, the listener-submitted item uh, voting section for more specific groups uh, based on the folks that submit to the awards. The other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is the prizes. And um, my thought was, obviously, that uh, Model Rail Radio swag should be a large part of the prize pool. But also, um, particularly with the fall of the US dollar, I was anticipating offering a US dollar amount that could be uh, redeemed through gift certificates or vouchers or something to give a... uh, Maybe a, a slightly more um, ready to use on the layout versus a T-shirt ready to wear. Although the model rail radio T-shirts continue to be uh, highly prized fashion items, but uh, for folks listening in, the email address is awards at modelrailradio.com. Play this thought experiment. Get a sense of what you've purchased in the past year, what you like in particular, and really, as as Kerry mentions, because there is such a such a you know in, in certain areas there's a a lot of high quality stuff and the distinctions between the various things that you're assessing, uh, be they uh, locomotive kits or uh, ready to run locomotives or structure kits, you may, you know, you may have two, uh, two close uh, options. And yeah, within that kind of consideration, I mean, feel free to either submit to the Model Rail Radio mailing list or uh, email me directly, tom at modelrailradio.com if you have additional thoughts, because certainly I've been fielding some emails associated with the Berties, uh, and I would really like to see as many listeners as possible uh, participate uh, in the first annual Bertie Awards. Jimmy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Model Rail Radio. One one thing that I've never... I mean, I've heard you, obviously, uh, on Scotty's show, but one thing I've never heard you talk about at any length is your father's layout. Would you like to describe that to the Model Rail Radio listening audience? Um, I would. Let me bring up... Um, I was just trying to find my, my basic info I have on that. Basically, uh, it's an HO layout. Uh, my dad is always... You know, I've always had railroads in my in my house. Um, in fact, uh, the first one I can remember from being a kid, he had added a, a two-car garage onto the house so he can have the room above uh, for a layout. Um, m- moving into my um, teenage years, and when actually when actually Scotty came into into being uh, in in my life, actually is uh, we were in Canton, Mass, and. We had a giant house. He did, built it on purpose, a 90-foot long by 30-foot uh, wide with a 16 by 16 L on the end. And uh, Scotty and other folks would come down and, and work on the layout and, you know, just always had that going on in my life. So he, we brought all that stuff out to Vegas when, when we moved. We had to break the whole layout down and in pieces and start it over. 
basically, it's a Boston and Maine, uh, done about the 1950s era. Um, it's a uh, point-to-point uh, double level in uh, about a 20-by-20 20 20, uh, two-car garage. Uh, we're doing the uh, Connecticut River line uh, of, the, uh, of the Boston and Maine. And uh, modeling some towns. I'm going over there next week, actually, to do scenery in uh, in the Whitefield. Uh, White, we're doing a Whitefield Junction in the town of Whitefield, and so it's uh, it's coming along. I'm going to do the whole Springfield Springfield Mass. The station there, Union mm-hmm. Station there, is going to be the whole thing is going to be done on a on an area that's about six feet by four feet, with uh, viewable from three sides. Uh, so that would be a, a lot of fun to get in on. Uh, basically, what we've done is said, hey. Right now, what you see when you walk into the layout is pretty much a planning layout. Everything is everything's a planning model. Um, the buildings that are there, some may be permanent, but for the most part, everything is there for us to go in, back onto, and, and do the research and, and take it section by section. Uh, so it's, uh, it's going to start to get interesting. Hmm. One thing that's certainly interesting is the weather in Vegas versus the, uh, the weather in Massachusetts. Is the is the double garage air conditioned at all? Yeah, actually, what he did um, when he had the the house bought it from I don't know twelve years ago, whatever it was, he was able to go in from the builder side of it and have it double insulated. Uh, he um, had it all sealed in. We put there's an air conditioning unit in it, and we just the garage door is there. We just sealed it in uh, and um, use the whole room. It's we have heat for the uh, if we need it in the in the wintertime, and we have uh, air conditioning for the summertime and have no no issues at all in there. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, when we bought this house, it has a double garage, and immediately, and it has perfect shelving for uh, at least a, a, a two-level uh, two, um, layout, if not mm-hmm. a three-level layout, which, of course, my wife quickly uh, colonized with various boxes and other things. But uh, no, when, I, when we first arrived in this place, I thought immediately this is just going to be an end empire, uh, given the chance. But the, the thermal characteristics, I think even the garage door, even if we even if we got everything insulated, the garage door itself is such a, a heat sink, uh, it may be difficult to do that. Uh, but no, your, your father's layout is, um, is certainly something that uh, one of the... Um, I don't know, one of the uh, must-see wonders of Las Vegas that I'm yet to cast my eyes on. But I've heard a lot of good stuff about it. This idea of the elements being uh, experimental currently, we, we have Slim Jerkins in the chat as well, and I, I know you're a large advocate of this microlumina stuff. Is mm-hmm. there, Are you experimenting with that on your father's layout? You know, in fact, I am right now. Um, South River Model Works, a couple of years ago, put out the... Um, the called the corner it was a streeter kit and we had already chosen to model bernardston mass as as one of our uh, lower level passing uh, sides and lo and behold the streeter building itself is sort of the big landmark in bernardston i mean everybody knows that building and here it is in a beautiful kit form so we redesigned the whole area and i'm actually um putting you know putting together um uh, Bob's diorama, similar to the way he has it set up, but it's uh, going to fit right into the, the lower level and mix it in with the farm that's there. We've got a residential area going to be coming out on the other side. And I've got all the Slim's lights. Um, I added them to the outside of the kit, 
and I'm putting them in the mill right now, and I'm about to order some of his gooseneck uh, lights to light up the outside of the building and um, hopefully do some street lights too with it. So the best part about it is, and this is the weirdest thing, I, I brought a diorama to um, the NMRA Nationals, and I had uh, built the battery unit, a 9-volt battery unit, outside of the diorama. Just I figured I'd be changing 9-volt uh, batteries you know, throughout the show. Well, the 9-volt is still working. We're, what, almost, what, a week out of that show? Um, it's amazing that uh, uh, how, if I wanted to, I could probably run the lights on the layout just with a 9-volt. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to do that. But with the, uh, the, the, the current limiters that he has, you don't have to worry about it. You just hook it right up, and uh, the current limiter takes care of the rest. So, you know, right now, that's, to me, the way to go, because I'm, I'm not a big electrical guy, and now I try to do lights and everything. So, Yeah, certainly I've enjoyed your photos on Facebook, and I think it's a, a very beautiful effect uh, to, to have the ability to run uh, dusk or uh, night uh, operations, and certainly that adds the... Uh, the kind of twinkling brilliance and the the, the whole light effect. Oh yeah, I'm, but you, you got to take it further though. You, you've got to you know go with the the little flashing lights, make make it look like there's a TV on in in, in one of the corners of one of the rooms. Uh, you know you can you can have effects where um, a welder is under a car or, or in a building and uh, using a welding tool, and they have the little light effects to make it look like the person's welding. Uh, I mean, there's so many things you can do these days. With with the lighting and the way it is, you know, I mean, there's just no reason not to. So a couple of shows ago, we had on uh, a, a couple that do professional layouts. They they build them. But one of the things that we haven't really touched on on the show is folks that build structure kits professionally. My understanding is that you you do this either either full time or occasionally for folks. Um, I would, um, yes, I do. In fact, it's being more full-time now than anything else. Um, I'm actually, uh, with, with Monster Model Works, uh, the business, it's kind of taken off more and more. I'll be picking up a laser here within the next month or so. Um, I do want to get into some kit manufacturing down the road, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to put the laser to work in an engraving business and just outside of the hobby at the same time, cut for people start my own kits, get that thing going and see where it takes me. But, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, with the economy, everything else, sometimes people just don't need work, uh, but it's a lot of fun to do. And in fact, you know, I, I had a, a few long meetings with, with Miles and Fran up at the, uh, up at the uh, Nationals in Sacramento. And uh, we, we talked about actually doing some work together. So that was, uh, that was uh, all stemmed from your show because I heard him talking about that he goes out to other modelers, so I was going to find him, and he actually came and found me, and we had a great talk. So, very good, very good. good I'm I'm in the as as Terry Terrence and Chris uh, is as well. I I have the um, it's not a pleasure in any way, shape, or form, but basically I don't see a lot of sunlight through my day job, uh, and looking at uh, particularly folks that build structure kits. Uh, as their profession, maybe one of the ways that I can actually uh, enjoy the hobby also going up and uh, seeing Ted Stevens layout in the Bay Area. He has, uh, I think, one Scotty Mason and a few others, uh, a few other names in the uh, professional kit manufacturing uh, business. For folks who are looking to find a uh, professional structure builder, similar kind of questions to the ones I put to the Hales, what should people look for? 
Well, you know, firstly, they, they need to understand, you know, what, what they want. Okay, firstly, uh, is it a custom building? Is it a, is it a kit? Pricing is going to differ from that. How much uh, detail someone wants in a kit? Sometimes they just want a basic. I do stuff for uh, architectural firms where it's just a straight build. They're not looking for uh, any dilapidation or paint peeling effects or anything, you know, like that. It's, it's a straight build. So, um, you know, if someone wants sort of the slogan of my business is the monster is in the details. I like a lot of details. I like a lot of effect. So if you want that kind of work, well, it's going to take longer. It's going to cost you more. You know, so project versus hourly, you have to look at the customer. Uh, you also, uh, you know, have to understand where is it going? Is it a diorama? Is it going on the layout? Well, you know, are we going to build, is it just a building and you're going to stick it in yourself? Or are we going to sit down and plan out that, that section, that town, uh, that scene? You know, it all depends upon how far the, the, uh, the customer wants to take it. And, you know, you have all types. You know, there's folks who just want the basic structures done. Um, you know, they don't want to sit there and they want real glass and they, they want all the details, but they don't want to learn them or do it themselves. Um, it, it's funny, most of the time, you know, you're out there showing people how to do these techniques so that they can do them themselves. And I do a lot of that. I go to a lot of shows. I do a lot of clinics and workshops and things. And I want people to do it themselves. But they, they say, well, you know, I, I can't do what you, what you do. I want you to do that for me. And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that attitude. But, you know, in other terms is if someone wants to buy my work, absolutely, I'm there for that too. But I, I, I really like to see people learn how to do it and do it themselves. I think more of, on the lines of what Clark does. Um, I've had uh, in my local area uh, put together groups where come over and build with me. Bring your kit. Sit down, let's build together. You have a little group of, of modelers to, to come and, and, and do that kind of stuff because to me it's, you know, the hobby has been very good to me and I've been able to turn around and I want to give back to the hobby. And that is, you know, why, you know, hey, if you're a, a small modeler and, you know, you need some stuff, you know, laser cut, well, when I have a laser, I'm not going to charge a modeler for a small custom job, you know, the same as what manu kit manufacturers are going to do. No, I want that laser to be available for that model to be able to scratch build something. Maybe because he's never scratch built before and he wants to make it easy for himself. You know, whatever the case may be, you know, I just think most people can do it themselves and the people who have the money and don't want to, well, we'll take that too. Well, speak of Slim Jerkins and he will appear. Welcome to Model Rail Radio. Oh, good. You called in, Slim. I called in. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Bill's much better at explaining his lights than me because I'm still, I still call him for questions going, hey, what do I got to do next, man? Because... You know, so actually, you, you touched on something. I was, I, I was just going to say, you know, here, here. Uh, if I could get people to uh, to to make their own goosenecks, that would be that'd be better. Uh, I mean, it's not something I wouldn't want to sit and and while away all my hours doing because it's a it's a tedious job. But um, well, like any kind of form of of modeling, uh, it's it's a matter of learning and uh, and developing some techniques. No, absolutely. We've had some discussions in previous shows associated with a variety of uh, lighting techniques, and uh, certainly Jimmy mentioned the, the television, the flickering television uh, effect, but also the warmth of fireplaces and various other things. For folks who are interested in kind of taking their lighting that one step further, what advice would you give to them? Uh, the, the, uh, the best place I've found, uh, engineering.com, 
uh, is where I really is what got me started. Uh, Tim Anderson, the folk, uh, the, the gentleman who, who runs it, uh, is um, uh, really good with uh, his uh, instruction uh, that he has available on his website, and um, it really teaches you everything you need to know uh, on how to go about. Uh, working with uh, surface mount LEDs, these little tiny LEDs. Uh, the only thing is, with his site, it's strictly that type of LED. So if you're looking for something bigger for general lights and, and things like that, you could, you know, go to my place or somewhere else. But uh, anyone who's really starting off and, and wants to, to to learn the basics and, and you know play around with that would be the place to go uh, to get some to get some uh, knowledge right off. Uh, now, his stuff isn't uh, not, you know, it's, it's not the easiest to work with right off the bat. But like I said, you, know, you just need to play around with it and develop some technique. Um, you know, one of the things, Bill, I'll interject here real quick, is, you know, yeah, engineering's been around. A lot of this technology's been around for a little bit. What you did is you actually made it look simple. You, you made people want to try it. And that's why I jumped in on it. I mean, a lot of other people did the same thing because you took the time to explain it, show a few new products to make you know things you know a lot simpler, like the uh, uh, the the your what is it your micro uh, your current limiter, and um, you know you sat down with people. That's the difference. Engineering didn't do any of that. No one else did any of that, and that's what's going to make people buy the lights and do it. Well, he does seeing it. Tim does uh, uh, clinics and stuff, but he's on the uh, northeast, uh, northwest, uh, up in Washington. So he's not going to be out, you know, up in the, in the eastern uh, side of the country. And um, and he does have a different way of doing it. Uh, I have a, a little, you know, simpler uh, way of doing uh, uh, some of the wiring and uh, and methods. Um, so it's uh, I guess it's a good way to to get started. Yeah, uh, if I could do a DVD and, and have someone produce something like that, it, you know, that probably what I'd prefer to do rather than than make goosenecks. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> I, I guess returning to my original question, I mean, we've had questions through the shows associated with issues of warmth and issues of color mixing and various other problems that folks have encountered. Kind of the full spectrum from LED through to a grain of wheat mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the effects. I mean, for the for the obsessive realism modeler, and I think uh, perhaps Jimmy might be uh, in that camp. What kind of techniques would you describe for uh, color mixing, for warming LEDs, for uh, using perhaps uh, reflective lighting? I mean, what kind of techniques come into play here? Uh, I find that uh, a bottle of Tamiya acrylic yellow uh, transparent paint works very well. It could be diluted. Uh, you can, uh, you know, take a take a piece of, you know, if you got an LED that does, doesn't have the color that you want, uh, take a piece of a clear scrap uh, from a blister pack or something like that, and um, brush on some uh, uh, the, uh, the the tint, a yellow or an orange or something, whatever you want to use to warm it up. And uh, you know, look at it through that uh, tint. Uh, and if you get too much on the, and if it works, if it looks good for you, then go ahead and put it on the LED. Uh, the stuff kind of chips off too. If you want to scrape it with your fingernail, if it's after it dries, if it's not quite right. But it's a very easy way of uh, uh, coloring the LED and getting a different, uh, uh, warming it up. 
And it doesn't really, a lot of people might think that, oh, it's kind of blue, it's going to turn green on me if I add yellow to it. But it's really not the case. Uh, you'll find that uh, it just, it'll do a pretty good job of, of warming up the LED. Now, that, that does work because I've done that. And one of the things you've got to keep in mind, Tom, is depends upon what area you're modeling is going to depend upon your lighting. Um, you know, they had different types of light, lower light. You know, nowadays, if it's more modern modeling, you're using, you know, brighter lights. Um, you know, maybe you're modeling in an era where it's more candlelight. The bottom line is, is there, you, you can't use one light in one era and another light in another, another era where it's, going, where it's going to look incorrect. So you have to have an understanding of what colors you want to go with or what, uh, you know, what brightness of light or whether it's a, a spotlight or a floodlight is going to make a huge difference in, uh, you know, what that light does for the effect. Very interesting. Very interesting. So we talked a little bit about things like flickering and these kind of effects, but also in terms of kind of motion in lights and the, the implication that there are activities going on and these kind of things, what kind of timing circuits and, and things of this nature are out there for folks who really want to uh, add that kind of motion in lighting? There's, uh, again, at engineering, he has a lot of different simulator circuits. And uh, there's a, a wide variety to choose from, whether it's for a, a vehicle, uh, locomotive, uh, or stationary uh, object like a structure, campfire. Uh, and uh, he has some... Uh, uh, he has some videos of uh, a few of his effects. Uh, one I particularly like is the gas torch uh, for a, uh, uh, a gas um, gas cutting torch, gas welder, because uh, he's he's tweaked it. It requires two LEDs, and it's not just like a regular flasher type of circuit. Uh, so it's a little bit more involved again to assemble it because you you, know, you need to work with those little fine skills. Uh, but the effect is really nice because. Uh, it, uh, I mean, you can just see that that burst of that 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 flame as it starts up and goes wider, and uh, and uh, it's a it's it's different than uh, you know just a plain flashing LED. Well, they're taking the realism to the next level with the technology on the on the boards. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at a, a little show today. Uh, Poway Railroad Club had a little get together with some Fremo groups and and so forth, and there was an, uh, an S-scale layout there, uh, and they had this uh, a tower in a yard, and you could see inside the tower was a guy standing there. He had, uh, on the back wall was the exact layout of, of, the, of, the, of the line, uh, all stenciled in, and then they had just little lights on the board that were changing color, like, you know, it was trains moving around and things happening that happens in a uh, in a yard tower, and uh, it was super neat looking. You know what I mean? And, and it's stuff like that that is really going to make, really makes the layout uh, come alive. One of my favorite episodes of Model War Our Radio has Chris giving an account of working on Trevor Marshall's layout, actually lighting the internals of locomotives, as you say, the, the, uh, the fascia, and also, I think, potentially also. Uh, like tender flash and this kind of stuff, which is just really uh, a beautiful element. In terms of microluminar, are you, are you getting into this area as well? Uh, as far as um, my, uh, wait, I'm sorry. As far as for for locomotives, mm -hmm. well, I I'm a distributor for engineering products, uh, and uh, there are some effects. Most of the the flickering lights, uh, some of that stuff is right off the decoders. If I Yes. If I remember. Uh, and uh, 
so I mean, a lot of the boards that he does have are, are very small in size, so uh, hence the name of his company. I think he, he works with a lot of end scale. And, um, and so you know, whether it's a ditch light that you need or classification lights that change color, uh, he, he's got that stuff. And little micro lights are just amazing. They're so small. And, yeah, you, you can lose them right underneath your fingernail. They're so small. Yeah. You, you could sneeze and blow them away. <laughs> So we have a question in the chat about fiber optics. Is that uh, is that something that you'd recommend as well? Fiber optics, uh, it depends. I find that fiber optics is good if you're suggesting light. If uh, like if let's say let's say you're working in a in a larger scale and it's an instrument panel or perhaps a marker light or something like that, where you are showing that there is a light, okay, but you aren't using it to illuminate. So, uh, and I don't know if I'm explaining it right, like a gooseneck light, for example, okay, uh, it shines and projects light. Uh, the fiber optic doesn't do a, as good of a job on that. Uh, you can use a fiber optic maybe as someone holding a flashlight. Uh, exactly. You're, again, you're suggesting light. You're, 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 you're not, like you said, you're not going to light up a sign or, or the front area of a building with, with it. And I think the better effects will be in the larger scale uh, with that, I, I think that in the event of all the lighting and the boards and, and the effects you can do, I, I, what you're going to see next is this whole advent of of, of um, um, all of the um, automation you're going to start seeing on the layout. It's going to increase uh, with with the lighting and the boards. You're going to start seeing boards that are be combined lighting and, and automation. I'm sure they're already out there. Uh, and wow. it's, I think. Yeah, it's going to go nuts pretty soon. Bill, one question I haven't asked you is, how did you actually get into model railroading, and, and do you have a current lab? Uh, I probably, my story is probably the same as, as many people. Uh, we, I got into it, uh, you know, went into, you know, became a teenager and, you know, started looking at girls instead and uh, ended up going back into it afterwards. So uh, my, my current layout is... Uh, in, in, uh, I kind of wait another uh, talk to to listen to Jimmy. I'm sorry uh, about his dad's layout. And it was my my father who got me started. He had a four by eight layout that was based on you know one of the the books uh, that was in the, the one of the combat books from early on, and uh, that that got me started. And I took over that railroad, but it got mothballed and put away for a while. And uh, you know, years later, now I'm back into it. Uh, as far as the layout goes, what I'm working on now is a small two foot by six foot ingle nook switcher, and mm. uh, and it's just uh, something I want to go crazy with uh, as far as super detailing it as time allows. And uh, then after the kids are done in in uh, college and are out of the house, and I have some more real estate to work with, I might do something in the basement. <laughs> so. You fit it into another theme that uh, Model Rail Radio is. Uh now famous for, which is the, the smaller, super detailed layout, and certainly it's a, a theme that I like exploring as well. Can you describe Can you describe the layout? I mean, it seems sufficiently small that you could actually probably describe the track plan. Well, are you familiar with the Inglenook switcher? Uh, I'm not, and I'm not sure that the listenership would be as well, so why don't you, why don't you uh, tell us? You know, uh, I, what I could do is, uh, I don't have a link right now. Um, we could pop it up later. Uh, I know you can Google it. It's uh, you know one of the kins to the the time saver. Usually it's it's lumped in there uh, with the time saver type switcher. Although the Inglenook is uh, basically uh, 
three sidings. It's got a head shunt that could uh, hold a locomotive and two cars, and mm-hmm. then it's got uh, a, a siding that can hold five cars and uh, two other sidings that can hold three cars. And I work with a total of, oh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head here, I, I mean, I have stuff piled on it. <laughs> uh, seven cars, I believe, including the locomotive. And what you do is basically have a deck of cards for each, you know, a, a card for each uh, piece of rolling stock uh, for each uh, car. And you shuffle them up and deal them out. And what you want to do is, uh, you, know, you know, make a, a cut of cars, uh, of five, uh, a string of five cars in the order that you deal them out uh, with only the space that you have on your layout. And it's kind of like a little brain teaser kind of thing. And uh, it's just, it, I find it to be fun. Uh, and it's a way of, of uh, pseudo-operating, you might say, on a very small scale. Hmm. It seems to also, because, I mean, the, the, effectively at least a quarter, if not more, of the layout, which doesn't have track on it, that you can do some quite interesting stuff with as well. You could make it as narrow as you want, so it's really nothing but track. Or in my case, I have two feet, uh, so it's a, I guess you could say it's shelf size, and uh, you could go, really go crazy as far as what you want to put on it. I can, I have a, a few large uh, uh, structures that are destined to go on it, as well as some small ones. Uh, but uh, you know, some of them right now are, uh, uh, they, they come on and off so that I can go and take them to the clinics for the lighting, because naturally the whole thing's going to be all lit up and, and everything. <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah. I wouldn't think you would do that. <laughs> Talk about mission creep. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, in fact, I'm I'm trying to find the right narrow gauge um, company uh, or or line to model. I'm gonna I'm gonna do an ON30 uh, small switching layout, maybe 30 40 uh, square feet, um, and um, document it, article it, write it, and put a series of articles out with it, and. I just really need to find the line, you know. I mean, I don't want to do one that has been done a million times. I want to do something that's going to be of interest. I don't care if it's coal or logging. I'm not, I'm not set on a particular industry at this point. So if anyone out there has any thoughts of some really interesting lines that aren't uh, modeled so much uh, um, or are, but, you know, have to be maybe some interest for an ON30 uh, switching layout, uh, email me because... Um, that's the hardest part for me right now is just finding that start. Once it's done, it's you know it's going to get ready to go on it. But um, really looking forward to it as well. So, oh hey, hey Tom, if I could just mention one one other name uh, who inspired me as far as that Inglenook uh, goes, and that would be uh, Carl Arndt. Uh, you know, uh, bless his soul, uh, he, he passed away not too long ago. Uh, he was uh, a real proponent for the the doing things. You know, on a very small scale, uh, you know, micro layouts and, and stuff like that. I believe his website still goes on. And uh, uh, he was a local fellow until he moved out west uh, a couple years ago. And uh, But uh, the Inglenook uh, and Time Savers and all other kinds of, of small switching layouts, he was the guy who uh, really uh, beat the drum for those. And nowadays with this whole Fremo thing, if you've got the right scale, you can make any switch and layout you want. As long as you you put the right two ends on it, you can bring it around and hook it up to any Fremo group, too. So you can make it a – it can have a, a double meaning um, mm-hmm. uh, as well. I mean, it's nowadays you're almost boundless. Harry, did you have any questions? 
you know, I was interested in the uh, the answers to the fiber optics. Um, uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm an O-scaler, and I've seen a lot of fiber optic instrument panels done with uh, with fiber optics, you know, uh, illuminating instruments. And I understand the uh, the issue about fiber optics. Um, generally, you know, the thinner fibers don't project light, but they can if you can give it enough drive and you give it a large enough diameter plastic uh, fiber, you can do street bikes and such like in, in O, I believe. And I think uh, if, you, if you flare out the end of the fiber with, uh, you know, heat it so that it kind of forms a little ball on the end, that'll also help it uh, project or, or be, you know, spread out the light a little bit better. Yeah. So I think in, in the larger scales, it is possible to project light with LEDs but yeah, in the in the smaller scales, uh, you probably can't do it. Yeah, if, if you can do a street light uh, in a larger scale, I, I, you know, there's there's certainly many options. But I don't know if I would go with fiber optics. But I'm I'm sure you know you can do it. Fiber optics are small enough. Put two or three of them together, you're going to get more light off of one. Or you know, I'm sure, like you said, you juice it up a bit more. But you know, whatever is going to look best for for what you're looking for. It may just be a question in some cases of can you mount a you know, three millimeter LED, or even a uh, you know o four o six o three or o four o two LED where you want, but you may be able to snake a tiny fiber in there uh, well, and the, get some out of it. With the o six o threes and smaller, uh, even with the two by three millimeter uh, as a surface mount LEDs, uh, I'm running those through a uh, eighteen thousandths hypodermic tube to form the gooseneck so uh you can you know run it right through that uh, which is very you know very small yes i i think i saw some of that that works somewhere online with uh with you using hypodermic tubing mm-hmm. that's true um i've done some uh some uh, surface mount LEDs. In fact, I've done those in a couple of headlights on my low, O-scale locomotives, and I haven't, uh, I haven't tried anything as small as even an O603 or even a uh, was it O1206. Uh, but but some of the larger larger uh, surface mount packages, which are relatively easy to solder to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, go ahead. It, it's something I think. People should not be uh, reluctant to try um, because uh, the soldering skills to do some of the larger surface mount components are not uh, that that difficult to master. And if you can find something like wire wrap wire or magnet wire, that's probably small enough. So uh, if the listeners are interested in, in trying some surface mount LEDs for their various projects, um, in a one-off type of situation, they should certainly give it a shot. No, I just could say, they just have to have a really good soldering iron, something they can control the temperature on. Um, you know, don't go out and buy a, a, a $2.99 special at Harbor Freight, even though they work. You know, you just want to be able to control the heat and, uh, you know, keep that tip clean and follow some basic practices, and it's really not hard to get into some decent clean solder joints. So, you, you know, get a magnifying glass, get in there real small, and... You should have no issues, but uh, the equipment matters. The, uh, what I use is two uh, soldering irons. I use one for, for tinning the w- magnet wire because the, the insulation on that magnet wire melts off at you know, between 700 and 800 degrees. 
and which is uh, hot enough to burn up an LED if I use that same soldering iron uh, to solder the wire to the LED. So I'll you know, cut the piece of magnet wire to length, and I'll tin both ends first, uh, and then I'll use a smaller 12-watt needle-tip uh, soldering iron for actually soldering the wire to the LED. And engineering has a little uh, device that uh, holds the, the LED and wire. It's like two little micro clips uh, so that one clip is holding the LED. The other clip can hold the wire in position, uh, freeing up your hands so that you can you know, just touch that uh, solder and tip and uh, take care of making the connection on the LED itself. So basically what Bill will tell you anytime you want to get anything from him is go to engineering's website, tell me what you want, and I'll give you the, 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 the pricing and, and I'll, I'll get it out to you. So uh, basically when he says engineering carries it, it means he carries it. Yeah, I've seen uh, some of their stuff. Anybody who's going to the narrow, the narrow gauge convention down in Hickory, I'm going to be hey, there. Hey, I'm going to be there now. I'm going. And we're okay. going to um, go and, and hang out in Scotty's booth too. So. And, I, and I figure I'm just going to set up – I'm going to just set up shop there, and uh, I'll be doing a clinic, and I'll also uh, uh, figure on soldering some LEDs. So anybody wants to stop by and, and try their, their luck at it or, or watch me, you know, they can have at it. You're going to be doing some goosenecks there? Yeah. All right, cool. Um, you can show me how to do them from there then because um, that would be fun. You, you mentioned uh, running your, your, your uh, diorama off of a 9-volt battery. I had folks over last week for my daughter's graduation party, and I was showing them what I was doing, and, and I have this little Atlas uh, switch tower uh, that I have lit up running off of a, a battery. And uh, I hooked that up last Sunday, and uh, I just looked now, and it's still going. Someone, someone told me, <laughs> you know, because of, you know, you don't have that many, and one of them was only like three or four LEDs. You can you can run off and you can run them about three years off that nine volt. I mean it's it's really ridiculous on you know the length of time you can get out of those things. So now I'm going to build them inside the diorama so you don't have to see the battery and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives a number of interesting options. I mean, similarly to installing servos, um, nine volt batteries are a very interesting shape to put a, a small structure or something else around if you want to maintain it on your layout as well. Just make sure you you tape it to the bottom so that whenever you pick it up, I think it weighs a ton. I'll tell you why. It gets enough. Yes. <laughs> it yanks wires quite well, especially those oh, yeah. tiny wires. <laughs> so we have a number of folks on the call. Uh, Jason Rice. Hello, Jason. Jason, it's a pleasure to have you on. You, you've been uh, peppering the chat with various experiences that you've had associated with lighting and LEDs in particular. Do you have any comments or any questions you'd like to raise at this stage? Uh, I mean, I think the only thing that, you know, I, I've been playing a lot with the 603 and 402 LEDs lately, and I think, uh, the guy, as the guys have mentioned, uh, you, you got to be really careful uh, with your soldering iron when you go to solder. Those really tiny LEDs are really easy to overheat. Um, so, you know, buy some extras because notoriously I usually, uh, I'll make up five and one will be bad. So uh, it's it, you know you might be really good at it, and uh, you probably will still get one or two that uh, throw you for a loop. Uh, the other thing that I've had problems with with LEDs is they only have uh, a lot of them will tell you how wide of a light angle they'll produce, um, and lot, many of them, especially when you get into the three millimeter series and larger, have a very narrow uh, like ten to fifteen degree light angle. Um, and so a lot of times you may need to add lenses or reshape uh, 
the LED head to help spread that out if you're anticipating to uh, use them for things like street lights, which have more of a omnidirectional lighting um, and things like that that we see typically with a real incandescent or something like that. Yeah, what I find with lighting is you, you've got to test, test, test. I mean, you, you can't just throw them up at the end, stick them in, and hope they're going to look right. Um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a, a path to it all that you have to follow and if you want them to look proper in the end. I've made the mistake of saying, well, I'm just going to throw a light in this building and it'll be fine. I, you know, I'm going to hide it. No one's going to see it. I just want to and then, you know, boy, that looks like crap. Uh, you know, so you've got to prepare. The three millimeters that I sell, I have the spot version and the flat, uh, the flood version. And the flood version is just basically it's flat; doesn't have that dome to it, uh, so it, it it does more of a you know a wide angle type of uh, pattern. So you, even if you have an old three millimeter, you probably take an exacto to it and and uh, you know cut off the dome part. And if you can polish it enough, so that uh, it probably have the same effect. Some people even take them and uh, cut them and, and drill them with a little you know, a little bit, uh, so like a little inverted cone uh, to help do that same effect. It's amazing what us modelers do when we get little tools in our hands sometimes. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I mean, I do the same thing with the uh, with the three millimeters. Is I just take a file and I clean them up and then sand them down and then I take a little, uh, usually hot soldering iron will work or get them close but not into the flame of a torch and that'll uh, polish them up really nice because it melts that plastic just down a little bit uh, but yeah you're right test 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 is uh it's so true for almost every part of <laughs> what we do is i think it'll work out like this but it it, it just what your uh, preconceptions often are you you have to find new ways to uh adjust and uh tackle those problems so Good. Oh yeah, I had to, I had to cut the whole bottom of a diorama open once to get into the lights because I, you know, had issues that I didn't foresee that you know I should have, and yeah, it wasn't fun. I'm interested in the idea of uh, lighting layouts um, because I can see people getting into the hobby and getting into structure building, and I think there's a certainly a movement from DC to DCC as people progress. And what you guys are describing is basically building buildings around lights in some regard. But for folks who have maybe half a dozen existing structures that they are looking to illuminate, what kind of advice would you give them, Bill? You're going to need an awful lot of little LEDs to put on your ceiling to light your layout with them. So you have to, you know, Bill, I'm sure, will give you a quantity discount. <laughs> Probably, you know, uh, if you just want to do general illuminating the bottom of the building and uh, – a five millimeter or a three millimeter LED, they're 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 cheap. Uh, I mean, some people if they want to you know stick to incandescent, they can do that too. Uh, because you could if you can get to the bulb to replace it. Yeah, I mean the LED lasts a lot longer and uh, uh, it can you know, consume less electricity as well. Uh, and that uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so if if the structure's already built. Uh, you can easily do it that way. I've also seen some of these these tape these strips of, of LED. Uh, there's a lot of different places uh, that are selling up. Uh, a lot of people use them for uh, kitchen lighting, uh, cove lighting, and some people put them on motorcycles and cars and, and stuff like that. And you buy it by the by the roll. I think a roll has uh, something like 300 LEDs on it, and, and it might cost about 80 bucks or so. 
but it can be cut apart in uh, in little three LED uh, sections and wired directly, uh, and it puts out a, uh, an awful lot of light. And, and something like that uh, could easily be uh, installed into a structure uh, that has a um, you know that you might have access to, like a factory or something. It'd be perfect for for a, a large factory or a back backdrop building or, or something like that. Uh, now some of them are very bright and. Uh, so you you would probably want to you know dim it a little bit uh, or obscure the light somewhat, baffle it a little bit, and uh, and one thing I always like to caution people from doing is to you know block off the light coming from some of the windows because nothing you know seems <laughs> out, out of place than, than light. And I I talk about it in my clinic. And I say well, I have one one caveat to that, and that's my house in the middle of the winter whenever the kids are going off to school because they leave every every light on that they can. <laughs> but but generally when you drive by a house at night you don't see light coming from every window. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say that. That lighting you were talking about is for almost whole building lighting which, you know, isn't as realistic. Um I, I typically build little light boxes, install them inside the building, like it's its mm-hmm. own little room and hang the light or, or put the light within that box. Um, but one thing, Bill, I think also you were talking about dimming lights. Um, with the LEDs, it's great because, um, you know, I, I felt one of my light setups were much too bright in the end. Well, I just took the very end of my uh, my wires and hooked a couple of resistors up to it, figured out, you know, the you know what I wanted to, the, the light level to be and, and matched it with the resistors. So you can, with resistors, you can change the, the lighting level of these LEDs, which makes it very handy. Mm-hmm. And like Jimmy mentions about the the uh, light box, making a little room within the, mm. the, it really helps to control the light, and it keeps it from from leaking out from under eaves or you know where your roof might not meet perfectly with the wall or a corner or something like that. Because that's another thing that can can ruin your 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 model if you're lighting it up, and that's light leaking out from the base or any corner that's not good or under an eave or a roof peak or anything like that. So if you have a little room that's controlled with that light. It, it, it helps to uh, you know prevent that from happening as well. Oh yeah, you got construction issues. The light's going to find it. Mm-hmm. You make an interesting point, and certainly with regards to uh, winter lighting and night lighting, the kind of uh, effects, I guess, of going through curtains and various densities of curtains and these kind of effects. Can the room within the structure give that kind of effect, or would you recommend people maybe creating some kind of fabric block or potentially? I don't know. I mean, I, I know Jimmy's absolutely obsessed with glass windows currently and that effect. So, Jimmy, <laughs> let, let me put this to you. If you had a glass windowed structure and you were looking to uh, to simulate the, the kind of effect of a variety of density of curtains and these kind of things, how would you actually go about doing that within a structure? Well, uh, you know, firstly, you've you got to decide if you're going to want that what's inside that room visible or not. So... You know, if it is going to be a window that is completely visible, you're gonna you can still build a light box. I, I pretty much always build light boxes. There's no reason to stick a light in the bottom of a building and light the whole building. So I don't even go that route. Um, since I'm not using you know any grain of wheat stuff or anything, I'm I'm just using these little LEDs. You can control it better. Um, if if I was going to have a a very dark room and I just want a, a you know some kind of a, a flickering light effect, you know. What I like to do is I take the glass and you paint the back of the glass with like a gloss black paint. It's almost like tinting them. 
So it, it gives a great reflection on the outside, but you can't see into it. Now, if the light's on inside, you can see into it very lightly. You're going to see the light flicker. And again, if you don't want to have uh, it, it blocked off, you can use dull coat, you know, just to dim it a little bit. Any, anything to not see inside where you're going to see the wires. Usually what I'll do in that case is paint the inside of the light box black. Um, so that way it's, it's all just going to be self-contained. Now, if not, you build the light box just like any other room. You can put a little bench in it. You can put a person in it, whatever you want, if you want to see through the window. And, and now you can make a little mini scene without having to worry about the rest of the entire whole s structure. Um, and I, that makes it a lot easier, and uh, you get the lighting effect you want out of it. Uh, Kleenex tissue and some certain paper towels uh, also work well for curtains. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, Bill. I just picked up a new product, and I'm in love with it. It, um, uh, it is uh, uh, basically it's, it's airplane tissue. Um, they use it to, to wrap around the bodies of airplanes for, for, for light, uh, you know, to keep them light. This one is a, it's, I guess it's a double zero tissue. It's almost like using um, a tea bag or, or something, but it's very, very fine. And, it, and it, it works great as like a canvas cover, or I used it for canvas on the top of this passenger car. But curtains, um, tar paper, I mean, anything, it, it's, it's a great product. So take a peek at it if you ever come across it. Because I tried regular tissue. I tried um, toilet paper. You tried, tried vellum. You tried multiple different things to bring up the effect. Or, but this airplane tissue was great stuff. So anyway, yeah. curtains would be perfect. A little bit of glue on it. It'll form in the shape you want. You can wrinkle it. You can put streaks in it or, or, line, or, or creases in it uh, and would make wonderful curtains. So anyway, sorry about that. Hi. You were saying, Bill, before I interrupted you about uh, lighting effects and curtains. No, I just, you hit on a good point there. Uh, I'd like to try some of that because some of the tissues that I've seen are, are kind of, they, some of them are too stiff. That's why, you know, the, the Kleenex tissue, uh, the facial tissue, not the, the toilet paper, I just, you know, is really hard to work with. But yeah. uh, the regular tissue, that's even tough. And, I used to uh, try tinfoil and paint tinfoil and form it into a shape, but then you, you don't get the, the see-through effect of a curtain. Mm-hmm. So I found my new curtain material anyway, so I got excited the other day when I pulled out of the batch and looked through it and was just amazed on the tiny little cross fibers that are in it. They're so small. Something to look at. Just another great example of uh, stealing stuff from uh, other hobbies and uh, using it uh, for our best here in uh, model railroading. I'm the worst at that. <laughs> I, I love going to the RC and, and plane shops and you name it, uh, the military stuff or anything, because they have some of the best stuff to, to find and use. I mean, I use a lot. I, I use, in fact, I get the the, the basic uh, magazine every month. What is that one that comes out? Fine, fine scale modeler. Yeah, fine, fine scale, scale modeler. Um, you know, hairspray. Hairspray is the best thing since sliced bread. I use it for everything. It's the best barrier paint peeling, metal chipped effects. I mean, uh, hairspray does it all, and just model railroaders don't use it, other than to other than to put scenery on trees. And that, that don't even work. It's an excellent. Uh, I've watched a couple of guys do the uh, rust effect with that and uh, rubber glue, and uh, it's just amazing uh, the tips that we can learn from uh, the other guys that are making models. I watch a lot of the guys that uh, make uh, like uh, wargaming figures, role play. Uh, oh yeah, the figure figures. guys. Yeah. Those guys. It's amazing how much detail they can bring out. 
uh, in the finest details because their characters are just so small. Absolutely. Uh, someone gave me the tip of uh, for Windows using uh, future floor wax to set in the window to take so when you glue it, you don't get that hazing or anything on it, that you get a nice clear window that uh, sets in there. And I, I'm, I'm dying to try it because I've had I've been trying to buy that stuff for weeks now. I mean, you just can't find it anywhere. I, I just, in fact, I was at three stores today looking for it. It just, it's, it's, it's a void. It's, it's. I don't know if it's trying to run away from me or, if, or if it just is being difficult. Well, it's, but it's got a new name now. I think it's like Pledge. It's, with yeah, Future. it's Pledge with Future Shine, right? Yeah. Yeah, but, crazy. Uh, I mean, uh, I would like to get one of the old orange bottles of of Future Florax. Remember the old orange bottle of it. But yeah, yep. you can use it for a lot of things. Add it to paint. Uh, use it to seal, uh, you know, things as well. And uh, uh, Jim uses it to uh, uh, put his ballast down on his track. So now I've not heard of adding it to paint. Do you just add it to acrylic paint to? Yeah, you can add to acrylic paint. it down. Yep. And okay. you, you know, you get a matte, you know, shine out of it. You know, um, depends on how much you use, but um, you won't get a full gloss because of satin effect. Oh, brilliant! Brilliant. That's the kind of stuff that I like hearing because I always go to the hobby shop and I'm looking for stuff that uh, you know I've never used before and uh, and I want to find out new ways to do stuff and things like that and well, that's what it's all about. And yeah, exactly. I'm actually doing a uh, project for Rusty Stumps uh, scale models. I'm doing a uh, his, uh, their O scale version of the uh, Tie Hacker's Cabin for a display unit for the Craftsman Structure Convention um, for. Uh, for Walt over there, and uh, his, o, his HO version has been done and, and put out, but uh, this is new for him, the O-scale version of it. And uh, I'm going to try to get that one down to the narrow gauge convention as well, have it done for that, and uh, find a way to bring it out there and put it on display. So that's my big to-do at this this next couple of weeks. Now that you said O-scale, you piqued my interest. This is terrible. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm, everyone's pushing me to O-scale. I'm going to do an ON30 uh, switching layout. Uh, document it and do some stuff with it, do a lot of scratch building. And um, first opportunity to, to put together a nice O-scale kit is this uh, Mike Chambers tie hacker's cabin. So I'm really looking forward to that. And um, I need a, I need a, an, o, an ON30 uh, gondola, um, some kind of gondola so I can use it to, to, to load the ties onto and put a tie loading scene as well as part of the diorama. So I'm in the hunt for one of those. But... Did- uh, would the Bachman uh, OM30 gondola not work for you? Oh, I, it, I, I haven't even started to look yet. It, it's just one of those things that uh, um, I need to I need to get quickly because, like I said, I've got to get this project done. I think Bachman has uh, an OM30 gondola, and there are a number of kits out there. Um, I believe there's a company, Wiseman Model Services, you may want to look into, uh, would have an OM30 gondola as well. What's a good, I mean, I don't, you know what, I'm building some kits, some some uh, cars right now, HO, um, 61-foot open platform cars, three of them. And I'm telling you, they're going together terrible, and the directions are just junk. Um, I'm glad I just took one at a time to build the first one, because I'm just going to have to almost just throw the directions away and scratch build the thing with their parts. Uh, I mean, it's going to come out fine, but, you know, I, I just don't want to get into this project and have a, a car that's going to slow me down. So as long as we get something that is uh, nice to build, and I know they're out there. So so if you know any, you can email me. Okay, I'll I'll look into it. I'm not I'm not OM30 myself, but 
you know, it's uh, OM30 is is taking off like gangbusters, as you probably well know. Well, that was the thing. It was like I was just going to do HO or whatever, and they all just said, "Listen, you want to compete with the the big modelers, and you got to get the stuff to the narrow gauge. Do something in O and OM30, whatever, and and you'll love it." So uh, let's try it. I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a scale that's big enough to work on, um, but small enough to run. Right. And uh, a lot of the Bachman equipment runs like a Swiss Swiss watch, and for what you're getting, the prices are absolutely unbelievably reasonable. Yeah, Freire talks highly about them. So. Yeah, it's it's made narrow gauge a, a whole lot more accessible in that you don't have to do brass for locomotives and scratch build everything else. Yeah, well, like so, I was like I was saying to everybody, you know, for this project, I really, I really need a line to 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 model, and so people have some suggestions of some really interesting stuff out there. I just don't want to beat a dead horse and pick something that's been done a thousand times. So, um, I'm up for suggestions. Well, if if Chris were still on the line, he would be a, a strong advocate for the. Um, 42-inch gauge railways of Newfoundland, which I believe he dabbles in modeling. Uh, there was the Newfoundland Railway, and I believe the Buckins Railway was another one. 42-inch uh, gauge is probably a little bit too wide for ON30, but um, uh, it may be a theme that you could follow through an island-based uh, uh, railroad, where this is the only railroad on the island. And I believe that for the... Uh, Newfoundland Railways, they did something curious in that they would uh, ferry over standard gauge railway cars from the mainland, pull them off of their trucks, and put them down on 42-inch gauge trucks, transship them across the island, and reverse the process to send them back to the mainland. Wow. That sounds pretty interesting. uh, Yeah, that's, uh, you know, they did some really, really um, unique things on the Newfoundland Railways. I'll have to look into it. So, yeah, oh, Chris can probably source for you on that one. <laughs> well, guys, all you Canadians, you know, all you Canadians on this show are going to push you. In fact, in fact, I've been looking at northern, actually northwestern Canada. There's some beautiful scenery up there. Some of those, uh, I'm sure there's some logging and some mining up there as well. So where a lot of the uh, U.S.-based stuff has really been beat to death. You know, another interesting thing, if you really wanted to go far afield, of course, Canadian is North American. It's a, very much like a U.S. prototype. If you really want to go far afield, I think a number of the railroads in Africa were 42-inch gauge, and some of them were probably three-foot gauge. Most of the railroads in Africa were not standard gauge because um, they were put up quickly by the colonial um, powers that, that occupied the countries there. And uh, so there's a whole continent of... Uh, of interesting prototypes to model in narrow gauge. Never even never even considered Africa. They actually have trains there? No, I'm sure they do. Yes, as a matter of fact. No, but I mean, I never do. considered Africa. So, um, um, you know, that's something that um, I will now put on my list to, to look at because I want to do something different. And I want to do something that's going to, you know, maybe turn some heads too. You know, that's, you know, it's all part of having fun with it. Challenge. A challenge is what it is. Yep. Yep. Well, that would probably be largely a scratch-building proposition, but I don't know. I mean, we have uh, a number of 
overseas modelers, overseas from my chauvinistic U.S. perspective. We have a number of overseas modelers uh, who uh, listen to the podcast, and they may have more information about uh, African railways than I do. Actually, there's some very nice stuff in Australia, too. Yeah, so we certainly have several uh, Australian experts uh, in our uh, in our group here, uh, Tom himself, and uh, earlier this evening we had Gordon Dobson calling in from Australia, and uh, he certainly could be of assistance there. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I, um, I talk a lot with John Hunter and Dan Picard, guys like that over there um, a lot, so good buddies. So, so tell me a little bit more about this, uh, this uh, kit, this O-scale kit, because they're, uh, they're relatively... Well, you know, not as common as HO kits. So uh, no. every time I hear of one, it's uh, something to look into. Well, it's a gorgeous kit, actually. And the, the price point on it is, is actually, I think he's too cheap. But um, it's a, a design based on a, on a Mike Chambers design. Um, uh, basically, it's a tie hacker's cabin. It's an old uh, uh, cabin uh, with a, uh, a, a, a secondary shed. Uh, and obviously, it's all um, it's all board on board, you know, pre-built. Uh, basically, I don't think there's a lot. There's not a lot of laser uh, siding on it at all. And um, you know, it uh, uh, nice castings, big chimneys. Uh, it's gorgeous. You go to Rusty Stumps website, and it's, I believe it's right there on the homepage. Um, I mean, what how the kit works? The, the and it's actually the, the kit's a good size. It comes with all kinds of castings. Um, it, uh, it's probably going to end up being a, a two foot by two foot diorama. Um, and, uh, I think he sells the, the kit for $94. Um, and the O scale kit doesn't come with the strip wood. So the strip wood runs, uh, about 40 bucks, uh, to pick up through, um, uh, New England scale lumber or somebody. And, uh, you know, for about 120 bucks or, or 130 bucks, you get yourself a, gorgeous uh, O-scale kit that, like I said, I'm really looking forward to not only uh, build for him, but to uh, use myself uh, in the end. So it's right up my alley. It's almost like one of those kits that, you know, if you've never really scratch built uh, and uh, one of those kits that can really kickstart your scratch building career because it's basically what you're doing uh, with it. Um, But it's really nice. Got a nice porch. It's raised. I know stumps, but I haven't been on their website recently. Yeah, you should see it right on his homepage. Picture of it. He's got all kinds of pictures from guys that have done the HO version and and so forth. So um, he's trying to get this O scale one uh, to uh, get some interest. So, and I think it's a it's a great idea, you know, to sell the kit for less and you know let them get their own strip wood. Some people have some strip wood already, so you can keep your costs down. Stripwood really isn't that much money to get anyway, so you know you can order extra or, or, or whatever you need, and and um, you know because the manufacturer's only going to buy the strip wood and charge you for it, so you know at least here and and you're going to end up paying the same. I mean, you're not like not like New England Scale Lumber to gives you any discounts. You get a discount, I think, when you place an eight hundred dollar order or higher. So you just don't buy the packets from them. You buy the individual pieces. Um, put your order together that way, and you, it almost it almost cuts your price in half. Um, I actually did it uh, on their site. I put together the whole order of, of just the, the, the packages 
of I think, a dozen pieces or whatever in each package, and I added up the, the number of strips that I needed. And, you know, it was like almost $70. But when I went back and did it with the individual pieces, it came up to like just over 40 um, Then I picked up 500 uh, O-scale uh, ties uh, to go with it because you're going to need a lot of ties, uh, stacks and stacks of railroad ties, and I want to fill a gondola with them and so forth. So, um but yeah, so to do it that way really can be cost effective. So, and it's a beautiful kit. So, well, that that's that's an interesting thought. Uh, if you were entering this kit into an NMRA contest, would it qualify as kit built or scratch built? Since you assembled, I don't even want to go there. I, you know what? Because <laughs> I just got, I kind of got nailed over at the NMRA Nationals for doing a kit built structure. They still want scratch built information. And um, I got dinged points because I didn't have pictures of my of a prototype. Well, there is no prototype on this case. Um, now, if this tie hacker's cabin, there also I'm not. I think it was based on a few different prototypes. But you know, how do you do that? I couldn't do that. It's a, it, this was a, a George Cellulose kit that I did. You know, so okay, well, it's a George Cellulose kit. We're just going to ding you points then. Well, okay. So I learned the hard way of of you know things I needed, and and they, you know they told me to just bring a picture of of any building that could be that building. Well, that doesn't make sense either to me. So anyway, so, you know, I, I live and learn and, and, and know what to do next for my paperwork. But that being said, I don't know where they'd position this because it is a kit. You follow the directions to the kit 100%, even though you're scratch building it techniques, you know, their rules is 90% or greater follow the instructions. It's kit built class. Sorry for going there. Was an idle. Oh no, it's all it's all good. You know, um, it was a great time. I, I took second place on the on the displays with my Crocker Brothers kit, and um, you know, I, like I said, the guy who took first did a wonderful job on a on a, a, a Sierra West uh, O scale small little little kit, and um, you know, he had the he had his paperwork right. He had the prototype pictures, and he had what he needed, and um, he certainly deserved to get the points and, and do what he did. So. Uh, live and learn, and, and you just don't make that mistake again. I think that's, you know, what you get out of it, and we'll go from there. But, uh, you know, see, I'm trying to get my MMR, so for me it's more all the points, you know, um, that it's all about. In fact, this switching layout, I want to be able to try to accomplish most of my MMR points with this one project, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I, I had assumed that... Uh you're probably looking for the points for the MMR, in which case, you know, where you placed would hopefully not be important. Right. Yeah, I mean, if if, 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 if placing and so forth is something that I want to do, I, I'll, I'll take something to the narrow gauge convention and, and put it in there and see how it goes. Because that's really truly where, to me, you know, the modelers that, you know, I follow and, and look up to are, are there. And, um, you know, to go up against them is, is sort of the... The tried and true, what you do to challenge yourself as as a model or as a person. So, uh, but NMRA stuff, there's just there's too many, you know, when it's not popular vote, there's just too many opinions that can be interjected from one region to another. And as long as I get my points, the thing that killed me was, and I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Crocker brother kit, but uh, a, a thing, but it almost didn't make merit. I mean, it, they, you know, what, 87 points, 87 and a half points is merit. I got an 88. I mean, that's what really got me thrown because most of the judges who saw it said you should get at least between a 102 and a 109 on this thing. Uh, and everyone was just shocked that it was an 88. I couldn't believe it. You know, so the point is, is I can take it 
to a different region and score higher on it because of someone else's opinion. And, and to me, you're not going to win contests that way. It's more, again, for the points and the MMR and 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 going through the, the motions of, of all the paperwork and everything. Yeah, uh, uh, understood. So let's uh, let's get off this subject because it sounds like... <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, that's the funniest thing is, is I lived... What every modeler told me that was going to happen happened and why a lot of people don't enter in those NMRA things. And, and you know, to me, that's the wrong attitude. Um, yes, there's different opinions and so forth, but it, that reason for those contests are for your points, your merit stuff, uh, and your MMRs and, and so forth. And that's how it needs to be taken, I guess. Yeah. Do you do any uh, of the prototype modelers meets, any, entering any of your models there? Well, I haven't. Um, in fact, I'm going to be going up to uh, the RPM West here um, in September, so here in San Bernardino. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to have anything there or not. But you see, even I, I, even though I prototype model, I I, I don't consider myself um, a, you know a Proto 48 type of guy. Um, I mean, I respect those guys. I think what they do is great, but. Myself, I kind of call my modeling um, proto-impressionism, where yeah, I want to be prototypically correct, you know, as much as I can, but I'm but I'm not afraid to embellish in a few places to let the mind take over, and let them see what I want them to see and understand that hey, if this is a, an older building or whatever, they they're going to know what it is and and their mind will take over. So in that case, sometimes you can't be prototypical with with some of your uh, effects and, and details and so forth. So, you know, anyway, that's sort of where I play. Yeah, understood, understood. I, I mean, there's I, so many different opinions of ways to do things and so many ways of, you know, that's right, that's wrong. Well, there's nothing that's right and there's nothing that's wrong. I mean, it's, you know, the way you do it is the way you do it. If you're happy with the results, that's what it's about. And if other people like what you do, wonderful. You know, so. Well, you know, to, to borrow a, a you know, Scotty Mason's phrase, it's all good. Um, but, you know, the, the person you have to please, and the reason why we're all doing this is, you know, you have to please yourself first. Because yep. you could have the, uh, uh, a, a model, a diorama, a model railroad that uh, would win all the kudos in the world, you know, from, from the judges or whomever. But if, if it doesn't please you, you're, you, you know, you're not going to either operate it or look at it or, or build it in the first place. Yep. So uh, ultimately, and you know, we've had lots of discussions on on the chat here um, about you know animation and how much is too much. You know, should you have any at all? Um, you know, even this morning we were talking about you know uh, post-apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, not this getting the show post-apocalyptic layouts, which is about as whimsical as you can get. But if if that's what you want to do. Well then, you know, have fun. You know, as uh, Scotty says, it's all good. Well, one thing is this: is is it realistically, it's not all good. Uh, there's plenty of lousy modelers out there, but they're not lousy in the effect that you know that's where they are. The point is, is they're learning, and the fact that they're doing something, uh, regardless on how it comes out, is what needs to be appreciated. Uh, and what needs to be, um, you know, applauded because the next one will get better, the next one will get better for most people, and it's the people who don't start and, and are more critical on, on other people that I have, I take issue with 
mostly, you know, mostly. Um, but, you know, I don't necessarily look at a model, you know, of, of its final look and, and whether it's something that, you know, looks good to me or not. I, you, know, you look at some craftsmanship, you look at different things that they've done, and you can take from that. Um, it may not be what you do, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, they're all the same. The fact is we're having fun doing the work, and that's what I don't think sometimes gets appreciated as often. That's why I go around and teach clinics. I try to teach simple things for people that they can try so that they can try to take their modeling to the next level. And, you know, hopefully if I can succeed with one person, then I've, I've done what I've tried to do. Well, I certainly agree with a couple of things you've said. I mean, the, uh, you know, the person who's doing certainly, I think, has, uh, is a step ahead of the person who's not doing and uh, I think you almost alluded to the person who not who doesn't do, but certainly knows how everyone else should do it, is uh, is not a happy situation. <laughs> but the other thing is, um, you know, if you have reached a level of modeling competence that you're comfortable with, and and you feel that you uh, need to go no more, um, you know, you can probably be happy there, and and maybe other people will consider your modeling uh not up to snuff but uh you know if uh if that's what you want to run in your basement or your spare room or your attic or wherever it is um you know uh i don't think we all have to make be the straight line uh straight to master model railroader but uh you know maybe no I'm but wrong. it's so it's so funny though i mean i you you, you you could have, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Dave Ravella model or, or uh, you know, Brian Nolan style model sitting next to, you know, something, you know, that maybe someone who um, just started, or maybe let's let's take it a, a, a child is done, and you know, my ten year old does scratch building, he does a great job. So when I say child, I don't necessarily mean lousy work. It's the venue because uh, a lot of times, because I've I've seen people go buy the most beautiful models. Uh, I mean, you can tell it there was hundreds of hours put in and go right by it to something that doesn't even compare, but it had something cool on it or something that they liked. And like, oh, wow, this is really neat. This is the best one here. And, you know, it's again, it's what people like to see the venue. You take that to that same model to some type of craftsman show or, or something where there's a lot of other competition there. And, it, and, it, and it's not and it may be overlooked uh, more so. But it's just amazing to me how the people's eyes go to certain things, and I learned a big lesson. No matter what train show you go to, no matter what you do, you put a diorama together, you want people to look at it and put more interest in it, put a train on it. <laughs> My diorama didn't have a train on it, and I'm telling you how many people just walked right by it and would stop at the ones that had trains on it. Well, this has to be a car. It doesn't have to be a whole train. So it's pretty much a rule I'm going to do. is Everything I do is going to have something in it, so... Uh, because that's what people want to see, you know. And these are things that you you look at and you learn when you when you get out there and and you and you and you contribute. Yeah, and it's it's it, it is all about the train, so that really shouldn't be surprising. The well, it's not, but, well but it's never been all about the trains for me. I love the trains. Um, I don't own one train. Okay, I, well, if you count my dad's, I own hundreds of them. But uh, you know. I like the steam era. I want to go buy some steam stuff, and I'm getting into that whole side of things. But my whole thing's been structure building, been scenery, um, you know, all that whole creative side of it. And that's why me and my dad in, in the layout is, is mesh because he's a he's a track guy. 
he, he likes bench work. I have to keep t- take, keeping him from tearing the layout down just so he can build bench work. Uh, and I go and do scenery, and, and now, he, now he wants, since he's retired, he wants to do more of that and learn how to do structure building more and wishes he spent more time on that stuff years ago so that people adjust and change in their own lives. But, you know, so that's, you know, from my end, the train side of it, I'm really trying to become a sponge. I'm trying to learn as much as I can in a lot of different things um, so that I can be more knowledgeable on that side. You know, building trains, you know, building boxcars and stuff, I mean, that's, to me, that's just like building a structure. It's like anything else. You know, so um, a collection of trains would be nice one day for myself. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, you and your father are a complementary pair if you can come to some sort of balance. Yep, absolutely. Not to mention we, we get along, so that helps. <laughs> yes, yeah, you know that's how that always can helps. be sometimes, yeah. Yes, I do. I'm, I'm a father myself. Yeah, I wanted to take this conversation in a completely different direction uh, into the dark future because I, too, dream of a post-apocalyptic model railroad. It's and coming, Tom. We don't have to wait long. 2012 is <laughs> right around the corner, man. Well, I mean, we're going to be modeling it anyway because it's going to be prototypical. <laughs> well, you live in—you've lived in Vegas, so you've probably seen the. My, my feeling is we're we're at ground zero here in Vegas for uh, for whatever may come. I, I'm really interested, and this is—I think we've we've had in the past Bruce Wilson on. He was in the chat periodically, and there is a a, a strong interest in the historical wargaming community from the Civil War. Uh, through to the First and Second World War associated with model railroading uh, and periods of war. And I think uh, any uh, post-apocalyptic wars, well, any post-apocalyptic setting needs to have a war zone element to it as well. I I think this is really a genre, particularly if you link it in some way with the wargaming community, although the scales aren't uh, aren't particularly good. Although O-scale does lend itself uh, actually to 28mm miniature wargaming. But I'm interested in exploring this as a topic because certainly I've thought a lot about uh, doing post-apocalyptic scenarios in particular, you know, adding armor plating and a variety of other things to existing trains because obviously that's the way the the apocalypse would take it. But um, the other thing that strikes me is that we have folks like Al Mayo, who's a... um, Are you familiar with Al Mayo's work, his weathering techniques? Uh, A little bit. I haven't um, spent a lot of time with his stuff, but he's he's got some familiarity stuff. Certainly. I mean, when he goes really heavy-handed with the weathering, when it's almost like, you know, blackening a Union Pacific, I, I see that in a kind of post-apocalyptic scenario as well. When you get into building structure kits, uh, if, if you do short runs associated with post-apocalypse, I think you'll you'll have at least one customer here. What What is your vision of the apocalypse? Well, mine is not um, sort of the Mad Max side of things. Um I think mine is almost more on the Book of Eli side of things where, you know, people just try to live and, and they, they scrounge with what they can. And, you know, you've got uh, small towns that maybe things have been picked apart. Um, maybe you've Isn't got a railroad still running through. I think through. that was Mad Max as well. I'm, I'm trying to see the distinction in those two things. Well, I think Mad Max, it was it was even more whimsical in the fact of, you know, real crazy vehicles with spikes and, you know, I mean, these crazy people with, with mohawks riding around versus, you know, normal life. 
but we're in this world of, you know, whether it's something happened, whether it was a, a war or whether it was something else, um, you know, I, I just was more interested in taking it on a more tasteful thing, what would really happen in real life uh, versus, again, the Mad Max side of it. I just mm. see Mad Max. I, don't, I never liked that movie. I never went down that road, but... It was just, it's just too, to me, that's too crazy because I don't see that as realistic versus, um, like I was, like I was thinking if you rebuilt Dick Elwell's layout, you know, the Hoosick Valley site <laughs> and b- built it in the fact that it was at a time period of post-apocalyptic where you're going to have, you know, some things aren't going to be standing anymore. You're going to have, you know, um, you know, more, uh, maybe more camps and I mean, it's just a whole different feel to it, but it's the same layout. And to side by side them, to me, could be very interesting. Not that I would build the Hoosick Valley and do that, but you know, my point is, is to take something real or something that people know and and do do something tasteful to it. In the fact of, you know, that it's a different world. And and the reason that interests and it, I think it interests a lot of people is, you know, I mean, I don't pull much stock in all this 2012 stuff, but you know, the point of the matter is, is that it's on the tip of people's tongues. People are talking about it. Uh, it's out there. There's more and more movies coming out about it. And, um, you know, I, I certainly think it can be done. Just gotta be, in my eyes, it's got to be tasteful because if not, yeah, no one will take it seriously. I want, I want people to take it seriously. That's <laughs> the difference. It's interesting because certainly Mad Max, I mean, from my perspective, it's an Australian film. And particularly having traveled around country towns in Australia that basically, and I think the same is true in the South. I mean, I've, I've known people that have had these kind of experiences in Georgia country towns as well that if you have like a dominant family that, that that takes over i no, you see having seen mad breaks i think and particularly well, of course the there's an element one. of bad that takes over you know and and but you know um how far you take that yeah maybe you take an old a town you take a town of bellis falls what's going to happen uh in a, in a situation like that well maybe it's no longer an open town. You can shut down. You build up some walls. It becomes more of an encampment inside there versus, you know, where they're protecting themselves from outside folk and, and so forth, because that you'll have to definitely do. You'll have to, you know, in fact, there's been a lot of talk, you know, you know, if it ever did happen, that you're going to see a lot of these gated communities and stuff, people pull their resources together and, mm. and sort of hold, hold their own. And, you know, you, you know, things like that can be modeled very easily. So then I think you're approaching the kind of Mad Max scenario as well. I think there's a there's a continuum here, and our visions of the apocalypse aren't quite. Uh, aren't well, quite I, I just don't want to. I, I just don't see you know big spikes coming off of a, the front of a train, you know, to ram something that might be in its way, uh, because I, I still think at that point the society is going to want to still be a little bit more. It'll get past your point and, and be more, uh, uh, I guess. Uh, more civil, um, in a way. Uh, the civil calming apocalypse. The Jimmy Simmons view. What What's the era, though, Tom? You're you're you're, uh, you're, era, yeah. you're you're modeling an early apocalyptic era, where I may be modeling, you know, twenty years after the apocalypse, <laughs> after things have settled down, right? Uh, yeah. They're not going to have the building materials. They're not going to have this stuff still, like 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 they would have. Uh, so there's there's going to be that, you know, that uh, you know, plunder everything you can from every building you can affect. Um, but it's, you know, you're, you're past the, 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 the crazy spikes and the Mohawk people. Uh, <laughs> well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, a, a discussion of the apocalypse without the one and only Jim Lincoln on the line. Hello, Jim. 
Change the subject, Jim, please. I'm I'm going to get it again for this one. What? This must be Jimmy Simmons. Hey, buddy, what's up? Not too bad. Not not much, not much. And I I, I have, remember, I'm just dialing in on Skype. I have no idea what's been going on. So it was just the talk of the apocalypse said, ah, must be Jimmy Simmons. And I don't know why I got that rap. I mentioned it once on the Scotty show, and and it's, it's been nothing but emails and it, it, like I said, it, it like you said, Tom, it's got to be some kind of interest because it caused a lot of discussion. It did, and and you know, uh, my my point is is tastefulness. Well, tastefulness. Well, the other thing is, I mean, no one can argue with you because there is no real prototype for it. So it's like, hey, you can kind of do what you want. That's what we've been doing for the past ten minutes here, Jim. Well, what's the difference with doing a Lego site, a, a Lego, uh, you know, a, a Lego layout? There's, there's nothing. nothing, you know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with it. So, I mean, no. it's... Whatever makes you happy. Oh, that's not what I'm modeling. I would, you know, it's, I think it's a great idea, and I think it's something that uh, deserves some maybe thought at some point, but not not at this stage in, in what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's certainly, if you started building structures for this, particularly in O, you would have a really strong market in the wargaming community. And I think... Uh, no matter what direction you took the apocalypse. And certainly I would be buying the structures as well, but however, I would be modeling and weathering them for the early apocalypse, as you've described, rather than the later apocalypse. <laughs> we, were, we were talking, Jim, we were, we were talking about the errors of an apocalypse, where Tom uh-huh. was more interested in modeling like the, the fresh apocalypse, where it's, you know, Mad so Max, uh, uh, you've got uh, uh, Mohawk people with spike trains ramming people, where... I'm modern like 20 years later where it's all settled down. you got real life going on. and <laughs> mm-hmm. with, with the funky chaps and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I got the tattoos, so I already fit in on that aspect, so. Well, you know, but I, it's certainly unique. And I think the point that I, what, who was it, brought out about, um, you could take this into, say, World War II, where you have the bombed-out buildings, the bombed-out right. rail yards, things like that. So it's it's not totally out of the realm of, no, uh, it isn't, and, and that I is where it. I my I, like I was saying earlier, the layout that I really want to build is more like a Civil War era, um, you know, layout where you incorporate both. Um, uh, to me, that's the most interesting because I, I I don't do a lot of war gaming, you know. And in fact, I was a big Dungeons and Dragons player when I was a kid, you know. But you know, the military stuff, anything models. I mean, it's the stuff is fun to do if you can incorporate <laughs> it all. And when I start doing structure kits down the road, you know, I don't want to. I'm not going to alienate uh, industries. You know, if you can do mm-hmm. something that'll fo- roll over into a different market, all the better for me. Um, you know, so, you know, it's one of those well, things. The other thing that Scotty's brought out, too, is that if you're going you're gonna to be successful in the model railroad business, you have to have a niche. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, no one's selling that niche yet, so <laughs> the apocalyptic niche has not been filled. There we go. <laughs> we'll have to see if, my, if, not- the, if the laser can... Uh, do some neat apocalyptic stuff on on the uh, on the siding. Well, I mean, you just I'm have sure to uh, you have to give instructions in the kit about how to burn the siding. That's all. <laughs> Build the kit, and then step on it. And burn. Well, I think that's what um, George Sellers did with one of his burned out buildings. After he burned it, yeah, he, yep. he lit it with a lighter and then kept a bottle a spray bottle of water nearby and just kept spraying it with water until it got the effect he wanted. I, I mean, this. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I mean, that... Nope. If it works, we, we, for you. We, yeah, well, 
and you and, and you know you don't burn your house down at the same time. That's right. As, as yes. we have two Jims on the call, I will refer to you as Mr. Lincoln. Um, uh-huh. well, I go by Jimmy anyway, so I know, you know, but, you yeah, know. we're perfectly fine there. My, see, my dad goes as Jim. Okay, uh, so when we, when we joined the NMRA, uh, it, it, was, it was total confusion constantly. So I just said, forget it. I'll go back to Jimmy. We'll just make it easy on everybody. Because my dad is Jim Simmons, and I'm Jim Simmons. So, you know, having it happen works out all that way. So, Mr. Lincoln. Returning yes. to that point, what, what is what is new in your model railroading hobby? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, I have only barely had the time to print out Ben's uh, diagram to do his turnout. I've actually done that, but I've been so busy with the new job that, mm. uh, and I guess uh, Mike Rose tells me that he told guys that uh, the NBCR had stolen me. Has has kidnapped me from his from his railroad, which is essentially true. Yeah, I so, had the anticipation that this would tell Mike to do his own stuff. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, I keep changing it up, and you know, and I can't expect him to be on the same level as me when I keep changing the game. That's just when just when we have the whole thing like moving along pretty smooth, I change my mind to do something else and step it up a level. Uh, nothing wrong with that. In no, the end, he, he, he's going to make out in the end, so you know it'd be nice, yeah. real nice work. It looks really nice. And thank you very much. Uh, I mean, it's like this one turnout that I um, I pulled the pulled the fast track frog out and I put in a details west uh, frog in it, and it functions okay. It's just um, the gauge is a little off, so I gotta I gotta fix it so there's it doesn't clatter when it goes over. It clatters like. It does in real life, but it doesn't do it the way it's supposed to. So it's not supposed to clatter. Models aren't supposed to clatter. Real ones clatter. So gotta fix well, it. If they clatter too much, they're going to fall apart. You, well, did, Jim, have you had any, any luck uh, or any work with those cobalt uh, switch throw machines versus using, like, say, the Blue Point? Cobalt? Yeah, cobalt is this new product that... Um, Basically, no, the simple answer is no. All right. We were no, having issues with the with the blue point stuff, and and uh, I started talking to someone about these cobalt switches, which you can hook right up to the layout. They're powered, and I uh, just having issues with things throwing. I just didn't know if you knew them, so no big. No, no, I haven't done that. I I haven't done that. We, um, you know, I've dealt with tortoise. I've used uh, bullfrogs from Fast Tracks. Those work pretty good. Um, and then we have this new funky little thing. Mike and I created so, um, which works really cool, and it looks great. I'm very pleased with it. So, very realistic look, and it's um, and the basic the the, the gen you know the the basic of the design is because it looks realistic, it's fairly strong, and you can have one or two of the six solder joints fail. And it will still function, which is pretty cool. You know, one of those solder points are going to fail eventually at some point. Eventually, I mean, and, and at least it's good to know that you know if one of them fails in the middle of an operating session, you're not crud out of luck. Hey, we're going to have to teach you how to solder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no, I'm, I do just fine. Thank you very much. It's Clark, Jim. I was just going to say, that sounds oh, like Clark. Clark. Oh, Clark. Hey, Clark, Clark, how you doing? I okay. should have known. <laughs> I'm uh, phoning in from uh, northern Ontario, so... That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm phoning in from the bowels of South Station. So. Yeah, I saw that on a Facebook comment, so good. So I think we probably need to start with some congratulations because my understanding is that you've now been officially recognized in some way and, and received an award. Um, would you like to tell the listening audience a little more about that? Okay, a little embarrassed, but uh, I received the NMRA uh, President's Award um, at the NMRA convention, and uh, it was a very nice uh, surprise. Uh, and. Um, it was uh, for the years of service to the board and to the NMRA that I have uh, that I have done in the past, and uh, so that was also that was a nice uh, surprise. And uh, just to let the listeners know, and when the voting starts in in uh, I guess January February, I'm going to be running for the NMRA vice president job. Gosh. I already told you you got my vote there, Clark, and um, <laughs> congratulations on uh, on the award. That's that's well deserved, man. I mean, uh, yeah, they, they must have gave you that right after I left the uh, the banquet uh, at the convention because I didn't see you get it. So I apologize for that. No, that's okay. Uh, they, uh, uh, that I was couldn't keep my eyes open during all them great train videos. The music was just so mostly slow music, you know, and it was just like, oh, come on, speed it up or something. The video yeah. was gorgeous, uh, but uh, I, I just couldn't do it. I was so busy that whole show. Yeah, I know. And uh, for the listeners and for the guys who weren't at the convention, uh, Jimmy and uh, Scotty had the booth basically right next to Tim Morris and myself uh, with Fast Tracks, and they were doing uh, the Iwata, and, and Jimmy had his model work stuff. And we had a great time yelling back and forth across the aisle. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that was a good time. I, in fact, that was—I uh, I didn't even know at first that you guys were right there. We were so busy. Then I turn up, and there you are building turnouts all the show. So, uh, um, yeah. And I hardly—and I hardly ever got spray painted by you. That you know what? I got a couple people, but uh, most people <laughs> ran away fast enough. You know, try to you know catch them as they're walking by. Come on, free makeup. <laughs> I was doing a lot of the demonstrations for the Iwata people um, and showing people how to use the airbrush and doing different things and had a lot of fun with it. And uh, the biggest fun was letting all the kids come up and play because they would write their name and they would draw in little pictures. And uh, I had a few kids actually come up that actually weather freight cars and they were looking for a new airbrush and, and saw some of their work. And we're, I'm talking, you know, 10 to 14 year olds. Uh, unbelievable, wonderful work uh, that some yeah. of these kids were doing. So there are youngsters out there that are doing a lot of work that to help keep this hobby going. So we got to keep uh, uh, pushing those kids and, and supporting them. So yeah, that's. Uh, so we, uh, I saw a couple kids over there, and you were uh, taking your time and explaining to them, and I thought that was great. And uh, and I didn't see you have a big uh, white stripe across your. Uh, your chest, so all was good. They were aiming at the paper, but um, yeah, actually, was, actually, Scotty has a uh, a little thing that he does where when kids are that interested and he and he notices, he actually will send them a, a whole set of all his DVDs as almost like a little scholarship type support thing for the for the kids. And he did that to about I think about four little kids uh, that were really into the hobby, and one of them was actually even in our our airbrushing workshop that we did, one mm -hmm. of the three hour ones. 
that his dad brought him up. He, his dad's not a model railroad. This is this 14-year-old kid who's a member of the Balboa uh, Park, uh, uh, the La Mesa group down here, you know, the museum, the yeah. railroad museum. He's a member there and goes and works on that layout. He's 14 oh, years old. His dad drove him up to Sacramento. So, you know, we hooked him up with a bunch of DVD. He didn't even know it. We just shipped him to him. And he was so, I mean, it's stuff like that that we got to do to to encourage these kids. Yeah, and that's fabulous that a father would uh, would drive him up there, you know, almost six-hour drive, uh, depending on how you come to uh, to support his son. So kudos to him, too, uh, uh, especially if he's not in the hobby, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah, in uh, fact, when they when they came into the workshop, I, I thought you know it was just the son there with his dad, yeah. and so I just sort of ignored it because we didn't have any airbrushes left. These were just sort of sitting only because they, they had to sign up if they were going to use the airbrush. And uh, next thing I know, I see him sitting next to a guy sharing an airbrush, and I, I was like, "Wait a minute, you're doing?" He's like, "Yeah, I do this." And he turns to me and he says, "Are you the guy that does the monster nailer?" And I just kind of turned my head and I said. I said, yeah. I said, how'd you hear about that? He goes, oh, online, you know. And so, you know, of course, I, I turned around and I gave him one, and he was all jazzed. And, I mean, it's... Hey, it's, I, had it's, paid, I had to pay 20 bucks. Yeah, but you're not 14. <laughs> uh, you, you know what? It was in, so, you know, so again, I see him sharing an airbrush. I, I went and dug up an extra airbrush and got him set up with his own station so he could sit there for three hours and airbrush with everybody else. And That's great. I mean, it's, yeah. that's, you know, like I said, that is, you know, what just makes me want yeah. to continue doing this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We had uh, three or four kids come to Mind with the Masters, and uh, a couple sat with their parents, and we had one young fellow who basically came in and did it on his own, and it was fabulous. We put through 180 uh, people through the Mind with the Masters program, all building something, and and uh, you you probably saw us out in the street spray painting, and we were glad we didn't get arrested, so it was all was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you 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 skated by there fine. Yeah, at one point no, uh, no riot Tom, police. The, yeah, Tom for and for the rest of the listeners, we were building a DPM um, model, and Miles and Fran Hale and John Lawrence were the primary guys. So Miles and I are outside with our spray bombs. We must have had probably ten ten cans of spray bombs, and we're standing there on the corner in downtown Sacramento, right in front of the hotel. And all these guys would come down with their with their sort of rough building, and we would spray paint it, and then they'd go back upstairs, and then they'd come down with their roof, and we'd spray paint that. And then they'd go back up, and they'd come back with an awning, and we'd spray paint that. And, uh, you know, people from the convention who would come down, they say, hey, are you guys giving a street corner clinic? <laughs> <laughs> we uh we we had uh, they moved our 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 airbrush workshop back to the the hotel. It was originally in one of the clinic rooms, and uh, unfortunately, we got twenty plus people spraying air airbrush in that in that room. The room is closed in. You could yeah. you, you were swimming through the 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 you know the the fumes. It's all it was all acrylic paint, but I mean it's still poisonous. So we kept opening the door up, but was right next to it was the bar and the restaurant uh, where oh. they put us. So it's like, well, well, well you, someone's you gonna get it. Were in, you guys were in our room. Did it have the plastic on the floor? No, no, there's no plastic on the floor. We were in uh, we were on oh. the second floor of, of the of the uh, the Sheridan. Yeah, next that's to the where bar. we did modeling of the masters. Oh yeah, no, there was no plastic on the floor though. They must have picked oh, okay. that stuff up. Yeah, yeah, that's where we were doing all the airbrushing. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. We've been talking for about three and a half hours now, and this is the first actual discussion of Sacramento. 
can you describe, firstly, how many people attended? My understanding, I was hoping to see more photos through Facebook, but my understanding is that those that attended basically were so busy through the, uh, through the days that it was on that, uh, you know, Facebook updates were few and far between. What kind of numbers were there? What was the general feeling? And uh, did, uh, did Tim actually let you out so you could walk the floor occasionally? Yes, uh, at the the actual convention drew about 2,100 people. Um, you would have been right at home. They had about uh, 55 people from Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, they had a special uh, open bar session evening for all the Australians <laughs> and uh, the all, and the New Zealanders, and they had a great evening. And uh, I know the board went down to thank them for traveling all that way and. Uh, um, at the train show, I believe the attendance was 20,000. Wow. So, um, it was a oh, very wow. successful convention, a very well run, uh, Ray DeBleek and his crew did a fabulous job. Uh, the train show staff who run the actual train show is a, is a separate group. They did a fabulous job. And if you were anywhere near Sacramento, you saw these huge billboards with, you know, national train show on and the dates and. Uh, they did a lot of publicity, and uh, I know talking to several vendors, uh, uh, and I'm sure Jimmy will say the same thing, uh, uh, and I know Tim, uh, they were very happy with, with uh, um, you know, the attendance and the outcome, uh, which is, you know, on the retail side was fabulous. Yeah, we, we, uh, we had actually record sales numbers from any other show we've done this year. And, uh, you know, we actually brought more than what we thought we would need. And we sold out of that before the first day was over. And that was just from the NMRA folks having their free access on that half a day on Friday. Uh, We had then two more deliveries come in because we had some people from the the home warehouse that was up here drive down some more stuff and sold most of that stuff out for the water for the water product. And it was nuts. I mean, just couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I, I didn't get, not get around as much as I wanted to because I really wanted to go around and do some networking for, for my own. In fact, I was so busy with the airbrush, my, my Monster Model Work stuff was just sort of in the back corner. And unless you were there specifically to see me, even most people, you know, didn't even get to see me because it was just so busy. Um, Friday was, was absolutely crazy, eh, Jim? Yeah. It was, Jimmy, yeah. it was just you could not get out of the booth. People were there. They were highly interested um, a very good uh, crowd that seemed to know what they want on on the Friday, especially. Yeah, And um, it, they were very well educated in model railroading, and uh, and I hope we have a few <laughs> new listers. I had all the pamphlets in the booth. I had uh, given out all the pamphlets uh, on Thursday night in the bar a few times, and I think I went through about uh, oh probably three hundred pamphlets, easy. So. Uh, I hope uh, there's some new listeners out there, and uh, if you are, welcome, and uh, we'll certainly see and uh, hear from you, hopefully, in the future uh, shows. Um, i got to run, you guys. Um, the card game is starting here with the family, and uh, um, one of the board games is kind of a tradition here at the cottage, uh, so I'm going to go and do that. And uh, You playing Texas Hold'em with your kids? No, we're playing uh, <laughs> golf. <laughs> golf. And, uh, that sounds I, good. No, I get a run too, but um, no, this was great. I mean, I'll do this more often. I had a blast. Yeah. Well, Tom, I will give you a full report uh, 
and I've got a ton of pictures I've taken, and uh, we'll get, we'll hopefully get that up and out to everybody. And uh, um, I didn't do any recording; I was just too busy for that. But uh, I hear that. <laughs> um, certainly, talking to a lot of guys and stuff that, uh, and for future guests, they're willing to phone in and and talk to us. So we'll be uh, we'll be right on that. Very good, very good. A pleasure having Excellent. you on, Clark, as always, and. Jimmy, I'm looking forward to having you on many, many times in the future. Yeah, and like I said, um, once I get a couple other things uh, settled with my dad's layout, I'll, I'll end because I'm going back. I go back and forth to Vegas all the time. So, um, you know, what we'll do is we'll have you come out and have you do one of the little impromptus. And you know, my mm. dad, yeah, my dad, he's, you know, he's kind of like, no, I don't want to do that stuff. I don't want to hear what I have to say. You know, he's. Guess that, but you once you get him talking about Boston and Maine and all that stuff, I mean, he just goes off. I mean, he's he's got such a a, a repertoire of, of things that he's done and 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 so forth that, like I said, you just get him. We have to get him started. It's about what we'll have to do. So yeah, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll probably bring a, a camera or two as well. I've I've got uh, I've got Jason Reese in the chat uh, saying bring a camera, and yeah, certainly I will be bringing a camera as well. Maybe maybe slightly less shaky than my Ted Stevens. Uh, I did Stephen's layout, uh, but nonetheless, I'm guys, I don't mean that. to be rude. I don't mean to cut in, but I'm going to say goodnight and uh, to all the new listeners. Please join us. And Tom, thank you very much as always for hosting us. Not a problem. Right. Take Talk to you later, Jimmy. Bye, Bye Mark. Mark. And Jimmy, All I understand right. that you need to go as well. So, yeah, I'm going to uh, get going. Uh, if, if, uh, if anyone's interested in, you know, some of the tips and things I mentioned, my website is is got plenty of that stuff on it. I try to put most of my stuff up there, monstermodelworks.com. But uh, other than that, um, all that stuff's free to download and, and, and use and, and uh, contact me if you have any other questions. So, yeah, I look forward to calling in again. And if you want to see him in person, sign up for CSC 11 in Mansfield, yeah. Massachusetts. Yes, yes, we'll be we'll be there. We'll be at the Navigation <laughs> Convention. We're going to be at the RPM show. We're going to be at the Flagstaff uh, NMRA Regional here in September. We've got a lot of stuff going on. So get out there, guys, and participate. So... All Thanks right, for well, in, Jimmy. Hey, no problem, guys. Enjoy. Take care. See you. Nice talking to you. Bye. So, Jim, now we only have yes. one Jim on the call. Excellent. <laughs> what do you know? I, I, I was going through the, um, the listeners associated with this very program, and uh, uh-huh. two countries stood out in the top five, I think. One was Sweden and the other was Hong Kong. We have uh-huh. uh, 300-odd, more than, I think it was 350, around that number, in Hong Kong, which is a relatively uh-huh. small island. Ironically, my father also called through the show, and he's moving to Hong Kong. So uh-huh. um, my my plan is actually probably to get out to Hong Kong sometime and, and meet the listeners of Bubble Wow Radio on location, because I'm really interested. I mean, my understanding of the kind of size space dynamics of Hong Kong is that they probably have uh, relatively small shelf layouts for these kind of things, maybe hyper detailing, but I want to hear from the, the Hong Kong listeners. In, in your model railroading pursuits, have you ever heard of Swedish or Hong Kong model railroading at all? No. Maybe Swedish, but not Hong Kong. But, <laughs> what have you heard about not Swedish not, model railroading? Nothing. I mean, like I said, maybe. Okay. Uh, you know, and of course, I don't think he's Swedish. Uh, who? Oh, now I can't think of his name. Um, 
I know who you're talking mm-hmm. about. I think he's Norwegian. Uh, Norwegian. Okay. Yeah. Right. Pell Solberg. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he's Norwegian. I think you're right, because, yeah, he's not Swedish. But um, even that, you know, and um, I think there was the other uh, interest. A couple of the, the, the uh, countries were interested, you know, like Czech Republic, and a couple of them were like, really? <laughs> They're listening? Cheevers. Yeah, no, Hong I, Kong. Certainly... I mean, Hong Kong, we've heard before, and Sweden was a surprise. Czech Republic, and there was a Germany, couple of the ones in the book. Russia, Germany. Romania. Yeah. Romania, right, yeah. It's like, really? Okay. The thing is, in the top ten, when, I you, got down, <laughs> when you got down to the kind of 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, through to about 25, we're all in that uh, kind of 100-odd listeners category. I think Finland was right after Romania. I wasn't sure where to put the cut in because there were just a number of countries that had you know, like 100 listeners. I mean, it, it was quite astonishing to me. What I found particularly well, fascinating about it was that uh, the order at which the kind of top five countries were. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. I mean, I, I would have thought we would have had, I would have thought it would be US, Canada, maybe UK, Australia, not US, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Hong Kong, and then the UK. Right. <laughs> yeah, I would, not, I would not think that UK would be behind Australia. And New Zealand wasn't on there? New Zealand, New Zealand wasn't was, on there, which I found quite extraordinary. I think New Zealand was only about eighty listeners. And then uh, what was the other one? Because uh, I'm not I'm not looking at the list right now. The, but the, yeah, I'll give you the list anyway for folks listening in. Uh, the US obviously it's got nineteen thousand and change. Australia seventeen hundred and change. Canada twelve hundred and change. Sweden nearly five hundred. Hong Kong uh, nearly four hundred. The UK at nearly 300 which i found astonishing germany is just what 19 under 19 listeners under the uk so a german listenership i'm fascinated by model railroading in germany uh and i'd really dearly like to hear from some of our german listeners then the czech republic which again i mean germany is 259 the czech republic is 244 which Mm. means there are and i think by numbers the czech republic's suitably smaller i then divided per million and uh, Australia comes up on top. Uh, for every million people in uh, in Australia, 78 are model rail radio listeners. In the United States, it's 62. Sweden mm-hmm. and Hong Kong again tied, 53. Canada, mm-hmm. now you'd think listening to the show that we would be maybe 200 in every million in Canada, but only 37. And then the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. 23. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Canadian list. maybe we just get a majority of our Canadian listeners on. <laughs> There you go. The, yeah, the, the turnover of actual listenership. But yeah, I found it fascinating, and I'm not a statistics tracker. I mean, I, I'm just amazed by the success of Bottle Rail Radio, um, and certainly offline chatting with Jimmy Simmons about it. Uh, mm-hmm. The format seems to be very uh, addictive. Um, but uh, I just by chance wanted to actually, you know, just throw some statistics out associated with the countries. Uh, because certainly we haven't covered Swedish or Hong Kong model railroading, although my friend Paul, who's an Australian native now living in Hong Kong, has supplied magazines to us in the past. But the magazines that he supplied were US, UK and Australian. There were no Hong Kong uh, native model right. railroading magazines. Although I'm fascinated. I do know that, um, uh, and this is surprising also, that Japan isn't on there. I think Japan is in the in the 10 to, in the tw- in the 11 to 20 range. I seem to recall Japan was pretty high uh, in the stats. 
But the Japanese model railroading community is pretty strong. I know this because my other passion, artificial life software, uh, when I get published in other publications, so I like this is associated with software publications, I always ask for the magazines and what have you. And the Japanese publication that I was published in, like there was a quarter of it devoted to model railroading software, uh, all hmm. Japanese specific. But it was quite fascinating to me that they had everything from very detailed kind of layout planning to scheduling software to basically everything and like cutesy software as well, where you have very simple layouts that you then put your, I don't know, fluffy anime kind of toy-like things in <laughs> and then drive around the train track. I mean, just amazing quantities of model railroading software, which kind of gave me the insight that there's probably a quite a substantial community in Japan. Uh, the other thing is that may, that may lend itself a little bit better to the space constraints constraints that they may have. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, from what I've heard, you know, what we saw that um, a model railroader had a gentleman from Tokyo guy. I forget what his name was. He had a beautiful uh, New York Central layout, which which was quite large, but that's the, not the normal uh, railroad that you're going to see in Japan. Certainly, certainly. And this is what interests me about uh, all these all these countries uh, that uh, we have a sizable listenership, and basically, if it might be a way, I mean, they probably already have clubs and existing communities there, but it might be a way to actually introduce people. Uh, who are listening in as well. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, Jim, taking tack, t- turning completely, your experiences now in, in kind of, uh, I don't know what, what the terminology is, uh, passenger freight. <laughs> commuter, commuter rail. Commuter freight, yeah, commuter rail. What have you learned in the past few weeks? I mean, have you had any like meaningful insight? I'm, I'm, I'm getting the sense that kind of timetables and these kind of things are probably more critical and you've described... Uh, in the, your, the last episode, your customer service experience. Um, but w- what are you learning on the job? What am I learning on the job? Uh, what? <laughs> that's an ass, that's an interesting question for which I only have two minutes to explain. Um, that, yeah, the, the the schedule is much more important. You have to be. I'm dealing with more cash now than I have in decades. Um, paying for, you know, paying for things with cash now because I have it, um, and just having a cat, you know, handle a lot of that and just dealing with customers, being nice to people and dealing with a lot more people, the different personalities and things. Um, a lot of the railroaders here that sort of kind of know what they're doing really appreciate having the five of us who came from CSX come Mm -hmm. because we know how to do railroady things if that makes sense. A lot of people here can open doors. They can deal with customers. They can take money. They can count money. But when, you know, stuff happens and things break um, or, you know, go into a yard and switch cars around and things like that, it doesn't concern us. We know how to do the nitty-gritty of how to operate a railroad safely where a lot of these, they have no training at all. Yeah. you know, they were, you know, here's the yard moving on. This is a switch moving on. I mean, they, you know, whereas, you know, I went into a situation last week, I did something that the guy that I was with was totally amazed that I was willing to do. Um, 
and I was thinking, um, boy, if I was at CSX, they would <laughs> they would put me out of service for this. <laughs> but but it didn't. I mean, I knew how to do it, and I wasn't ferociously concerned. But I could have got significantly hurt. Yeah. Um, it you know, but it it just didn't concern me to do it, and it it, it they appreciate having somebody who can just walk in and they don't have to babysit. Um, doing these types of things, you know the like I said, the real roadie type of things, which is coupling cars and radio procedures and all this other stuff. You know, they like people that it's amazing. The the different levels of training. That's, you know, that's what I found is just is, you know, people who work on a passenger railroad, they just don't, um, they're not as in tune with how a railroad works, shall we say. Certainly. But I guess in terms of the compact space, I mean, what you were dealing with previously were, what eight hour plus journeys in each direction. Whereas now, I don't know how how long is your journey typically from terminating point to terminating point? About an hour, maybe an hour yeah. and twenty minutes. Um, but the schedule is, you know, sometimes like today I have an eight hour straight schedule, and I have to go in a minute. Um, but um, a lot of times, what I'll do is I'll do one or two runs in the morning. Um, I had a regular schedule before I was displaced this last week and I went to Fitchburg. Um, I started the station in Fitchburg. Uh, you take a train in over oh, the, the, the 406 out of Fitchburg, which leaves at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, you bring it into Boston North station. Uh, the, the Boston North and South stations are separated. There is no connection really. Um, and then you would take uh, a train to Newburyport, which is uh, up north of Boston on the coast new report and then return and then you would go on what's called a release for six hours which you don't do anything you just go on sleep essentially mm-hmm. if it's a longer release uh when i was on the south side i actually went home <laughs> i would um catch a train go home my parents would pick me up bring me to the house i'd take a nap do stuff go back to the train take the train back into boston and then take a train back to providence mm-hmm. so it's a totally different um but, you know, the, the people here around here on the railroad that complain have never worked for a freight railroad. You know, mm-hmm. they complain about how horrible the things are and dealing with customers. And, oh, man, it's hot. And it's like, hot? Hot? At least we go in and out of air conditioning. It says on a, day like to, on a day like this, I would be outside for 10 hours in the sun, in the heat, with no escape, just mm-hmm. outside by myself doing my work. Mm. instead of being in and out of air conditioning all day. So please don't complain to me. (laughs) This is a party in comparison. But anyway, that being said, um, I have a train that leaves at 1120, uh, for which I need to go get prepared with my conductor. So um, always always a pleasure. And thank you much, uh, Tom, for uh, doing all this. And if everybody's still going on the post show, well, now the post show ends at midnight. So Yeah, we're kind I, of running short for the post show. Yeah, <laughs> Jason I will, and I, I have a discussion to have, and then I think we'll wrap this thing up, Jim. Roger Dodger. Well, greetings and salutations to everyone, and it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Have fun, Jim. Take care. All right, bye. So, Jason, it's just you and me and a trove of listeners on the line currently. I don't even know if we call this a post-show or if we uh, we just have a few additional discussions here. 
I've I've really enjoyed your recent contribution uh, to the show, and uh, if I recall correctly, and this is indicative of my uh, my weeks uh, not working on the trains, but uh, effectively doing something similar. Um, you have a you have a Jason at modelrailradio.com email address now. Yeah, I, I, I apparently uh, you know made it through the induction ceremony <laughs> and uh, all the fun things that uh, go with that and given the you know honorable title of uh, a, a great email address for people to uh, haunt me with. I think the discussion that you gave uh, associated with uh, fixing locomotives in particular, but I mean also I mean all, all your all your contributions to date, but that is an area that I think is uh, kind of a perpetual issue for folks once they get past the probably even within their first layout. They may uh, encounter various locomotive issues, and uh, your checklist, I think, was uh, was very wisely served. In terms of your past uh, past few weeks of model railroading, uh, what 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 has occurred recently? Not much. Uh, I'm I just have been swamped with just outdoor duties, and the worst part is, is it's been so miserably hot mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, you just get home and. The heat just burns all your energy out of you, and we, I just haven't had the urge to do much other than a few outdoor chores. Um, I We went down to our uh, club. I've been going to that on our Monday nights, and uh, it, it was interesting. We're in the middle of Iowa, and uh, we're apparently we've decided to model uh, the high desert of California and into Arizona. And so uh, one of our club members uh, used to live out there, so he pulled out all of his picture railroad pictures from there, and I pulled out a paint deck, which is you know hundreds and hundreds of samples of paint colors, and we went through and started matching some uh, base colors Jeez. for landscaping to get our basic color in, and uh, so after hmm, probably about an hour of debating, oh is that right really? No, it's a little more red. <laughs> red and uh, you know and the funny part is we're doing this all underneath uh artificial incandescent lights and Definitely. you yeah. really want to do this you should be outside under the sun and that'll help but uh we finally settled on two separate colors one for uh kind of the more mountainy region of uh central california and one for the desert region um which i was surprised i would have figured the desert area would have been a lighter kind of beige color uh, than the high mountains, but in fact it wasn't. So uh, that that was kind of a surprise to me. So I think one of the things we're going to do this week is start putting some of that down along with uh, we're going to build, due to the elevation changes in our layout and how mm. we're in a basement and so there's large water floor drains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our main yard is actually almost right at... Uh, I think like five foot six. It's quite high, uh, and for someone like me, that's just just under my head. And so uh, we're going to build some platforms, uh, so a we can reach trains up there. It gives a great perspective now that you know trains run right pretty much at eye level. Um, but I know we've got some uh, shorter club members that would probably enjoy being able to uh, reach to uh, couple and uncouple cars and. Uh, It'll when we get into the operations uh, side of things, that'll that'll be a real benefit uh, to it. And yeah, five five foot six is about where 
I typically have my shelf even higher than that just because of cat jumping distance, which is the, <laughs> the metric that I have to deal with. You know, chairs underneath, could a cat jump up on the, hence the Bertie Awards, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so, yeah, that is, um, from my perspective, uh, 5.6 is still uh, almost a little too low. Um, from the kind of shelves that I've looked at. One topic that I wanted to float this evening, but I mean, the, the show has uh, has evolved in a variety of different directions, heaven forbid we ever try to plan one of these things, um, was the ability to actually hyper-detail uh, a shelf layout, which I guess has been touched on, looking at a site that detailed all the possible switching problems that one can actually compress in a relatively small shelf layout, uh, which is exactly my, my project for... Uh, the next few months is to actually create a transportable shelf layout um, which will easily be shipped and a variety of other things. Jason, in terms of your local community, um, are the folks who are kind of hyper-detailed shelf layout specialists that are also part of your club? Uh, there's a couple. Um, we've got uh, one gentleman that, who has, I think, like six... Uh, ON3 uh, modules uh, set Ooh. up in his basement that he's had for 20 years, I think, is when they originally... Him and a bunch of guys actually started it. And uh, some of them got to doing some really good detailing on it, and then some of the modules haven't been... like You can see the framework for where the idea was going to go um, and things like that, and uh, it just hasn't progressed as much. And there's obviously various reasons for it, but mm. uh, he's he's working on it and then uh, and I think I've talked about my uh friend who's uh, modeling the uh West Side Lumber Company. He's uh, super super detailing uh that uh, right now we've got track down on that and I uh actually I had to have my wood lays out for uh, that uh, large steam donkey project I was working on and uh, he asked me if I would turn uh the oil tank uh for him, and I turn basically what he's going to use for the inside for uh, to put the styrene around uh, on that. And uh, but he's got every single drawing. Um, uh, the West, the West Side guys, uh, I'll give them credit. They are among the the hyper detailed, and I think that goes to the fact that they have access to uh, the site. Um, a lot of them were able to be there when just after the the mill closed and have been able to mm. take hundreds of photos and get measured drawings so that they can really do an excellent job of reproducing the prototype. Um, and if you ever see some some of their stuff, uh, it always shows up in uh, like Fine Scale Modeler, uh, the Gazette, and things like that. Guys yeah. are modeling that. and it, It's just amazing work. Tom, let's turn the tables. What have you been up to uh, in these last few weeks of model railroading? Uh, so my past few weeks have basically been work-centred, but I do find when I am spending more time at work, the natural part of my mind goes to things like track planning. And uh, it's funny, actually, having, having Jimmy Simmons on the call specifically, because a lot of my after-hours work currently is associated with writing about, uh, quite strangely, uh, near post-apocalyptic circumstances. Um, so, yeah, I have been thinking uh, very strongly about, um, and for various reasons, I want to build a small shelf layout, a switching problem shelf layout, as it turns out. Uh, so all of this tied together very neatly. Um, 
probably less than or at five feet long, less than a foot wide, but also something that um, is transportable. I need to have something that I can kind of wrap a, a wooden crate box around. Uh, and for the, I think what you were describing associated with the fellow who has uh, who has a series of small shelf layouts, I would like to create something that can persist through moves, various rough treatments, and be unpackable in the same form for the kind of enjoyment that I get, uh, as uh, Bill was describing, associated with uh, basic switching problems and these kind of things, because I find that very relaxing late in the evening, having a, a relatively small shelf layout that I can do switching problems on. So I have an L-shaped shelf layout, which is about, I don't know, seven feet by six feet uh, L, maybe a foot thick, uh, kind of multi-level, uh, which I've been wanting to do more on. The only issue is actually getting uh, the track and the cost and the time. And I think the aspect of time that I just haven't had recently have lent myself very much to planning a, a small achievable shelf layout uh, that will cover all these bases but also be transportable. So what I'm doing in parallel to uh, organizing the track plan is also getting a sense of I want to put uh, maybe three or four structures on the layout as well. Uh, the structures I'm looking at are in excess. This would be an N-scale layout for folks listening, and that seems to be my scale of preference. Although Terry's recent attempt at corrupting me with a very beautiful switcher has been um, well noted. <laughs> uh, but uh, so my feeling is currently that I'm looking at just designing this thing as being a, a one-time lumber purchase of getting the wood and also getting a sense of whether I want to do multi-levels or just do a single relatively flat switching problem, which is the, what I'm aiming towards. Although some minor undulation, even within five feet, uh, may be interesting. I did build a very small, I think it was about four feet by one feet foot, um, UK uh, style switching problem that had, I think four, or turnouts at various locations. I'm trying to actually visualize it again. And that had, and here, I mean, in N, you know, a change of gradient is literally, you know, fractions of an inch up and down, but just enough to give a nice kind of beautiful undulation to things. Um, so that's what I'm doing currently. I'm I'm living my model railroading hobby in my head, in large part <laughs> due to work constraints, but also various other issues um, that, uh, yeah, don't need really narrating um, in the in the podcast. It seems to be a similar theme, though. I think there are a number of us, uh, a number of small rail radio participants that are currently uh, overworked and are actually doing more layout planning in their heads than they are uh, in reality. But it's funny actually thinking about um, the notion of a truly mobile layout. I mean, on one, on one extreme, you have kind of suitcase, um, suitcase layouts, uh, and then slowly moving up, you have small shelf layouts, and then I guess you get into the modular layouts. I have thought about these uh, T-modules, but they just seem to, I don't know, they, they, it just doesn't strike me as a format that I like. Although I like the Keiko, uh, I'd like to have uh, some kind of curving and some kind of undulating uh, in my shelf layout. So that's where I am currently. I have a languishing uh, L shelf layout. I'm looking for a smaller layout that I can actually get done in a reasonable time and have trains uh, well, probably a single train uh, moving uh, a variety of uh, boxcars and other things backwards and forwards. Era is interesting because I've, um, as I mentioned with the NW2 uh, and what, uh, what Terry provided, I really do like that locomotive and that kind of pushes me in the uh, 
the kind of almost transition era or just leaving the transition era period, uh, which I'm now getting more sympathetic towards, particularly the quality of uh, of box cars and the kind of weathering and these kind of things. So I could turn it. I mean, once you basically the the freedom that you have when you build this kind of shelf layout is because it's sufficiently small, you can really move in a variety of different eras. And my thinking was that I could run some of the UK stuff I have on it as well if I need. Um, there was an interesting article. I wanted to make this point as well. I've got a list of things to cover if we have the time. Uh, Railroad Mall Craftsman. I did make uh, I misnamed it as I expected I would last show. The issue that I was having was that I couldn't get the June issue. I have in front of me the July issue, thanks to the large parts of Borders closing. I went to the uh, one of the stores in the Feeding Frenzy and picked up the July issue. I was trying to get the June issue because it featured our... Uh, our good friend uh, and co-host, Chris Abbott, and I wanted to get the June issue and couldn't find it anywhere in Las Vegas, even in um, model rail hobby stores, uh, specifically uh, larger, you know, Hobbytown USA, uh, and I went to Borders and Barnes and & Noble all over Vegas, and I couldn't get the June issue. This is the point that I was trying to make, and I did get feedback from others in the community. I emailed, uh, well, I, I messaged the uh, Railroad Model Craftsman folk on Facebook didn't get any response about the June issue. I did get some responses from some listeners just saying that the June issue in particular, the June and July issues sometimes are a bit more problematic. I'm not sure whether they're all on taking summer vacation to the street. But um, that was the point with regards to Railroad Ball Crust, but it's still going strong. Uh, but yeah, it was just that June issue that I couldn't get, which is kind of fortunate. I thought about uh, actually ordering it. But I think, Jason, we're, we're at the point where... Uh, we're wrapping up, so I will give updates associated with the small shelf layout. I think the first thing is actually buying the lumber and actually assembling, and my plan is uh, particularly, I'm trying to think, I think Pierre was the fellow that we had on, Pierre Oliver, who was the woodworking expert. I do like to do a bit of woodworking as well, and my thinking was actually creating a shelf layout and a box surrounding it. There was a thing that was, you know, relatively aesthetically pleasing, maybe some hardwood or something like that just to make it look nice as well. Um, well, if you so, want some help, uh, I do I, I do woodworking on the side for fun. So uh, <laughs> if you need any suggestions or anything like that, uh, feel free to ask. Yeah, I'm I'm I I cut my teeth in building uh, shelves for academics under a variety of different specifications in my mid to late teens. Um, so my woodworking chops are very much in terms of uh, functional aesthetics. Let's just say. Um, so yeah, I, well, I appreciate I appreciate the feedback, Jason. Um, but I think half the fun for me is the the luxury of time. I think the yeah. you know not rushing into something and spending long periods of time sanding and varnishing and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, my feeling is that and staining and all this all this stuff. So um, yeah, I I am probably one of the slowest woodworkers. Well, except actually building this shelf layout recently, I was quick because I wanted to get everything together. Uh, but typically, I I enjoy actually the fact that you can't rush certain things in woodworking. Um, but I'll certainly post pictures as I uh, as I put it all together. I the local lumber. I mean, as is the case when I say that Las Vegas is in the state of uh, the early phases of the apocalypse. I'm not far from the truth. It's very difficult actually to get even the um, local Lowe's and uh, Home Depot getting good quality lumber is now almost impossible. I think that's been a shared narrative, actually, um, through other folks who've appeared on the show. Uh, but in particular, getting reasonable hardwoods and things is uh, is always interesting. So um, I have a couple of uh, 
couple of woods that I know where to get. There was a local hardwood place that uh, closed maybe three years ago now. Um, but anyway, I will be able to find the wood and I will post photos accordingly. My feeling is this is probably a month project, uh, actually getting the box and stuff together, uh, getting the shelf ready, and then, yeah, actually uh, starting the design. But um, as I said, through having uh, Bill and uh, Jimmy on, I was silent as I was looking at a wide variety of, uh, predominantly UK actually, uh, switching problems uh, in, in layout form. Um, so, Jason, I think it's about the time that we should probably wrap up the show. I just wanted to conclude by saying that, uh, as I may have noted, I can't actually record. These shows are so long, it's difficult to map the start onto the finish. But I'm moving back to the two-week format, um, in large part due to email correspondence and just a sense that the community is always eager to get on Model Rail Radio uh, and talk about their model railroading interests, even though the theme for this evening seems to be that we're all uh, either caught up in the weather or work or both. The next show will be on August 6th at 7pm uh, Eastern. I'm moving the shows a little earlier uh, just so we can get some discussion in and also to allow for... Uh, well, now Jim Lincoln's working so much, basically the whole post-show thing has kind of got on a hiatus. I'm not sure if Jim's... Well, I don't, I don't want to narrate too much, but Jim's basically already given the narration associated with his current working schedule. Um, and uh, the show following that will be on August 20th at 7pm Eastern, uh, 4pm Pacific. And uh, if I recall rightly, I think it was 9am Eastern Standard Time in Australia and possibly either 10 or 11am in New Zealand. And similar times, I think, for Hong Kong um, and a variety of other... Uh, for the Swedish listeners and other European listeners, um, we will do uh, what I'm calling the kind of morning, uh, the early morning shows for me, starting at 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific, going into the future. What I'd like to do is actually get listener correspondence. So if you are one of the European listeners that we have now identified through your IP address, so we know that you're out there, um, please do get in contact, tom at modelrailradio.com, because I would like to do one of the early morning Saturday shows again, uh, maybe even getting on Dave Freire uh, or someone like that uh, and just do a similar to the last few um, morning Saturday shows. For me, uh, reasonable time, afternoon, evening for folks in uh, Europe uh, in particular uh, because those shows are always fun. Uh, but I would like some kind of prep, like if particular times are, are good for you, let me know so I can line up a few guests uh, and we'll do it that way. Uh, and also, always, uh, well, always important is the Berties currently, uh, because uh, really this is an experiment. And the feedback I've received so far is uh, not necessarily that people are confused by the Berties, but they just have some thinking to do. Uh, Jason, as I have you on the line, what, what's your thinking with regards to the Berties? Have you started thinking about uh, the kind of manufacturers and kind of retail outfits you deal with for nominating them for a Bertie Award? Uh, I mean, I've got my uh, local hobby shop, which is uh, obviously going to go in for uh, my the regional uh, for us. Uh, and I've been trying to think of who I really like uh, as a uh, manufacturer who's really working, especially in the era, the the pre I want to say 1930s, 1920 era. Everybody's it's all small mom and pop shops, and it'd be so wonderful to get at least someone like an Exact Rail or uh, you know, any of the big manufacturers to jump in and, uh, you know, offer some things for us, uh, people that model this early, early era 
uh, of trains outside of, you know, the very first, you know, I mean, you can still get the John Bull and those very early first, you know, generation locomotives out there. So uh, I'm on the scouts for who who I think is really fitting these uh, descriptions that we have because I, I want it to be a, a good set of awards that uh, people kind of respect in uh, the model railroad I mean. community, not just a set of a set of uh hand me out awards uh for everyone uh so um yeah no i'm i'm really out there it's and it's hard for me like i said cuz i do model that uh era that is kind of uh not uh well uh marketed too so uh, i can't go out and say oh you know i really like all this modern stuff uh because i don't yeah. i don't keep up on it and i don't want to vote uh for uh stuff that i'm not aware of and you know very uh comfortable with uh well, you've made an important point, which Terry made with regards to scale. Uh, it's, it's not just the region, but it's also the uh, the era. And certainly I'll take that into consideration uh, when folks email awards at modelrailradio.com uh, because I think my interest is, I mean, you, you've given a very solid description associated with the awards, but my interest is actually, as you're saying, recognising the small and quiet achievers and potentially also the you know the the large achievers that are doing very well in this hobby as as well. I think this is relatively unique. I don't know of uh, I, I mean the major publications and various other things. I don't think they give out awards like this. I know the NMRA uh, has some you know has various programs where they deal with manufacturers, but certainly in terms of our listenership and in terms of the areas and the interests. I think we have a large surveying of the hobby. I mean, we've gotten to that stage uh, relatively rapidly. But I'm interested in seeing these awards uh, being a way that basically the listening community can recognize, as we're kind of doing with the wiki, a way of, uh, you know, recognizing some of the quiet achievers out there that are doing amazing work. And also, I guess, I mean, it's it's promotion for them as well, that uh, the folks who are doing good work, the manufacturers and the, the retailers that are doing good work, uh, will be recognised, and moreover, I mean, my hope is after a few years that this will be something that manufacturers will actually aspire to. I mean, that uh, it will get to the circumstances where they'll understand that there is a a, a market that recognises quality, and I think model railroaders in particular, although you you kind of with the last discussion associated with locomotives, you said that price is an important factor, but I think typically model railroaders have a little bit extra to spend if they think they're getting the quality. Uh, and certainly this will be a way for uh, for manufacturers and uh, retailers going into the future, getting a sense that there is actual benefit, uh, aside from you know returning customers and these kind of things, uh, for maintaining the quality. I'm interested in the most innovative manufacturer in particular, uh, because I think everyone has a different interpretation of the word innovative, uh, but my understanding through the general coverage that we have and the number of listeners that we have is that basically the listenership will define that term uh, as, as they hear fit. Well, as with previous shows, um, my father, mysteriously, who I don't talk to for long periods of time, picked perfectly uh, right in the middle of uh, Bill Sartori and uh, Jimmy Simmons' uh, discussion uh, to call in. Thanks to everyone who's participated this evening. We are moving back to the every two weeks format, which just basically means more content for the listeners. Uh, but uh, this evening in particular has been a packed show. I mean, my hope is uh, Bill Sartori, Jimmy Simmons, and obviously uh, Renee, who, who remains in the chat, uh, will be a regular and frequent contributors. Renee in particular, 
has just pushed my mind in a variety of different directions. And the combination of having the Renee on and also being able to chat post-apocalyptic uh, with Jimmy Simmons has, uh, has, pu- has pushed my mind in a variety of different directions as well. Uh, Chris, unfortunately, uh, I had to leave the call. Uh, he's a little under the weather, as he noted in the start, but uh, it's always wonderful uh, having Chris's uh, participation. And similarly, uh, Terry, I think, had to leave. So various people have kind of uh, stopped through uh, this evening's recording uh, because obviously as, as things get later and later, uh, that's just the way it is. Jason, you're the only one left on the call in terms of saying good night, but uh, it's been a pleasure as always talking to you as well. And um, for folks who are interested in contacting the various regulars on the show, uh, they all now, I think, have uh, at modelrailradio.com email addresses. One of the other benefits of the wiki is that you can actually see people's uh, at modelrailradio.com email addresses. If you have specific questions, topics, or interest, and as always, there is the mailing list. It's funny, actually, because the Facebook group has now taken over what the mailing list was in large part, um, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, uh, but we are still maintaining numbers. Unfortunately, Dave Freire has left Facebook, and I, I hope we weren't a reason for that, because he was probably getting so many uh, model rail radio associated with uh, emails from the uh, the Facebook group. Uh, apologies to Dave Freire if that was the case. Uh, that certainly wasn't our intention. Uh, but my understanding is, at least from um, Steve in Chicago, is that uh, Dave Freire is still a fan of the show. Uh, so it'll be a pleasure having Dave on uh, in the future. Well, Jason, you stuck out the show. I'm not sure where you came in. I think you came in pretty early in the show. But it's been a packed one, as always. Uh, a wide variety of new voices. Jimmy, in particular, I think, is going to provide a number of interesting insights. He had contacted me couple of weeks ago saying that he wanted to become a regular and what kind of initiation was required there is no initiation required to be a model rail radio regular there is no hazing there is nothing like that um as as with clark and basically a wide variety of most most of the folk that appear on a regular basis you just uh call in and participate one thing i will note is that i am putting different versions of the model rail radio theme out primarily for steve in chicago but this last one also was a, was a reference to another model uh, uh, model railroading podcast that has a well, I don't know I, I I shouldn't narrate too much associated with this but anyway uh, so the theme this week is inspired by uh, that particular show's uh, divergent themes uh, and I'll just leave that one Stephen Chicago was the first person on Facebook to put all the pieces together and if you are friends with Stephen Chicago my suspicion is that he's actually James Bond. I've never seen someone with so many fast planes, fast cars, and a variety of other things. And um, I'm just waiting for some, you know, some Facebook photo with him strapped to a chair with a laser being applied or something like that. Because um, even Chicago, yeah, definitely the James Bond lifestyle. It's amazing seeing all of uh, Steve's uh, amazing uh, automobiles and airplanes and all these great things uh, (laughs) (laughs) he's toting around. Yeah. He does become a little clever, too. Matt, is that you? Yeah, I joined on it. Um, as, as we have you on now, can we can we have a quick update in your model railroading over the past few weeks? Yeah, actually, I've uh, been uh, working on the shelf layout and uh, mostly doing some detailed painting of the uh, ties and rail. I went back through this uh, layout, and, and after I took a look at some real ties and some uh, photos and whatnot, I realized that there's a lot more white in ties than then uh, I think a lot of people give credit for. So I've gone back through it and, and with some 
mix of white and some very light dust colors and gone over uh, various ties, every 12th tie or you know, just random ties. And uh, along with that, uh, I'm also kind of gouging the ties up so I can have some ties that look like they have the rot down the middle. Uh, so the layout right now is about, I'd say about one-third ballasted and uh, just finished up the, uh, the rest of the painting, uh, actually, or just this morning. Um, had to cover up some detail or some uh, uh, over overspray here and there. And so now it's basically uh, done. I'm getting ready to put the rest of the cinder ballast down once I get some more of that uh, in stock. And and uh, we'll see how well the the white ties show up and how well they look once the, once the cinders are down there. The, the short sections I have that are, that are ballasted, I have some ties there that I had tried this technique on, just lighten them up. And they actually work really nicely. Um, and uh, some of the ones that are gouged uh, and whatnot to show the rot. That, those look pretty nice as well. And you guys were just speaking about Steve in Chicago, and I'll have to give credit to Steve on this because I was looking at his Danielson build many, many, many months ago uh, on his Picasa, and he had split the ends of some of the plastic ties in one of his, in that diorama. And that all of a sudden kind of just made the light bulb go on that, you know, there's not all the ties out there are perfectly square, brown things so uh yeah. yeah so this uh, actually kind of wraps up the painting and the rest of the ballasting kind of wraps up the uh this phase which was a much longer phase than i expected to be i thought i just painted and put it back up on the shelf but uh it's been down off the shelf for quite a while for the painting um and this kind of wraps it up so i'll put it back up shortly probably the next couple weeks and uh hook the dcc back up to it and uh uh start running some trains around it um I have one project that started months ago. Uh, I forget if I mentioned it on the show. I think I did talk about it in the mailing list that uh, went into uh, try out the Sergeant couplers on this mm. small layout. And, and to that end, I had equipped two identical trains, uh, six cars and one locomotive uh, with KD number 58s and six cars and one locomotive, same type of locomotive with the Sergeant couplers. So I'm anxious to get this back up on the shelf so I can uh, – uh, play around with that. Um, all right, so, uh, I guess to kind of go off on that, this past couple of weeks, I've also been uh, gone to my first two operating sessions, mm. and uh, that was very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, I realized how little I know about running trains because uh, mm. the layout I went to, they, uh, they're, they do the whole, the whole thing. They have the radios and dispatchers and whatnot. Yep. And, and, uh, Can you describe the layout? How big was this, and what 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 period, and these kind of things? It, the period is about the eighties, um, and it's the in West Virginia. It's a uh, kind of an offspring. Uh, it's a, a freelance railroad, but it's an offspring of of the B and O, and it goes between uh, Grafton, West, West Virginia, and uh, Greenbrier. I'm sorry, and uh, Slady Fork, uh, West Virginia, and the uh, the operation is early or mid-80s, I believe, and it involves two different railroads. Uh, one railroad is the Grafton and Greenbrier, and uh, the other is the Crescent Valley. Uh, these two railroads actually are owned by the same parent company, and they've, they've got worked into their operating scheme, the fact that these two railroads had some duplicate rail, rail and they've merged some, which has left some kind of operating uh, difficulties as far as how to get from this side to that side. Uh, if, if you're following what I'm saying. So if you can picture having a railroad with uh, uh, 
uh, one railroad's on one side of the river and one railroad is on the other side of the river. The railroads, uh, they uh, combined and decided to get rid of one and keep the other, but that left some operating uh, difficulties in some places. So they, they thought about this from a scope of, uh, or the standpoint of what would these two railroads do to, uh, in, in real life. So the, it, it's mountain railroading. It's, uh, I was mostly running through trains. Uh, so the operation goes basically a, you're in the crew room, you mark up for a train, uh, you're assigned to a locomotive in one of the yards, um, use, a, use a radio. They just use family radio frequency uh, radios to call the dispatcher for uh, a train order. He reads that off to you, you read it back to them to make sure you got it right. And uh, then go off your merry way, making sure that you stop on sightings where you're supposed to and so forth, uh, and switch any uh, towns along the way or drop off cars in towns along the way if you have any. Uh, so it was, it was quite an experience. I had to learn how to juggle a handful of car cards, a radio, um, a throttle, um, and a clipboard with my train order on it uh, with only two hands. Uh, and... Uh, at some point, I managed to hold up the entire railroad, and uh, as the owner told me, I brought the Grafton Greenbrier to its knees. So I managed to leave about six trains uh, bottled up in the yards. But uh, live and learn. Hmm. That sounds like a <laughs> uh, local hazing ceremony to me. I, I think it was. I think that I had very much because I was I was invited back uh, shortly after that. So it's very good. Uh, I must not have stepped on too many toes. Um, and just got uh, just got another invite to another place uh, just this evening, so um, I wasn't able to attend. But uh, I'm starting to learn that once you make a few connections, uh, mm. uh, a lot of opportunities open up. Yeah, and also beyond that, uh, my father and I, and my brother, took a road trip uh, two weekends ago to map out a potential uh, operating uh, potential concept for my basement layout. Uh, which is going to be based around Circleville, Ohio. Uh, mm. There's two railroads across there, Norfolk and Western and the Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania was a single track, uh, kind of secondary main line. That's the one I want to focus on for the layout. So I, I think that's what the next step is, Tom, is to uh, move away from the shelf layout. I've learned a lot of things from that, and I will continue. I've got a lot of scenery and whatnot to do on that. But uh, I've got that out of the way. I need to sit down with paper and pencil and uh, start trying to see what the concept's going to be and how I'm going to fit it into the basement that I have, into the space I have. Very good, very good. Well, thank you very much for uh, for the chance to chat this evening, Matt, because certainly your progress on the shelf and various photographs and things, I think, has been inspirational for many of us, and particularly the, the level of detail and the quality of work that you've been able to get through, uh, through taking your time in part, but also doing experiments along the way, and I think that metaphor of the shelf layout before you actually get to the uh, the basement empire uh, yeah. is one that has been a, a theme that a number of folk have picked up on. Um, so your contribution is always welcome. And we started the show by talking about the wiki and the various directions that the wiki is going. Also, we've been talking about the uh, wide variety of uh, national regions that listen to model rail radio, um, in particular the uh, Swedish folk and the folk in Hong Kong. Uh, because they're both areas that we hadn't even really considered before we got the uh, the list of uh, listenership. The point that I made uh, through the show is that folks should use the wiki as well as a means of actually setting up regional areas. And my hope is that or regional like get-togethers. Um, you've been, I mean, you were part of the first 
uh, with Steve in Chicago. Uh, but you've been very successful in terms of, uh, well, meeting Steve and other listeners have been able to organize uh, get-togethers in Springfield. And I haven't heard anything about Sacramento, uh, but my understanding is that, uh, you know, folks did uh, come up to Clark uh, and co uh, there. So, yeah, there may be an influx of users of the wiki in the near future associated with setting up these kind of regional meetups uh, and particular shows. We had uh, Gordon in early on the show uh, who have been to a uh, a show in the Gold Coast in Australia. And just by the numbers of Australians that listen in, my assumption is the number of folk are listening in Queensland and could probably organise uh, meetups at shows or even, um, as you seem to be doing currently, uh, Matt, uh, organize, uh, you know, layout tours and operating sessions and these kind of things because, um, you know, Model Rail Radio is really an international community. I mean, it's a phenomena and certainly uh, I've mentioned my relatively long work hours recently. If I'm ever feeling a little down or a little depressed, I just put Model Rail Radio into Google and see just the amazing, like, clubs and uh, general user reviews and blogs and posts on forums and just the amazing warmth that this community has. Uh, and this word of mouth thing, well, word of text or whatever in, in forums and uh, groups and a wide variety of other things uh, really does bring a lot of listeners in. And that's been the phenomena with this show. Uh, it's just a phenomenal number of listeners coming and uh, spending, well, every few weeks, soon to be every two weeks back again uh, with us, with the assembled guests and participants. And as has been a theme through the show, it is relatively easy to participate uh, through the chat or by calling into the show. And I'm really interested in hearing from Sweden and Hong Kong. We were going to have a friend of Jeff's on who uh, models uh, Soviet-era Russian uh, model railroading. We do have a, a few listeners in Russia, a, a couple of hundred. So it's been an extended model rail radio. It'll probably edit down to maybe four hours, maybe four hours plus. But, uh, man, Jason, thank you very much for staying on till the end. It's been a pleasure as always. And thanks for folks for listening in as well. Good night. Good night, Tom. Good night, Jason. Good night, all. <laughs>